I don't want to see your fucking cards. You play your hand, I don't care. If you're betting, if you have it or you're bluffing, I don't care, all right? Just play normally. You don't have to, like, show me that you I have the, the fucking pair. Jesus Christ. Just a friendly game of poker there. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. With Telus is being broadcast live and recorded live, 9.15 Pacific Time, January 22nd, 2022, is the date of this show at the time of recording and at the time of broadcast. You just heard a little snippet from Hustler Casino Live. This thing is blowing up huge. This thing is getting like 100,000 views on certain episodes or more. It's getting more than 5,000 people watching live. I mean, what a mistake that the bike made, or shall I say Live of the Bike, actually both, Live of the Bike and the Bike, which are two separate entities, letting Ryan Feldman go. We had a very interesting interview with him last year, which you can go find in our archives. And he spent a long time with us talking about the whole thing. But boy, he's really killing it over there at Hustler Casino Live. And that is now the stream people watch that has eclipsed Live at the Bike by a wide margin, in my opinion. So that was a scene from a pretty crazy... 20 or so minutes there involving uh, two different people in two different uh, situations. I played one of them. That was a player named Ben, who I hadn't heard of before, just going off on regular stream player Israeli Ron, because Ben was tilted. <laughs> that was around the 4 hour 52 minute mark, in case you want to find it from the game streamed on January 21st. Just go to Hustler Casino Live on YouTube if you want to see that. They don't sponsor us or anything. I just found it interesting. And I see it's being shared on social media as well. So we have a free roll here. It's not 100, 200. In fact, it's not even 100. But we are giving away $50 again this week from the same donor. Frank Rizzo gave $50 again. He actually gave $100 with the instruction to split it over two weeks. So I have followed those instructions. And the second $50 he gave is being given away this week. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. And that is our prize pool this week. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen. Just click on it, and you need a separate account there from the Poker Fraud Alert Forum. However, you need a Poker Fraud Alert Forum account in order to qualify for the free money. For all those details, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. The free roll actually started at 9.05 p.m., but don't worry. It is 9.18 now, but don't worry. You still got 12 more minutes to get in there with a full stack via late registration. You will have had to be validated before you can play. So if you're just signing up right now, you're not going to get in, but you will next week. If you want to be validated, please uh, PM Belly Space Buster on the forum. That's Belly Buster with a space in between. And if he doesn't get back to you, then you can always get a hold of me and I can uh, make sure that you can play. And I thank Belly Buster for his 10 years of running this poker room. 
fact, Poker Fraud Alert is going to have its 10-year anniversary soon, as I mentioned, and we will have some kind of celebration here for that. Our 10-year anniversary is March 2nd, 2022. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That's a number we've had all along. As is this number, the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. I acquired it in the 2000s when I lived in Las Vegas and I got my cabin in Mount Charleston and it's still there. It's an old 70s rotary phone with call forwarding on it. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the number to the Mount Charleston line. And... You can't text that number, but you can text the main number. 775-372-8355 can be texted any time of the day or night. Doesn't matter if I'm on. Doesn't matter if the show is live or in the archive. All that matters is that you text it, and then I can respond to you. If it is during the live show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. The call-to-listen line is a different type of phone number. That's something you can just call and use to listen to the show. You just call up and it plays whatever is on Poker Fraud Alert Radio at the time, whether it's the live show or when we're not live, you'll hear a streaming rerun of one of our more than 400 shows that we have done in our 10-year history. So that call-to-listen line is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. And we have an alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095. Either one will work. I got a complaint from someone that sometimes it says this program is off the air. If you get that message, you can do two things. Either hang up and call back, and it'll usually work. Or sometimes sit there for about 10 seconds and it'll start anyway. I'm not sure why that message is coming up. It's got some kind of bug in it that I'm having a a difficult time solving. But it does work. I I just tested both numbers shortly before the show. And remember, the call to listen line does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. All it requires is a phone, any phone that can dial a United States phone number. And if you can call U.S. numbers for free, then it is totally free to call the call to listen line. Unless you have T-Mobile, then it is one cent per minute. And most importantly, it never buffers and it never freezes. Unlike all other streaming media, which is dependent upon the quality of your connection or your signal. And if your signal or your connection isn't very good or is mediocre, you'll get a freeze, and it'll say buffering, and you're going to get very angry and irritated. That doesn't happen with a call to listen line where it just works. It just continues to stream, even with the worst of the worst connections. As long as you can make a connection, it's good. It's just a simple phone call. It's such a wonderful thing. It's been around now for more than six years. And here's somebody who's been around for more than 50 years. Trader Ruski, hello. Welcome to the show. Happening, Trump. Glad to have you on. I know that our hours uh, happen to correspond with exactly when you sleep, so that's not good. But that's, I guess, the way it fell. Yeah, I've been working a lot, but uh, have some extra. Yeah, I don't know how long I'll last on the front end, but might catch some time on the back end as well. The back end. I, I don't want to hear about the back end, but okay. We have uh, Calwatt, by the way, is still awake. He's watching UFC, so if he is uh, awake enough at the end of uh, the main event, he will call in here. 
So maybe uh, you'll have somebody that can uh, tag you out and you can hit the sheets, but I'm glad to have you here. Let me finish, finish the intro and then we will get going. The chat room is a place you can chat during the live show. Works on any device now, and you need a Poker Fraud Alert account in good standing. The archives can be listened to on many devices. If you don't listen live, which is just about all of you, then you can listen in the archives. We archive the show every week, and it is on so many different platforms. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartMedia, the TuneIn app, which you can also use to listen live, by the way, the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line, the Stitcher app, one of the oldest podcasting apps, and that's... uh, Always nice to be part of that one. And then you can also download the MP3 file of the show. Just click the MP3 button on the radio page, which you can find by clicking the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. And you can either download or play the MP3 file. You just click on the MP3 file itself, and it'll just play on your device. It works on any device without any kind of additional app or player. So that's always nice. And I guess now we're going to go to the agenda. And then we will get started. This is going to be a very Texas-heavy show at the beginning. Somehow, Texas poker has become very big as far as poker news in the last six weeks. Before, we hardly talked about it. Before, hardly anyone talked about it. Before, hardly anyone outside of Texas was aware it existed. But now, everyone's aware because there's been so many things happening, so many Texas stories that have happened. We have three of them this week. Two of them involve... Texas Card House in Dallas, but they're two totally different stories. So the first story we're going to do is about Houston and Legends Poker Room. Another thing has happened over there. Remember, uh, they're down the street from Johnny Chan's former poker room. And they already had an issue with Sam Farha getting beaten up. Maybe deservedly, but still, he got beaten up there by a dealer. And now there's a worse incident that has occurred at Legends involving an armed robbery. So we're going to talk about that. Texas Card House in Dallas. There are several Texas Card House locations. This one in Dallas we're going to talk about. Two things happened. Number one, the bigger story, they got their business license revoked by the city, and they may be shutting down soon. They're appealing this at the moment, but this is not good news. And then... Also, on their stream, they do a stream like Hustler Casino Live does and like Live at the Bike does. On this stream, there was an incident where a player flipped over another player's card in the middle of a hand. But there's more to this story than it appears, and we're going to talk about both angles to this whole thing. Both players may have been in the wrong in some way, and we're going to discuss that. So those are our three Texas poker stories this week. Then... The GPI Awards, the Global Poker Index Awards, which owns the Hendon Mob, by the way, they are having their awards once again for 2021. The ceremony is in 2022 in Las Vegas. There is a Best Podcast category, as there has been for quite some time. Trader Risky, do you think we are one of the nominees? I, I don't know if we even, I don't think we made it again. You're correct. We did not. Poker Fraud Alert Radio, I don't believe has ever been... I No, I actually think once we were. I believe once we were the nominee. But um, usually we're not. And again, we were not. So I will read you 
some of the nominees from the various categories, and I will read you the nominees, of course, of Best Podcast, and I'll give you my feelings about that. I don't care that much. I mean, would it be nice to see Poker Fraud Alert on there? Yeah, but mainly just to get more publicity and to get more people listening. I don't really care so much about winning an award, but no, we're not on there. We got snubbed again. However, we were among the possible nominees, and I will tell you how I know that when we get to that segment. Then we will have Druffy Time Theater again. I've gotten good feedback about Druffy Time Theater, about stories from my past. And again, we will deal with me battling with a company. Last week, it was the cable company. This week, American Express, which tried to outright scam me in 2004. I don't mean there was some sort of disagreement. I don't mean that it was my opinion that they... uh, owed me money and didn't pay. I mean, they actually tried to outright scam me. And usually I'm pretty good at dealing with these type of things, like I was in last week's cable company story. But I had a hard time with this one, and I had to enlist outside help. So you'll hear what happened with American Express in 2004 and their attempt to actually scam me. Adele has canceled her entire residency planned for January through April 2022 at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. And she claims it's because of COVID. But is she telling the truth? We're going to analyze what's really going on with Adele and this cancellation, which you may have seen in the news, but there's a lot more to the story that you probably don't know. And of course, we're going to talk about it here. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history is another popular segment that we do occasionally on this show. And We kind of got away from doing it. We just haven't done that much of it lately, but I had a request for it from one of its biggest fans, Desert Runner, and okay, we're going to do one tonight. And what better topic for Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history than the oldest standing hotel in Las Vegas, the Flamingo. We're going to talk all about the Flamingo tonight. Louis Anderson passed away this week. He had a connection both to Poker and Poker Fraud Alert. No, he wasn't a member on Poker Fraud Alert. I don't know if he's listened to this show. If he did, I'm not aware of it. But there was a connection, an indirect connection between him and Poker Fraud Alert. And he definitely had a connection to poker. So we'll talk about uh, Louis Anderson and what he had to do with the poker and gambling communities and where the link is to PFA. We have another civil forfeiture story. This was one that involves a legalized marijuana company and the targeting of them to seize their cash. And regardless of how you feel about marijuana or legalized marijuana, I'm sure you will be outraged when you hear this story. I definitely was. I am pretty much outraged at all civil forfeiture stories. The the only type of civil forfeiture story which would not get me mad, would be if a criminal organization had its proceeds taken and it really looked like they were guilty. And that's originally what civil forfeiture was for. And it's since been perverted into legalized theft by the government. So I will tell you about the latest chapter in uh, civil forfeiture. And I, I really hope that laws are changed and this can end soon because this is really bad. And it Not only is it just bad in general, it targets poker players and gamblers as well, even though the story I'm going to tell this week does not involve anything related to gambling or poker. 
Then our final regular topic. This is Poker Fraud Alert, but for that topic, we're going to be NFT Fraud Alert. A controversial influencer who goes by Beanie is accused of a lot of scamming. And this is the first major scam in the NFT space. There's been other scams, believe me, but this is the first major one to get a lot of attention. And I will talk about that and how you can protect yourself. Finally, there's some good and some bad news about Omicron. By the way, personally, there's some good news. I didn't get it. Omicron was in my house. My son had it. My son is almost 100% better. He uh, has a lingering cough, but aside from that, he's all better. The cough isn't that bad. You know how it is. Like Even when you get a cold, you can have a cough that lingers for uh, weeks or sometimes even occasionally uh, months. I've had that before. But he has a lingering cough, but other than that, he's all better. It was a mild case. Lasted a bit of time, but it was a mild case, and I never got it. Or if I did get it, I didn't feel it. But I'm going to give you the good and bad news about Omicron. I'll give you my opinion as to where it's going to go from there. So that is our agenda this week. Kind of had to cobble together enough topics to make a normal length show because we don't have any really long topic this week. And I knew if I didn't have enough topics, we'd blow through the whole thing and, you know, we could be done in two hours. We can't have that. People expect a long show. Some of you may not know that Poker Fraud Alert Radio, when it began, was not a really long show. It was maybe two and a half hours or something. It's only as it went on that it got longer. And we got to where we were doing shows like getting around eight hours Then I had to shut it down for a few months in 2018 because of the problems I had. And then I was able to work my way back up to doing it eight hours again. So now an eight-hour show is not uncommon. In fact, we've even had some that are uh, close to nine. I think we even had one that was nine. This one won't be nine, but it should be at least a normal length for us. Normal length being uh, four and a half to eight hours is the range I'd give. We'll probably be on the shorter end this time, but you never know what's going to happen. Trader Ruski, before we get going, I know you uh, you wanted to make some comments about the Mickey Maz interview. Well, it's, you know, it's a few weeks ago, but I, yeah, I just thought it was good, Drop. I think he did a good job, and it was interesting. I, I haven't, I just listened to the interview. I, I didn't hear your take on it and what you thought, so I don't want to be repetitive, but um, I will go back and listen, and I can't believe it's 10 years is my main takeaway from your, your opening uh, dialogue. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Yeah. It's it's been a long time here for this show and this the length of this show's run is far greater than any other show I was involved with prior to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So it shows something that this show has had such longevity and that the site has had longevity and that there's still interest in this show and even in this format, in the podcast format, to where I feel it's worth doing and you know, if, if podcasts ever fall out of favor to where people just don't listen to them anymore, I don't know if I'll continue because uh, I don't want to do a video show. People keep saying, oh, why don't you do a YouTube show, a video show? I just don't want to do it. I've always been someone much more attracted to radio. So if that ever goes away, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, uh, then I'll have to consider what I want to do. But for the foreseeable future, this show should be around. We, you could always go spaces or clubhouse or something. 
I'm just kidding. I don't know if that would work for the format, but um, you know, who knows what'll be next? Yep. Or Instagram. Now we are broadcasting on uh, old technology here. We're using the same technology to broadcast that we did at the very beginning ten years ago. And in fact, our chat room stepped back in time. The chat room is older than the site. The chat room is actually from 07. So we we're not exactly state of the art here, but that's okay because our audience is old and we're old. So that's okay. So let's uh, start off here. I want to talk about the scary situation that occurred at Legends Poker Room in Houston. Now, it could have been a lot worse, and thanks to one individual, the whole thing had a fairly happy ending. Now, I don't want to say this every show. I don't want to go into the whole Texas poker speech every show, but just very quickly, in case some of you don't know, Texas poker is not legalized or regulated. So what they have there are private clubs that are obviously poker rooms, but they do not exist as poker rooms legally. What they are is a private club where you're paying some sort of fee to either get in or to sit in the poker game, and there's no rake taken because it's illegal, and there's no laws or rules that regulate the game. They can spread whatever they want. It's just like a home game. It's, it's basically governed by the same laws that your home game would be. So if you have some buddies over, you can spread whatever game you want, and you can make whatever rules you want, and there's no gambling commission overseeing it. So that's the way it is in Texas. And you may say, oh, great, they have a lot of freedom. No, because then a lot of problems can occur. One of the problems is that there is no big casino there in Texas, even though Texas is a very large population and has some major metro areas. Texas just has a number of card rooms that uh, are kind of in strip malls. That's, that's really where you're going to find them. It's not like in California where you see the big Commerce Casino, the Hustler, the Bike, or even in Northern California, Bay 101. It's not like that where you have these big freestanding card rooms. These are really parts of strip malls. They take over what used to be a restaurant or some store, and they make a poker room out of it. So it's not even set up with a construction uh, technique that would be good for a casino, including, unfortunately, security. So they've got to make do. And you may say, well, why isn't there one? Why can't they just make a, a giant uh, private club, which is really a poker room? Well, because the city wouldn't allow it. These places still have to get business licenses. They still have to have permission to operate with the city. And if they don't get that, they can't operate. So there's no way that such a thing could be built and be allowed in any city in Texas. So that's why. That, that there's only so big they can get. So not only do you have the situation where it can be hard to run these in a secure fashion... But you also have the situation where if anything happens that you're not protected by any regulatory body. For example, when Johnny Chan's card room went belly up in December and closed its doors and people had more than a million bucks worth of unredeemed chips total, if someone hadn't stepped in and bought it, then they would have just been out of luck because there's no regulation 
regarding what money they need to keep on hand or in their bank account. Now, you could try to find the people who uh, are behind it and sue them, but good luck with that. You're probably not going to recover anything, and in fact, it's always very hard to recover any kind of uh, gambling losses, even if you were scammed. That's just the way the court system tends to work. I don't know Texas very well, but that's basically what's going to usually happen. So you're not protected very well at these rooms, either physically or by law. However, they're not illegal, so they're not going to get raided or anything. Anyway, Legends Poker Room, which is down the street from Johnny Chan's former room, it's in Houston. They already had an incident where a dealer had a physical fight with Sam Farha. That's because Sam Farha was apparently being a jerk, and apparently he's a jerk a lot in these card rooms, according to reports I'm hearing. And one dealer just had enough. And in fact, this dealer already got fired from Johnny Chan's room because of San Farha's complaints about him. So he was already hating Farha a lot. And then Farha started up again, and this dealer just flipped out and attacked him. So we talked about that before. And there were mixed opinions on this one. Some people felt that the dealer just should absolutely never do this, no matter how inappropriate the player is being. And others felt that Farha deserved it, that he's been abusing dealers for so long. It's it's about time that uh, someone gave him some comeuppance for all the dealer abuse that he gives and thinks he can get away with because uh, he's at a card room and assumes no one's going to attack him. So I won't get into that again, but that was one incident they had there. The owner of Legends Poker Room already had some issues in California, some legal issues, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding him. And that has been highlighted by their main competitor in the Houston area called Prime Social. They even made a video that was showing this guy and talking about his issues. But again, that's not really what we're going to be talking about here. What we are going to talk about this week is the armed robbery attempt. And it had to be pretty scary for those in the room because not only was there an armed robbery attempt... But a gun went off, the gun that was brought in to commit the armed robbery. The gun went off at least 12 times. How would you like to be playing in a card room and you hear gunfire? How would you like to be playing in a card room and hearing gunfire as two guys are struggling on the ground, like on TV? Would you like that? I don't think you would. (laughs) I know I would be... Very, very unhappy and scared if this were going on, if just wild gunfire is shooting through the card room. But that's actually what happened at Legends. By the way, I want to give a shout-out to TMMLK. I see he's listening. So there was an attempted robbery that happened this week. A guy walked in with a gun and announced that he's going to be robbing the place. In fact, he told the security guard. The security guard is in front, so he walks in with a gun very visible with an AR-15 and says that he's going to be robbing the place. In fact, apparently he announced it loudly to where everybody could hear it. There are about uh, 40 to 50 players in Legends Poker Room when this happened. This was at 1.30 a.m. on the morning of January 17th. The security guard, there is one security guard there. His name is... Trey Lynn Robinson, he's known to people as Tech. See, he goes by Tech, but his real name is Trey Lynn. 
He is the only security guard. And so a dude walks in with an AR-15 and just announces he's robbing the place. So Tech Robinson, who I imagine doesn't get paid a whole lot, decided that he is going to do his job. Sometimes these security guards are not going to put their lives on the line for the casino that isn't paying them very much. The security guard is typically going to take a lot less personal risk than a police officer would. A police officer goes through a long process, a lot of training, and they commit themselves usually to putting their lives on the line, even in very dangerous situations. And you you have to respect that, no matter – I know the police have had – They've been under a lot of attack in the media in the last several years. But and there are bad cops out there for sure who belong in prison. But uh, there's a lot of cops who, who really are, are putting their lives on the line or at any time they could be putting their lives on the line. You have to respect that because the rest of us are not. So anyway, Traylon Robinson, who's not a cop, decided he's going to put his life on the line and try to prevent this robbery. So he tackled the guy. I guess uh, the guy had his back to him. And Robinson figured this is his chance. So from behind, he tackled him. But remember, the robber was holding the AR-15. At any time, Traylon could have been shot. Well, after he tackled the guy, it wasn't over because they were fighting on the ground and the guy didn't want to let go of his weapon. And it was firing all over the room. And the gun discharged about 12 times. Amazingly, None of the 40 to 50 people in there were hit, including Traylon Robinson. So nobody was hit by the gunfire. There was something I read that Traylon got grazed in the shoulder, but it's it's not clear if that really happened. But anyway, after a lot of struggling on the ground and the gun going off 12 times, it's really just like what you'd see on TV. Think of a TV show where... They want to create a scary situation, but they don't want any of the characters getting shot. So there's two guys wrestling on the ground with a gun, and it's firing, 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 and it's creating a scary moment for the viewer, but no one ends up getting hit, and eventually the good guy gets the upper hand and cuffs the bad guy. Well, that's exactly what happened here, because when it was all done, Traylon Robinson was able to pin down the guy and put cuffs on him, and then hold him down until the police arrived and they arrested him. Well, Drop, you don't know if the guy's going to come in and shoot everybody either. So it's not like, oh, it's robbery. If I don't do anything, it's safe. He kind of said, fuck it. I better, you know, yeah, tackle the guy now, right? I mean, he, it wasn't a sure thing that the guy wasn't going to go in and shoot everybody. He could have some bad beats. Yeah, no, that's true. Now, the guy did say this is a robbery, so at least you knew it wasn't someone coming in. Well, you didn't know, but... There's a much higher chance it's just going to be a robbery if somebody comes in with a gun and announces it's robbery rather than just someone stomping in there with a gun where they could just decide it's going to be a, a spree killing. But you, know, you you can't always believe him either because it's a guy walking in with a gun to commit a crime. So it, it could be where he says it's a robbery and shoots people or it could be that he's intending it for it to be a robbery but then something spooks him or someone tries to fight back and he decides to start shooting people. So yes, uh, definitely Traylon Robinson was a big hero here. I'll play you uh, what he said, actually, to KTRK, which is a TV station in Houston. And he was asking me to give him the money, but instead I lunged towards them, 
fought him, wrestled him with the gun. It started to go off. A couple things happened. I was able to tackle him down and put the handcuffs on him in the restroom. The security guard said he dislocated his shoulder and has a graze wound even. He also says that the rifle went off as they were fighting, but thankfully no one was hit. I don't know if he really has his graze wound. Again, I've, I've seen different accounts of this. There is a picture of him with a sling on his shoulder with some blood, but that could just be from the struggling on the ground and a scrape. And uh, he definitely dislocated his shoulder at the very least. A GoFundMe was started to raise money for him. Here's what the GoFundMe says. This is started by a person named Sean Benefiel, who is a dealer at Legends. It says, Show some love for a true hero, Trey Lynn Robinson. I am a dealer at Legends Poker in Houston. Tonight there was an attempted robbery in our room. The person responsible for the shooting was miraculously stopped by the actions of an incredibly brave man. Our security guard, Trey Lynn Tech Robinson, ran towards the guy firing an automatic weapon and wrestled with him. Now, that's not totally true. The guy wasn't, like, just firing the weapon off and Trey Lynn ran into the line of fire. Uh, he was heroic, but not that heroic. So he, uh, he, he tackled him from behind before the firing began. The firing happened while they were struggling on the ground. But, okay, whatever. I mean, 100% this guy was uh, very heroic. Uh, Traylin stopped him from opening fire on a room with more than 120 people in it. Again, an exaggeration. It's about 50 people. I was probably 10 feet before the bu- bullets hit the wall. What Tech did was the bravest thing I've ever seen in my life. Without a doubt, this man saved my life and the lives of every person who was in the room at the time. We all play poker. We all have the money to gamble, which means you have some money to put towards this cause. If it weren't for him, you might not be reading this right now. I know I wouldn't be writing it. This man is a hero. He's going to have some medical bills from injuries sustained during this incident, as well as living with the aftermath of what happened tonight. So please send some money. Share the link. It's the least we can do to show some gratitude and appreciation. And yes, I plan on donating more myself, but, uh, but many of us in the poker community know a lot of cash isn't always in the bank. Thank you for taking the time to read this. And again, please, let's come together on this one. The reason he wrote that little disclaimer at the end was that there was like 50 bucks that was donated there by this guy who started it. So I guess he was uh, trying to say, oh, I'll donate more later, which he doesn't have to say. I mean, he doesn't have to donate a massive amount himself. Indeed, they have raised some money for him. Now, the goal is 40K, which doesn't really mean anything. They can bet the goal is anything. He doesn't have any hard expenses here aside from uh, any medical bills that his insurance won't cover. So it's basically just a thank you to the guy. And so far, they've raised $3,130. And you can find the link to the GoFundMe either by Googling it, uh, Trey Lynn, T-R-E-L-Y-N-N Robinson GoFundMe, or you can go find the thread on Poker Fraud Alert where I link it. And that is in the poker community discussion area of the Poker Fraud Alert forum. And you can find the GoFundMe right there on my first post about it. How do I feel about this GoFundMe? Because a lot of GoFundMes are kind of stupid or BS or even scammy. Provided you can trust this Sean Benefield guy, I assume the money's really going to go to Traylian. I mean, I guess there's a chance that something could happen as there always is on GoFundMe. I could only vouch for this if I knew this Sean guy, which I don't. If I had to guess, though, it's legit. So is this something that would be worth donating to if you wanted to show some appreciation, even if you're not 
someone who's in Houston or ever plays Texas poker. Yeah, I mean, the, the security guard definitely did something very brave and put his life at risk to stop this robbery from occurring and possibly, as Trader Ruski said, stop anyone from getting hurt. So I can totally understand anyone who would like to donate to this cause to just give him something for it. That's, that's really what it is. This, this is different than a situation where he needs some legal defense. or That's not going to happen here. Obviously, he's not going to get sued by the robber. So it's, it's more just uh, giving someone something who, who did something brave to save people in Texas poker. But Trump, if you could only donate, to, if you'd only donate to one, would you choose uh, the the dealer that punched Farha or the security guard that stopped the robber? <laughs> that's a good question, and both were at Legends. Yeah, that's true. They actually had a, a GoFundMe for both. I have to say this: uh, this one with a security guard is is more of a uh, valid GoFundMe as far as wanting to donate. The I understood the other one too, but. My attitude about dealers attacking people, unless they're punched first. If they're punched first, it's a whole different story. If they're not actually hit first, and it's just a matter of talking trash. If I know for sure that the one who got attacked was just a complete asshole all the time to dealers and just uh, really kind of deserved for someone to hit him after all this, I don't really have any problem with the dealer, but I also can't justify it. I'm kind of in the middle there. I can kind of see both sides because otherwise it's a slippery slope. If you start saying dealers, it's okay for them to hit people if they don't like them because there's there's sometimes it's legitimate to criticize the dealer or sometimes you'll get in an argument with the dealer. I've had arguments with dealers. I, I will never go off on dealers because I'm losing or because I was dealt bad beats. Even if the dealer makes a mistake, uh, I, I will not go off on them, but I have had times where, where the dealer is either rude to me or the dealer is really, really not paying attention and keeps making mistakes and I'm playing a high-stakes game and it's pissing me off. I once lost a $2,600 pot of commerce because of that. And so, yeah, I've said things before. Uh, I, I don't ever get threatening. I never use profanity. I never yell. But, you know, I, I've, I've made critical comments before. I've, I've expressed my frustration before. So I wouldn't want one of these dealers feeling like they have the right to go punch me after saying that. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, I've seen some players be really, really awful to dealers like all the time, especially at Commerce, but in a lot of places. There's certain players who just are chronically abusive to dealers and usually just because they're losing and getting dealt bad cards, and that's inexcusable. You should never do that, and that's a, that's a, a really nasty thing to do, and you shouldn't gamble if you can't play without abusing the dealer. So uh, if one of those persons gets punched, I'm not going to go, oh, that's such a shame. I feel so bad for that guy. No, I, I don't. But uh, at the same time, I don't want to say, okay, well, yeah, dealers should just go punch abusive players. I don't feel that either. So uh, this one, at least, there's nothing objectionable about donating. There's nothing controversial. Like, what? You're donating to that security guard who tackled a robber and stopped people from getting shot? No one's going to say that. So that's what I do like about this GoFundMe is there's, there's not two sides to this. There's not a reason not to donate. So if... You want to, but definitely uh, go ahead, and I do think the guy deserves something. Honestly, Legend should give him some kind of bonus. I don't know if they're going to, but if well, I... Well, he's probably going to... You don't think he's going to have a lawsuit with the fucked up shoulder and possible... Uh, no, because it's part shot. of the... No, it's just part of the job. There, it wasn't like he tripped on something that they had there that was uh, 
dangerous and that he tripped and dislocated his shoulder. They, 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 when you're a security guard, you're signing up to possibly get in these situations. That's exactly the job. No, so. if you, but if you get injured at work, I'm sure there's going to be a workers' comp claim. Yeah, there could but be that, yes. He doesn't deserve it, but still. Yeah, no, there definitely could be a workers' comp claim. That, that's for sure. But you're not going to get rich off workers' comp. You will, uh, you'll, you'll get rich sometimes off of lawsuits of injuries at work, but not uh, really semi-rich. But workers' comp is not uh, something that's very lucrative. In fact, I mentioned on the forum recently, about two decades ago, a little bit more, in the late 90s, I dated someone who was a fraud investigator for workers' comp. Not for the government, but for a, 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 an insurance company that did workers' comp. And uh, I heard some interesting stories about people who were defrauding workers' comp and also the way they were catching them. And she was working on that side in that insurance company. It was very interesting. Yeah, back then. I mean, now with all the cell phone cameras and stuff, I'm sure it's much harder. Yeah, it probably is. But it yeah. was always funny to watch those things. Yeah. Now, have you see, have you been have you seen a dealer get punched? I mean, a dealer punch a player before? No, I've never seen it. I did see that video of that one Bellagio dealer who uh, attacked that player, who was again someone who was being very abusive. But I've never actually been there when either a dealer has hit someone or when a dealer has been hit. I have seen it where some really obnoxious player at Commerce throws like a chip at a dealer or throws cards in the dealer's face or where there's some contact made, but I've never seen like like a hand-to-hand uh, fight. Where I have seen fights break out at Commerce. I've seen at physical fights, but I've never seen between dealers. Right, player to player. Yeah, right. yeah. and I've seen some almost happen. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen some fights come very close to happening at Commerce as well between players, and then I've seen a few real ones. But yeah. yeah, I did. I did. Well, I didn't see it, but I was in the casino at the same time. I mean, this was like probably mid nineties at Hollywood Park. But and I knew the dealer. He just got up. The guy was in seat five. Walked around the table. Just clocked this guy because he was just being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that uh, <laughs> that could happen. Like I, I've, I've wondered before if this would happen because some of these players are just so abusive to these dealers and you can tell these dealers are just hating it. And especially the male ones who kind of feel like, you know, I bet I could kick this guy's ass because sometimes the guys being abusive aren't like big, tough guys. Sometimes it's just, you know, old dudes at the table or something who probably, if the dealer fought them would lose. So I've seen it where the dealer looks like is fuming and just, you could tell wants to punch the guy. But uh, but I've never seen it actually happen. I, I did see the last time I saw a player-to-player altercation that almost was a fight was there was this... Uh, there, there were two guys, I believe they were actually uh, both Armenian or they're both Middle Eastern, something like that. Uh, but anyway, one of them was an older guy and he was just being really, really abusive to all the players. But he was also kind of a fish, so everyone just tolerated it. And... Uh, a younger guy went and sat down right next to him. And the younger guy, he kind of had like a thuggish look to him. It was, as I said, it was another uh, Middle Eastern guy. But uh, he had the slick back hair and he he looked like someone who wasn't going to take a lot of shit. And I was right. So what happened was when the old guy started making nasty comments after losing a hand to him, 
then the younger guy started talking back, and then the old guy started talking back to him, and so finally the younger guy just got really pissed and said, uh, uh, you know, I, you, you want to go outside? And so the, guy, the, the older guy started to back down, and then the younger guy started to say, if you, if you say anything more to me, if you continue this shit, I'm going to punch you right here. And then the older guy didn't know what to say because he was scared of him. He knew that if he fought this guy, he was going to probably lose. So then it, I could tell it was very hard for this older guy who'd been abusive to everybody like to not say anything because he really wanted to, but he was kind of believing this dude was going to punch him. But I was wondering if this was really going to happen because it was looking like it was coming very close. That was one, actually one of my last sessions at Commerce before COVID. I think it was like in late 2019 when this happened. When there's someone at the table who is like, just very abusive. It is stressful to be there, even if it's not being directed at me. And uh, at least if the person's a fish, then you can say, okay, well, this person's chunking off money. But still, you kind of just have a stressed feeling being there. I don't like it. I like to feel relaxed when I'm playing, not have some guy who's just looking like he's about to completely blow his top. And it is more likely that a fish is going to be like that than someone who is a good player. Because someone who is a good player it tends to be someone who, number one, wins more often than losing, and, and number two, has gotten good because they can control themselves. And uh, that's not always the case, but it's much more likely it's one of the fish in the game, or at least someone with a tendency to tilt very badly. And Druff, you know, you mentioned the uh, Middle, or somebody from the Middle East, but I don't know if you knew that Dubai, this this month, they they move you know weekends used to be on Friday and Saturday that would be our Saturday and Sunday and now they just moved it to Saturday and Sunday. Did you know that? Dubai actually what they changed their weekends? You mean like the working weekends? Yeah, because weekends right like weekends used to be Friday and Saturday like we have Saturday and Sunday. Oh, interesting. Why and did they Monday do that? Monday was their Sunday. Our Monday was their Sunday. But now they just changed it. I'm and, you know, Dubai is exploding, and I wonder if you think there have, been, have there been any rumors of gambling or potentially poker in Dubai? Uh, no. In fact, Caesars has a property there. I always get these emails about, uh, oh, two comp nights in Caesars, Dubai. I'm going, oh, that's exciting. You know, <laughs> two comp nights. First of all, who's going to go to Dubai and just spend two nights there if you're coming from the U.S.? It's a very long flight. And, and second the major expense in getting to Dubai is the flight. It's not the hotel room, unless you're there a long time. So uh, when something is that far away, it's funny when you get two comp nights somewhere. But that's what I've been getting. But there's no gambling at Caesars Dubai. So I haven't heard about any gambling expansion there. And I think it probably won't happen, given the attitudes about gambling in that country. Well, it's a lot of changes going on. And, I mean, it would be huge. There's a shitload of money. Oh, yeah. If there was gambling there, I mean, that there would be very, very high-stakes games going. Unfortunately, uh, higher than anything I could play. But uh, I'm sure there'd be very, very high-stakes going and probably some very good games. That'd be one where you yep, really exactly. wish you have some kind of super-rich backer that could uh, put you in them. But I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime, anytime soon. But it is interesting Caesar started a property there. So may, maybe they know something we don't. You have to think that. And, I mean, you're probably getting those offers just because Expo's happening now. I think it's only, like, every three or four years. Yeah, well, I, they have some sort of, uh, like, this is supposedly a benefit of being Diamond or Seven Star, that you get a certain number of free nights there. It's kind of like that Atlantis benefit they had, 
which they didn't own, of course. But th- that was a marketing partnership. This is their own property, or at least it's using their name. I don't know who actually has ownership of Caesars Dubai or if there's, they're just leasing out the name. But I know I'm getting these offers to get two free nights. It's funny, too, because Caesars automatically sends you emails if you're not using one of your Diamond or Seven Stars benefits and it's getting close to the end of the period where it's going to expire. So those are helpful when it's something that you're definitely going to want to use, like the $100 food credit that you get as a Diamond member. So I started getting emails about that and then used it. But it's funny. It says, you haven't redeemed all your benefits. And I go, hmm, what did I miss? And it says, you're two free nights in Dubai. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll pass on that one. But the way, it, it, the, the, way the emails phrase, it's like, don't let this get away. Oh, yeah, don't let my two free nights all the way across the world get away. Caesars is very strange. So I, it's funny when people get offers for something across the country with like twenty dollars in free play. People used to laugh at that too. You get like you're living in L.A. and you get a Harris New Orleans offer for twenty dollars in free play. Like they, I, you would think they would be able to program it not to do that. If you're a certain distance away, not to offer you minuscule free play, knowing that that would never entice anyone to come. Okay, so let's move on to the next Texas topic, and that is about Texas Cardhouse. We have two Texas Cardhouse topics that have nothing to do with one another. The first one could be the beginning of something bad in Texas poker, and especially in Dallas poker. Now, remember, I told you about what has been going on in Texas regarding the poker situation and the legality of these rooms and what they really are. And I've said on previous broadcasts that what's going to probably eventually happen is one of two things. Either these get licensed and regulated, maybe you will see some big card rooms there, or they just get completely outlawed. Well, in Dallas, it looks like it's going in the latter direction. Texas Card House is the biggest of the Dallas card rooms. But again, remember, it's just a private club where you happen to play poker while there. It is not a real card room because it cannot be a real card room. Now, if you remember, Doug Polk bought a piece, I don't know how big of a piece, but he bought a piece, probably a substantial one, of a card room near Austin. Now, Austin is not very close to Dallas. Texas is a very large state, but they're all in the same state and all these rooms operate in the same way. Someone texted me when I was talking about the Doug Polk situation. They said, do you think that maybe Doug Polk and these two vloggers who also bought a piece in, do you think that this could be bad for Texas poker because it could put Texas poker more on the radar where the state decides they have to do something about this? That if Doug Polk and these two popular vloggers are getting involved in promoting it, that maybe it's finally time to put an end to this. And I said, no, they've, they've been very aware in Texas for quite some time that these rooms are here and that they're controversial and that some people want to see it completely legalized and some don't and some want to see it banned. Like, I don't think Doug Polk's going to change that. Well, I don't know. It, it probably doesn't have to do with this because this is in Dallas and Polk bought in in Austin, which is not near Dallas. But you never know. Texas Card House has been doing streaming of of one of their games, kind of like how Hustler Casino Live does it and Live at the Bike does it. I think that would be more likely what possibly got the attention of city officials in Dallas 
Maybe they're just feeling like the operation is getting too big. But I think the person who texted me maybe was closer to the truth than I had believed at the time. Of course, this is just speculation on their part, but they may be more correct than I thought. Because maybe there is starting to become a belief in Texas, or at least in parts of Texas, that poker is getting too big and that they can't just allow this to continue. After operating for a while in relative obscurity, Texas poker has received a lot of attention in poker news over the past six weeks. A lot of things have happened. We've had the Johnny Chan situation, which I'm sure officials probably noticed as well. I mean, that's pretty bad when more than a million dollars of chips can't be covered and the place just apparently stole the money undeposited and shut down. So that had to be a black eye on Texas poker and would give more fuel to the side that wants to ban it. Then there was the dealer attack on Sam Farha at Legends. There's this robbery here at Legends we just talked about. There was Doug Polk and those two vloggers buying in to the room in the Austin area called The Lodge. And we had uh, another story this week, which we're going to get to afterwards, something at Texas Card House. So a lot of different Texas poker stories that keep coming up. Now, most of these are confined to poker media, which not that many people pay attention to outside of poker. But look, it is starting to get more and more noticed. And the more noticed it gets, then the more likely it is that this is going to be forced one way or the other. Texas Card House has several locations. In fact, Doug Polk said that's what he was looking to do, to have the lodge expand to other locations, even possibly in other states. But Texas Card House, they already have several locations, and they are the biggest one in Dallas. They have one in Austin, they have one in Houston, they have one in Dallas, which we're going to talk about here, and then they have one in what's called the Rio Grande Valley. So there's four Texas Card House locations, which will figure into this story. So the way they operate is by getting what's known as a certificate of occupancy, which is essentially like a business license. This allows them to operate their business in the city of Dallas. Without a certificate of occupancy, they cannot legally operate a business. I'm not talking about operating a card room. I mean any business. Every business in Dallas has to have a valid certificate of occupancy from the city of Dallas. Well, in December, Texas Card House got a notice that their certificate of occupancy was revoked. Why was it revoked? It was revoked for the reason of, quote, keeping a gambling place. That was the exact wording. Keeping a gambling place. Now, you may say, well, how much of a secret could that be? It's called Texas Card House. What do they think? They're selling playing cards? So did they really trick the city of Dallas that they weren't a gambling place? No. They were actually the first legalized card room in Dallas, even though they're relatively new. They got their license in uh, October of 2020. But they were the first one to get a license from the city to operate legally. Again, it's not regulated poker. Poker is not legal other than in home game format in Texas. But 
the city of Dallas was very aware of what they were when they gave approval on October 23rd, 2020. The revocation notice they received said the city is required to revoke a certificate of occupancy if it determines that it was issued in error. Now, it wasn't really issued in error. It's not like they asked for it and the city accidentally stamped approved when they made, meant to stamp denied. They gave the certificate of occupancy. They were very aware of what this is. And they allowed it. They decided to allow it. But notice it was relatively recent. October 23rd, 2020, which is only a little bit more than a year ago. Are there any other poker rooms in Dallas? Yes. There is Texas Poker House Dallas. And there is Shuffle 214. The 214 is in reference to the longtime area code of Dallas. So those are two others that have nothing to do with Texas Cardhouse. That's actually the competition. Did they get a notice? Well, we're not sure. It's possible they did, possible they didn't. I actually think they probably did for reasons I'll get into shortly. So does this mean that since Texas Cardhouse received this notice in mid-December that they have shut down? No. In fact, our next story, which has nothing to do with this revocation, is about something that happened on their stream in the past week. So they are still operating. So how is that? Well, what they're doing is appealing this. They're insisting that Dallas doesn't have a right to do this, that Dallas knew what they were when they gave them this certificate of occupancy and that they can't just revoke it like this, that either they allow them or they don't allow them. They can't uh, know what they are, give it to them, have them go through all the expense of setting up and running this business and then just pulling the rug out a little, more, a little bit more than a year later, pretending like it was issued in error. And yeah, that's a good point. So they have not shut down yet, but it may happen. And even Texas Cardhouse is acknowledging that it may happen. They posted a statement somewhere. I don't know where it was posted, but Alan Kessler got it. Now he has nothing to do with Texas Cardhouse. He just shared this to be informative. But this is what Kessler posted that Texas Cardhouse made this statement. As we understand the concern, we can assure you that we would honor any outstanding chips or balances for our members in the event that we are shut down. However, we feel strongly about our ability to overcome this battle and foresee this process taking a long time in the interim. One of the many perks of playing at Texas Card House is that we are bigger than just one location. Additionally, we back our product 100% and are committed to doing the right things by our players and community. So what they're trying to say here is, unlike our competition which only has one location, and if they get shut down, you may be SOL. We've got three other locations going, so we're not going to screw you. We've got a reputation to protect, and uh, we're definitely not going to screw you here while running three other locations. So if we get shut down, you know 100% we're going to pay you. Do I believe that? Yes. I totally believe they're going to pay people because it would be a horrible look if they were to stiff people if they got shut down, because they're supposed to have the money on deposit. I don't know if you can technically bring Texas Cardhouse chips from Dallas to the other locations and cash them there if Dallas doesn't get shut down. But at the very least, I believe they will honor it because they've got three other locations running. And that's what they're saying, and it makes sense. It would be suicide to their other three locations if they were not to honor these chips that were uh, being held. And, and by the way, these chips being held are supposed to be player funds that are held separately. 
Now, as we saw, Johnny Chan's room didn't do that, but Texas Cardhouse may very well be doing that. So this is just player money that they're holding at the moment and haven't spent. So I believe them. They also feel that this is going to be a long legal battle. And in the meantime, they're not going to be shutting down. Now, I'm not sure about that. I don't know how much power the city of Dallas has to just say, nope, we revoked it, you're gone, you can fight it in court, but in the meantime, you're gone. They seem to believe that they can drag this out for a long time through the court system, at the very least, and in the meantime, keep operating. I don't know about that one. I'm not as confident as they are in their statement. In fact, they're even saying that if we get shut down, we'll do such and such. So it's not even like they're saying this is going to be a three-year court battle, so you, we won't have to deal with this until uh, 2025, so don't worry about it. They're not even saying that. They're like, well, if this gets shut down, we'll pay your chips 100%, but uh, we think that we're going to win this, and if we don't, it's going to take a long time. So I don't know about that part where they can just continue operating without a certificate of occupancy. So obviously this just happened about a month ago. And we're just finding out about this now. You may say, why wasn't this a story in one of my December shows? Because this just came to light now. I'm not sure why, but this is when it just came to light. As far as the other rooms, you may be wondering about them. They are not discussing this. They are not giving you an answer as to whether or not they got this notice. However... A councilman, a city councilman in Dallas named Omar Narvaez, who is pro these rooms, so he's trying to keep these rooms still running, he said to CBS Channel 11 in Dallas, I think it's unfair that all of a sudden the certificates of occupancy for all these card rooms were suddenly revoked. Unfortunately, our city attorney has decided to change the idea of what he believes to be the rules of the card under the law. So, in that statement, he said, these card rooms, with an S. Hmm. All these card rooms is what he said. Not one card room. All these card rooms. Well, would he really get that wrong? Remember, this guy has been backing the legality of these rooms and trying to get them their certificate of occupancy in the first place. This is a friendly councilman to them who probably received some campaign donations, if I had to guess. So he's not just doing this for one room. He probably is on the side of all the rooms. So you would think that if they got these notices, they would have called him and said, hey, councilman, can you help us here? Can you help us with the city here? So when he says, quote, all these card rooms, that really makes it seem like that all of them got this and just the other two don't want to say anything and scare people. I believe all three of them got it. Now, you may say, has Poker Fraud Alert attempted to get any comment? The answer is we haven't. But that doesn't mean we can't. But I figured, why not try to do it live on the air? So we're going to call... uh, Poker House Dallas. Then we'll call the other one if we can't uh, get a hold of Poker House Dallas. And we're going to see if uh, they can tell Dwight Thornwood if they are really getting the certificate. Now, they may not say anything because they wouldn't say anything to any other outlet, but maybe late at night 
Because remember, it's uh, about midnight over there. Okay, so we're going to add this on here. Dwight Thornwood will ask him some questions. This is Scott. Uh, yeah, uh, this here's uh, Dwight Thornwood. Uh, I'm considering coming on down to your poker room, but I've been seeing something on that, that their TV that uh, that you guys getting some kind of notice about your, your your business license being revoked or something. Is that, is that true? I haven't heard anything about mine yet, no, sir. So, so you didn't get nothing about no certificate of occupancy. Uh, I have a certificate of occupancy, yes, but, sir. You, but you didn't get nothing about them taking it away because I watched it on, on my TV and it says that this here Texas card house they got one and they're kind of implying on there that all y'all got one and I'm like, well, I don't want to be there and they come on down, shut it down. I can't cash out my chips. You know what I'm saying? That has not happened here, sir. And every even Texas Kerr House will will honor anything that happens with your chips. Well, yeah, yeah, and that and that's good because you know my my dad had once told me that it don't matter if you win if you can't end up cashing out. So I, I just wanted to make sure that it's okay. But you guys never got one of them notices like Texas Card House did, is what you're saying? Yes, sir. There's uh, there, we have not received anything from the city of Dallas. All right. Well, that makes me feel better. Maybe I'll come on down there. So, so you're, the, you're that there by, uh, by Love Field, correct? Uh, yes, sir. Right at the corner of Love Field. I mean, uh, I-35 and Regal Row. All right. Well, that's pretty convenient. I ain't that far from there. Now, I got one more question. I, I'm a big fan of In-N-Out Burger, all right? I, you know, I couldn't get one until they came to Texas. And uh, if I pick up an In-N-Out Burger, am I allowed to eat it at the table? Because I see it's kind of close to you guys. You're more than welcome to eat it at the table, um <laughs> It's a little bit messy. Yeah, you no, know, I'm going to bring myself some baby wipes here. You know, we we don't use them no more because my kid, he's gotten older. We don't need them no more. So, yeah, okay. So, well, thank you very much, sir, and uh, um, I'll, I'll be seeing you soon. Are you guys open all night, right? Yes, sir, I am. All right, very good. I'll come on down. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Okay, well, that's weird. This guy's pretty insistent it didn't happen. That guy sounded like Dwight. <laughs> I was wondering if he's going to go. That's a fake accent. You know, you're, you're talking to someone in Dallas here. You can't fool me. It's kind of like Colonel Fabersham talks to someone in England. They're going to say, um, "Colonel, you kind of sound like you're from Australia more than England." And I say, "Have you gone mad, Australia? I wouldn't be down that." Uh, do I sound like someone who lives amongst kangaroos? But yeah, uh, I don't know what to say now because that councilman really seemed to be saying that they all got it, but maybe he's wrong. Maybe he assumed they got it. Or maybe they've just taken the line they're going to deny it. But okay. I don't know if this guy... He, this guy was almost talking as if he was the owner, but it's kind of hard to believe the owner is there at 1230 at night. Maybe he is. I don't know. It's pretty close to the Dallas Love Field Airport. That was the Love Field I was talking about. There's two airports in the Dallas area. There's, of course, a Dallas-Fort Worth, DFW, and then there's the secondary airport, Dallas Love Field. I guess it's kind of equivalent to L.A. with the uh, LAX and Burbank. So I guess this would be like the Burbank airport of Dallas. And I, I happened to see In-N-Out Burger on the map when I tried to break up the phone number. That's how I knew about the In-N-Out. I didn't even know In-N-Out had gotten to Texas. I had believed the In-N-Out was only in California, Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. Oh, and Colorado. I know they have a few locations in Colorado, like Denver and Colorado Springs. Hmm. 
in and out actually does not want to expand too far from their Southern California headquarters because they want to watch each location and they don't want to be too far away. And I think it also has to do with the food that they're trucking in. They don't want to have to go too far. But I guess they've gone all the way to Dallas, which is more than a thousand miles from their headquarters in Southern California. Interesting. Well, I don't know what to say here, but it looks like that guy is pretty confident that they're going to continue to operate. And he let, I, I thought he was going to say no to the In-N-Out Burger thing. I was surprised he said yes. I mean, I, I thought that right when I said it too. <laughs> they're going to say, no, it's too greasy. But <laughs> apparently you can. Apparently you're allowed. Team MLK texted me, call Master Scaler. I, Master Scaler tends to not leave his phone on. But you know, Team MLK, what I will do, I'll do this. I'll text him and just say, call me. And then I'll just throw him on the show if he calls me. So maybe we'll get him on. He has a phone. He just doesn't like to leave it on. He turns it on when he uh, wants to make a call or check his texts. Why? I don't know. Now, before finishing this segment, I want to discuss the possible long-term ramifications here. Because you may say, okay, well, it sounds like they got it under control. But maybe not. Not only might these rooms get shut down, but this could cause copycat actions in other Texas cities which have similar card rooms. So what if Houston does this? What if Austin does this? What if the state government of Texas says, you know what? Dallas shut down all the rooms and there was not a significant backlash. So let's just do it from the state level and shut them all down. And that could easily happen. Someone in the thread pointed out that Dallas is the most conservative of those three cities between Houston, Austin, and Dallas. Now, of course, Austin is the most liberal of the three, I'm sure you've heard, and as that is true, and Dallas is the most conservative. However, it is a mistake to believe that this is just a matter of uh, conservative versus liberal, because there are a lot of conservatives, myself included, who are more on the individual right side that want to see these be able to operate just because if people want to do it, that adults should have the freedom to get together and play poker in a bigger format than just a home game or a pseudo home game like what they're running in these rooms, that they should just make the option available and every city that wants it can have it and those that don't, don't have to. And that's my attitude, and that's the attitude of a lot of individual rights conservatives, of which there are many. So then you have the religious right conservatives who hate gambling, and then you have some conservatives who don't hate gambling but don't like the element that it brings or don't like the social problems it can bring and don't want it in Texas. They just feel like it uh, makes Texas less wholesome, even if they're not really anti-gambling itself. And then, yes, there's more people who are Democrats that would support such a thing, but not all of them. And this is not a very big issue to either side. So this isn't just a matter of the more conservative areas may shut it down and the less conservative areas would uh, be okay with it. it. It really could go either way. And while I, I will concede it's more likely in a more conservative area to get shut down, that is not the whole thing. And the reason they haven't outlawed these in a red state such as Texas and in a conservative area like Dallas 
is because there's a lot of conservatives who would not approve of that, who would be angry to see it happen. There's a lot of conservatives who want adults to be able to do what they want and are very pro the legalization of poker and gambling. So they've basically taken a do-nothing approach to not piss off either side. But I think this is going to be forced one way or the other fairly soon, and this is an example of it. So which way will it go? I don't know. As you've seen, gambling has rapidly expanded throughout the country. We have far more states with real casinos now. We have sports betting exploding, legalized sports betting exploding throughout the country since other states besides Nevada are allowed to have it now, and many, many states are opting to do it. So the stigma against gambling is actually getting less and less over time, and eventually that might influence Texas, and Texas may say, you know what, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And some people will object, but they'll get over it. So we'll have to see. Now, getting to the final story from Texas. Again, this is about Texas Cardhouse Dallas, but it's a completely different story. It's about something that happened on their stream. It's nothing bad about Texas Cardhouse Dallas itself. It's just an interesting thing that happened. And I'm going to play you what happened. Now, this is one of the times where it'd be better if you could see it. This is an audio show, so there's only so much you can see. But I'll describe the action to you. And you can also go watch it. There's a thread on Poker Fraud Alert called Dude Flips Over Opponent's Hand Before It's Over at Texas Cardhouse. Or you can uh, just search for it on the TCH Live YouTube channel. Or just search on YouTube for WTF Player Flips Over Opponent's Live Poker Hand. So that's basically what happened. There were two people in this hand. One was an Asian guy in glasses named Josh. And the other was the guy right next to him who went by J-Dog, which is kind of stupid. And J-Dog oddly has a scarf on indoors, a scarf and ski hat indoors. I I don't know if it's cold in the Texas card house or if this is a uh, fashion statement. Now, I will say, everybody looks like they have a jacket on in there. So I I think they probably do need to turn up the heat in Texas card house. Maybe that's why he brought the, like, I kind of want to wear that in the Rio. Not so much in the winter. Believe it or not, in in the, not the winter, but in the fall, when it's kind of cool in Vegas in November, when I played the main event, I was sitting there at the table. I go, you know what, guys? It's not cold in here. They go, yeah. Why is it not cold? I go, you know what's so weird? I think it's actually cold in here during the summer and not during the fall because I think during the summer they over-air condition, and right now they're not air conditioning or heating, so we're okay. But anyway, uh, for whatever reason, uh, everyone looks freezing there. <laughs> so maybe that's the reason the guy has the scarf on and the ski hat. But they got in a hand... And Josh ended up turning over J-Dog's card. So I'm going to play you parts of this. And uh, then we're going to talk about what should have been done here. And is it possible that Josh wasn't completely at fault? Everyone's gotten on Josh's case about this. Neither of these guys are well-known players, by the way. I'd never heard of either of them before. I don't think any of them are known outside of that local room. So these are just regular guys that are playing on this stream. Here's some of the action. So uh, Josh makes it 40, J-Dog calls. They both have 9-8 suited. They have the same hands. 
Queen, 10, deuce. They both have a gut shot. Okay, so let me explain what's going on here. Josh has 9-8 of clubs, and J-Dog also has 9-8 suited, but it's 9-8 of hearts. So the flop is a queen, deuce, 10. It's a rainbow board, and they each have one of their suit on the board. So they both have a backdoor flush draw, and they both have the exact same straight draw. And pre-flop, Josh raised to 40, and J-Dog called, and then between that and the blinds and the rake, it's, it's $97. I guess it's not, you know what, it couldn't be rake, it's, it's just that, that and the blinds. I guess there's someone else who must have folded at some point. So, Josh, who was the aggressor, fires out $60. 60 hour bet from Josh. Both players with a cut shot and a backdoor flush draw. Okay, so now there's uh, an interesting card that falls on the turn. The bet is 60 on the flop and called. On the turn is a seven of hearts. So that actually makes a backdoor flush draw for J-Dog. And now it also makes a bigger straight draw for both of them because now there's a seven and 10 on the board. So now they have a straight draw two ways. Getting a six or jack will make the straight for both of them. They both have nine, eight. However, Josh no longer has a possible flush draw because there's only one club on the board on the turn. But there are two hearts, so J-Dog is now alive to make the backdoor flush. That, of course, wouldn't be expected. Now the seven on the turn, so now both players have an open-ender. J-Dog is free-rolling. J-Dog has a heart draw. So they're going to chop or J-Dog's going to win. Josh. So now Josh fires 130, and that's understandable because he just picked up the open-ender here. He went from a gut shot to an open-ender, and he's hoping that if J-Dog doesn't have much of that board, that he's going to give up at this point. So let's say uh, he has Jack-10. Well, Jack-10 isn't that great. Jack-10 doesn't really have anywhere to go on this. Jack-10 is just second pair. So he may not want to call the turn and then have to call the river just with middle pair, so he may let it go. So he's hoping something like that, or maybe hoping like a pocket pair, something where he's not there yet, but he has uh, he's going to represent this, that he's already there. It's a semi-bluff is what it is, obviously. Now, I'm not saying that betting there is necessarily correct, because the problem with a board like queen ten seven two is that there's a high chance that your opponent who called the flop has a piece of it and is going to call the turn, and then you're out of position and don't know what to do, and your nine high hand has no showdown value. So then on the river, if you miss, you're either going to have to fire one more time and possibly waste money and get called, or just check and almost surely lose. So that is the problem with taking the line on uh, betting the turn like that. We will uh, see what happens as it goes forward here. Now, of course, there's a possibility that J-Dog may want to raise here because he's got the straight and flush draw now. He's going to make it 130, about half pot. So he does raise it. He makes it 500. And that's more understandable because now it really puts pressure on the opponent who's out of position that he has to call another 370. And he figures, okay, if I get shoved on, I'll, I'll snap call it. I've got a lot of ways out of this one. Now, he doesn't realize he'll chop if he makes a straight, but he also doesn't realize if they both miss, they're going to chop. So that's, uh, he's free-rolling him here. So obviously, if he, if he saw that, then uh, he'd really be happy. He, can't, he basically can't lose here. 
But anyway, it's it makes sense why he would raise there. Shadeswalk has made it five hundred towers. So now the pot's starting to get big. Remember, there's a two-five game. And we do get a call. And Josh, Josh quickly calls. So here comes the river. Remember, they both have nine high right now. Go to this river. River Which is, is a, a heart. It's a three, three of hearts. hearts. So Josh still has nine high. And J-Dog obviously has made his backdoor flush. So at this point, now that Josh already got raised, what you'd expect to see happen is that Josh is going to check and fold. That J-Dog's going to put some sort of uh, fairly big bet out there and that Josh is just going to fold. But that's not what happens. Jade's Law gets there with the flush. Josh will never be so glad that he missed. And did Josh just go all in? So, yeah, Josh went all in, and he had uh, 2,500. J-Dog, I don't know how much he has behind. It's hard to see here, but it's less than 2,500. But it's it's still a good deal of money he has behind there. So it's not a snap call. If if uh, he didn't have all that much behind, if he wasn't that deep, then obviously that's a snap call. But here he's got to think about it because all of a sudden, after getting raised on the fly, on the turn with that backdoor flush possibility and with Josh calling, now the backdoor hard hits and he goes all in. So you go, shit, why would he just suddenly do this? if he can't have me beat. And obviously the nine high flush is usually going to lose in this spot to another flush. Because remember, Josh raised pre, so that would mean that Josh, if he does have hearts, has better than nine eight of hearts. And that he's probably going to stack him. So this isn't a snap call, but I have to imagine this is a very difficult fold. I, I couldn't make this fold here for these stacks. Even for fairly deep stacks here, it's just it's just too hard to make this fold on a backdoor flush hitting like this. So the reason you didn't hear the words all in is there's an all in chip they can throw in. So Josh just threw in the all in chip trying to represent he hit the flush when in reality he only has nine high and his opponent hit the flush. Now here's where the controversy happens. Josh rips twenty five hundred dollars in he leads for twice the pot and J-Dog's sitting here with the flush. It is not the nut flush, but it is the flush. Considering, did we really both backdoor this? And now he's going to have a look at the stack. He's going to see that it's a considerable stack. Yeah, so Josh has him covered. So I don't think the That's graphic is right on J-Dog's chip count, but I'm going to say that Josh's stack is bigger than J-Dog's. So J-Dog's sitting there kind of muttering to himself kind of reasoning it out. Now he can talk, obviously, because Josh has made his all-in move, so it doesn't matter if he gives away information. This would be an amazing bluff if it works out. Definitely a lot of guts to go for this here. J-Dog definitely taking his time. Now, now they're skipping here. This is a recap of it, so you're not watching it in real time, which is good because it'd be boring, but they're kind of skipping to the interesting parts. Considering... Whether to call this massive overpat, massive overbet here. Two of them are conversing. I can't. Make so okay, so they're showing here the ding wasn't really on the stream. This is the recap. So they show discussion starts on showing a card, and it's kind of hard to hear. 
but they're discussing about each one showing each other a card, which is kind of weird because Josh can't make any further decisions. Josh has gone all in on the river, and that's it. So no matter what he sees, he can't change anything. The only way he can change things is J-Dog. Okay, so here's, here's the controversial part. J-Dog asked him, which one would you like to see? Something along those lines. I don't know those exact words, but J-Dog asked him, which one would you like to see? And then Josh says back, and you probably heard this, to be honest, I'd like to see both of them. Well, of course. Now, what's still weird is even if Josh sees both of them, he can't change anything he did. He's stuck with his action. But at this point, J-Dog moves his hand away from blocking his cards, and Josh is pointing back and forth to each card. So J-Dog moved his hand and spread the two cards to where they're separate, to where they're not overlapping anymore. And Josh is pointing, pointing, pointing back and forth, back and forth, like, which one should I choose? He said, truly, you guys should pay me for the live stream always good for the game. And then so he just picks one and turns it over. He picked one of J-Dog's cards and just turned it over. So he's going point, 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 back and forth, and just turns it over. So then J-Dog, instead of saying, whoa, 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 what are you doing, man? I didn't say you could turn this over. He didn't look shocked at all. J-Dog says, okay, well, I'm going to pick one of yours now. I want this one, and then we have a problem. J-Dog has turned over his nine of hearts. So, So here's where the problem happens. It's not so much that the card gets turned over. See, this whole thing is being made a big deal out of in poker, on poker Twitter, on poker forums, on Facebook, because Josh just grabbed J-Dog's card and flipped it over. People are like, oh my God, you never touch another player's cards, which I agree with. You don't. You always, if you have an agreement like this, you point to the one you want to have turned over and you let that guy turn the card over. But it looks like that's kind of a technicality here because J-Dog didn't seem the slightest bit bothered that a card was turned over. He wants to now see the other guy's card, of course, which is much better for him because he's the one who has the decision coming up. And if he sees anything other than a heart in there, then he knows he's won. He knows 100% he's the winner. And he's also the only one with the decision. So he asks Josh, okay, show me this one. And then... Uh, Josh doesn't want to show it anymore, perhaps fearing that this is a small flush and that uh, any either of the two cards shown will make it 100% where he's the winner. So Josh doesn't want to. And then J-Dog says, what, are you agreed? And Josh says, no, 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 I said I'd consider it. Correction, Josh has turned over J-Dog's card. I was not actually looking when that happened. Lord alive. And now we do have a four call. Apparently, Josh turned over his card. I was not looking. Lord alive! You can't flip his card over. You can't We'll see how the four. So what J Dog is demanding is that either the whole hand is either his hand is dead and he automatically wins, his meaning uh, J- Josh, or that he gets to pick a card, one card to see, of Josh's. Sorts this out. You should never, ever turn somebody else's card over, guys, especially when it's a live hand. Do not do that. Even if he says turn it over, I'm not turning it over. I'm making the other guy turn it over. I am absolutely not doing that, ever. I don't know if they were trying to agree. He's 
denying it. They're going to show each other's cards, one card each. But he flipped one of his cards. So, and now... Yeah, well, I said... Do not touch somebody's card. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, said, I said, I'll show you where that is. He did say that. No, that I is full His hand's dead, or he shows me a card. You can't just touch my cards and flip one. I didn't touch your card. Yeah, so I, I've just watched it back like about a minute ago. He totally turned the card over. Quite think, frankly, I think he knew damn well what he was doing. There's no place for that in this game. He touched both my cards and flipped one over. I didn't. You flipped it over. So they keep showing in the replay where you say, I didn't, I didn't flip it over. And then they're showing in the replay Josh actually flipping it over. So yes, Josh flipped the card over, which he shouldn't have done. But the two guys seem to have agreed here. The bigger issue is that Josh is then refusing to let one of her, his cards get turned over, regardless of who actually flips it. That is the problem here. And you have to say, look, why on earth would J-Dog allow one card to be turned over? Even if Josh has no more action and his decision has been made, why would he even allow this if he's not getting something out of it? So there I agree with him that one card should get turned over. However, however, there's another problem here. And I'm not going to play the rest of this replay, but... You can hear whose side the announcers are on, and the announcers definitely are trying to make Josh look like the bad guy. Ultimately, what ended up happening was that one card was allowed to be picked to turn over. Obviously, he saw that it was a club, Snap called it, and doubled up. That's what happened in the hand, and then they discussed that they might give a penalty to Josh for touching the other person's card. They did refuse to declare his hand dead. They refused to interfere in the hand at all. I'm talking about the floor, aside from making him show one card. Now, some people were immediately on Josh's case, saying you just never touch another player's cards and turn it over no matter what you think they've agreed to. However, some felt that there was an angle on the part of J-Dog, that J-Dog was actually in the wrong. This is a comment on YouTube. It says, it's pretty clear that Josh was given permission to flip over one card. If he did say he might turn over a card, depending on what he sees, then the only douchebag in the video is this scarf indoors guy. He's the only one who's gaining any actual information, considering that Josh was actually all in. So for the scarf indoors guy, referring to J-Dog, to try to claim that $3,500 pot risk-free or get to see one of Josh's cards as a tool move, and for him to demand it is even more telling. The fact that Josh no longer wanted to show a card after that hard is a tell, snap call and move on. But instead, Scarf Boy starts claiming he can't just flip over one of my cards, which he clearly took off his card protector and spread them so Josh could pick one, and then manipulates a free look at one of his opponent's cards. Hence, an easy call for the pot, because he's Jay Douche, an angle shooter who wears scarves indoors. <laughs> I mean, the guy raises some good points. This YouTube commenter raised some points that I have to say sound like they're kind of correct. First of all, for sure, a card was being allowed to be flipped over. 
as was pointed out here, he moved the card protector, he spread the two cards separately, and let Josh go point, 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 and then, uh, yeah, Josh actually turned one over. But does it really matter if Josh turns it over or if uh, J-Dog turns it over for him? Maybe a little, but the bottom line is he seemed okay with a card being turned over, and he didn't react at all when that happened. He didn't look shocked or surprised. He didn't flinch, nothing. He's like, okay, well, my turn now. So what this commenter is trying to say is that he thinks that Josh never agreed to do it and that what Josh believed when he was flipping over the card was that he gets to do this and then he gets to decide for himself whether he wants to show one. And what would J-Dog possibly gain from this? Well, J-Dog could gain information from Josh's reaction, either his immediate reaction to seeing the heart or his willingness to flip over a card once he sees it. So both could get something out of the card being flipped. In fact, there wasn't that much that could be gained by Josh because he already had gone all in. On the other hand, you can say it seemed like they had an agreement to each flip a card and that Josh went back on it. It is a little bit hard to tell which of these two happened. But it is possible this was an angle shot and that all Josh had ever committed to do was that he will consider flipping one of his cards if he can see one of J-Dog's cards. And if that's all he said, then he should not be required to. And the issue of whether he actually was the one to turn over the card doesn't matter if it was very clear that he was being allowed to, which it was in that video. So that's why this is not quite so simple. Now, has Josh made any comment about this since this happened? Yes. He responded in that YouTube video, in the comments section. He said, Hi, I'm Josh, the goofball in the video. I apologize for the horrible mistake I made here, not only to my opponent, but the players who respect and love the game. I should never flip my opponent's card, whether I have finished my action or not. There's just no excuses for that kind of behavior on a poker table. But I was not trying to pull back what I agreed on the table. I never agreed to show my cards. Instead, I said, if you show me your hands, I might consider showing one of mine, and the other players on the table had backed up what I said when the floor came. I could hear that clearly in the original video, but this part has been muted in the edited version. Interesting. I'm playing the edited version. I don't have the other one, and I don't feel like finding it. Everything happened quickly, and I stupidly believed that my opponent agreed to what I was saying to let me flip his card. There was some miscommunication between us. As you guys could tell, English is not my first language, and I was pretty nervous because I was bluffing. Again, I'm not trying to make any excuse for this horrible mistake I made, but I would like to emphasize that I have completed my actions already, and it was not my intention to take advantage of my opponent. And I was not trying to deny that I flipped his card when the floor came. I was trying to say I didn't flip his card without his permission. On top of all these, I might be the worst player in, po in poker history. I should keep my mouth shut and never touch my opponent's cards. He was about to fold. Okay, first of all, I don't believe he's going to fold. I think he's just sitting there going, oh my God, am I really going to get stacked for well over $1,000 because we both hit a backdoor flush? Like, do I really want to call here? But I think ultimately he's going to call. Like, how do you lay that down? It's just too hard to lay down. Now, if they both had 10000 in their stack and Josh went all in, then, you know, you got to really consider, do you want to call that deep with a nine high flush? But for what they had, remember, there was already a $500 bet and call on the turn. So it's not like the pot was tiny. So the 
amount that J-Dog had to call all in wasn't huge compared to the pot. It was a big bet, but it wasn't dwarfing the pot. So how do I feel about this? Well, I think you can kind of tell. I do believe that this was either an angle shot on the part of J-Dog or there was just a miscommunication. It is possible that J-Dog believed that they each get to pick a card and Josh believed that he just was going to get to see a card and then decide for himself whether he's going to show one. It's kind of a weird thing, but I think it's possible that each guy had a different interpretation of what was being agreed to. The actual flipping of the card by Josh is only significant because if he hadn't been the one to do it, then he could claim, well, I never agreed. This guy jumped the gun and turned the card over. I hadn't agreed yet, so tough luck on him, and especially because Josh couldn't act anymore because he had already made his all-in. At that point, I would think the floor would rule, well, it doesn't matter because he can't act on this information anyway, so just pretend it didn't happen and go on. That would be my ruling if the card had been flipped by J-Dog. However, since Josh flipped it, then he has the claim that if you flip my card, I get to flip yours and it becomes a lot stronger. And I think the floor did make the correct ruling because it was Josh turning over the card, even though he seemed to be given permission to do so, because he went and did it himself then it becomes a lot harder to say, well, no, 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 I'm not going to turn over one of mine now. Even if he really believed at the time this was being allowed, even if it seemed to be allowed, and even if he believed that he had the option to make the decision not to. So I agree with the floor's ruling, but I don't think this is like, oh my God, he flipped another guy's card because clearly the guy opened it up for him to do that. Maybe he just opened it up to let him point to the card he wanted, and then expected to flip it himself. But as I said, it didn't let the, look the slightest bit surprised. And the commentators didn't mention this. The commentators didn't say, well, it looks like the J-Dog here uh, opened up his cards to let him do it. He didn't say that. They, they, they did not mention that part. So it's clear whose side they were on in this one and felt it was a little bit uh, too biased. They even said at one point, get him out of here, maybe referring to the demand that Josh get kicked from the game. He didn't get kicked from the game, but... It seemed like the commentators were very anti-Josh. In the Poker Fraud Alert forum, there are some various comments on this one. F and Donkey said, you're absolutely right. The guy tried to play this as an angle. When he reached over to grab his cards, he made no effort to keep him from turning over his hand. Matos said, obviously you should never touch a player's cards or chips, but this is an interesting case as Nitty Scarf Douche Angle Shooter is the one taking advantage and gaining as no action was left on on the drunk. I think he believes the Asian guy was drunk. Scarf douche should just call sooner and not nit roll. This would never have happened. Also, clearly he wanted an angle because as soon as anyone got near touching cards when playing live, I would say something right then. It's pretty simple to always keep your cards under a chip near you until you're ready to show or muck. Not sure why many players can't seem to do this. But it was worse than that. He actually was intentionally opening his cards to let uh, Josh point at them at the very least. So, yeah, I'm actually more on uh, J-Dog's side here, and I think Josh was a little too apologetic on the YouTube comments section, but I think that there was a lot of backlash against him because he actually flipped over the guy's cards, and it's just such bad optics that 
he felt that if he didn't apologize, that people would hate him. So I think that's why he did it. And I think he realized that his protest in the video didn't look good, especially with him saying, I didn't flip over my opponent's cards. What he really meant to say is, I didn't flip over his card without permission. I believe that because like, everyone saw him flip the card over. But they they keep replaying that scene of him flipping the card over. And they play that right after he said he didn't do it to kind of mock that he did. You should never, ever turn somebody else's card over, guys, especially when it's a live hand. Get him the hell out of here. Yeah. That's the problem with these streams. You sometimes get a biased commentator, and that's not good. The very last time I played on a live stream was at Live at the Bike, and who was the commentator? That would be one Hanson kid, Bart Hanson. And I will say that Bart Hansen was not unkind to me on that stream. In fact, my parents watched the stream. They said, oh, that commentator seems to like you. <laughs> so <laughs> that was good that the Hansen kid didn't bash me playing No Limit on Live at the Bike, which No Limit Cash is not a game I play very often. So whenever I go play No Limit Cash, I got to dust off the rustiness that I pretty much have every time approaching a No Limit Cash game. I don't even play No Limit tournaments that much, but I play them more than I play No Limit Cash, which is very infrequent. So I know in general what to do, but I'm not someone who just does it like second nature, like some of these No Limit players who do it every day. So I appreciate Bart not calling me a donkey on that stream. Okay, so let's move past Texas poker. I'm, I'm tired of talking about Texas. Let's move to the GPI Awards. We lost Trader Ruski, in case you're wondering why he's so quiet. Trader Ruski has gone away. The Global Poker Index, which also owns the Hinden Mob, they do something called the GPI Awards. And this is an actual award ceremony that they've been doing for several years. And they're going to have a ceremony in 2022 for the 2021 awards. So it's basically an award ceremony for things that had happened the previous year. So they have a bunch of different categories. And then they announce nominees. Then there's uh, voting. And then they have the award ceremony where they actually give a physical award to each of these people. Now, they don't all have to show up, but they hope people do. They, they actually make an award ceremony out of it and hope they get uh, as much participation from those nominated as possible. So I'm not going to go through all of them. There's, like, I'm going to read the categories, but I won't read all the nominees because it would take forever. But you can go find it on globalpokerindex.com. So there's Best Final Table Performance. The funny thing there is one of them is Daniel Cates, who really only won his bracelet at the final table because of a big mistake made by Ryan Lang. So while that was good for Cates, and while he played well otherwise, uh, truthfully, he put his money all in from behind, and Ryan Lang just made a bad fold, and Cates didn't get knocked out. Otherwise, there's no chance he would have been in there. That's what's kind of funny, is he only won that bracelet at the 50K at the World Series because he was the beneficiary of a bad mistake. GPI Breakout Player 
You have Christopher Brewer, Johan Gilbert, Kaina England, and Vanessa Cade. Toughest opponent. That's kind of a dumb category. Like toughest opponent where? Tournaments? In cash? In both? In which game? Like you can have someone as a very tough opponent in one game, but sucks at another. Anyway, the four are Michael Adamo, Stephen Chidwick, Ali Imstravik, and David Peters. I mean, he's got all really good players, but it's a dumb category. Twitter personality, Will Jaffe, Jamie Kerstetter, Kitty Quo, and Kevin Mathers. Now, I want to talk about this one here. Will Jaffe is only nominated because of his popular series that he only does occasionally, but it's very popular and people like it, called A Tough Conversation. And what he does is he just throws himself informally on camera and does like a one to two minute video about someone who is doing something on Twitter that he finds off-putting and he gives them advice in kind of a sarcastic manner. They're pretty funny videos, the tough conversations, but that got him nominated for Twitter personality. Jamie Kerstetter, I'm not sure why she got nominated for Twitter personality. I mean, she's she's a nice woman and she's well-respected and I know she's been uh, doing these uh, broadcasts especially when Norman Chad was out, but I don't know how that makes her a Twitter personality. Like, I I wouldn't think of her as a Twitter personality. She's on Twitter, but she doesn't really stand out on Twitter. She's just a a known female player who's well-liked, who is on Twitter. I wouldn't see her as a Twitter personality, whereas, like, Will Jaffe is a Twitter personality, even if it is just for those tough conversations. Now, the next one definitely is a Twitter personality, and that's Kitty Kuo. Kitty Kuo is an Asian uh, po- uh, poker pro from Taiwan. And she has a funny Twitter where reading her Twitter, honestly, you would think it's the creation of some racist guy trying to make a stereotype of an Asian woman who gambles. But no, it's really her. <laughs> That's funny. That's what's so funny. It's like so stereotypically Asian female gambler but it's real. Like she's she's really putting out her true feelings there, unfiltered, and it happens to be like exactly like a stereotype. So people find it entertaining. So Kitty Quo, the third one, and the fourth one, Kev Math, Kevin Mathers. Now Kevin Mathers is not entertaining. He doesn't put out anything that's funny typically. Once in a while he does, but he's not like the comedian there. He's not putting out these funny videos like Will Jaffe. He's not putting out these stereotypical Asian content like Kitty Quo is. Kevin Mathers is just very, very informative. Kevin Mathers is more informative than anyone on poker Twitter by an extremely wide margin. I'd like to think I'm informative on Twitter, but not nearly as informative as Kevin Mathers. I mean, boy, does he keep track of everything going on. If you have a question, you ask him, he's got the answer. That's why the World Series hired him. Before the World Series hired him, I said they need to hire someone like Kevmath, and then they hired Kevmath. I'm not saying they did it because of me. I'm saying that they saw what I did, and they hired him, which was a great hire, because they needed someone there who could answer all these questions. I mean, he keeps tr- such good track of everything and he is so even-tempered. It is so hard to ever get Kevmath angry. He doesn't get easily insulted and he doesn't get insulted much by anybody because he, everyone likes him because he's so helpful. 
Like it's hard to dislike him. It's hard for anyone to dislike him because he's just out there being helpful. So how can you hate him? He doesn't express controversial opinions typically. And he's just out there to be helpful. So how could anyone dislike him? So just about nobody does. And he's just ever present with good information. And if he's not putting out the information, you can ask him and then he'll give you a good answer. So he definitely is a Twitter personality. And he definitely deserves the nomination there. Then there's best streamer, Kevin Martin, Benjamin Sprague, known as Spraggy, who has recently married Marley, Marley Cordero, who is now Marley Sprague. Jonathan Van Van Fleet, also known as Ape Styles. And Lex Velhus. These are all guys who stream their poker. There's best vlogger, Jermaine Burton, Ryan DePaulo, Brad Owen, and Ethan Yao, known as Rampage. I only really know DePaulo and Owen, though I don't really watch much of their stuff. DePaulo's like the brash East Coast guy. Brad Owen's just kind of uh, just a regular dude who does a lot of vlogging. People like him. Best industry person, Tony Burns, Jack Effel, Maury Eskandari, and Matt Savage. Industry person meaning someone who has a lot of power in some part of the poker industry. Obviously, Jack Effel being the tournament director of the World Series of Poker, and Maury Eskandari, the one who's in charge of Poker Go, and uh, Matt Savage, who is a tournament director and has been for a very long time, very well known, and uh, Tony Burns, who is... uh, the director of poker marketing at Seminole Hard Rock. People are saying that Jack Effel is going to win this one because of the challenges with putting on the World Series during COVID and how they managed to do this fairly well. So that people are big fans of what Jack Effel pulled off in the fall of 2021. So he'll probably win. Best tournament director, Paul Campbell, Justin Hammer, Ray Pulford and Andy Tillman. Interesting that Ethel's not on there. Best event, Seminole Hard Rock uh, Rock and Roll Poker Opening Event, World Series of Poker Main Event, Win Mystery Bounty, and Win Millions. That's stupid best event. I mean, they're also different. That's just a dumb category. All right, now here's the one I want to talk about. Best podcast. Best podcast. You already know we're not on there, but who made it? Who made the cut? The Chip Race Poker Podcast with David Lappin and Dara O'Kearney. Okay. All right. That's a popular podcast. A lot of people like it. It's been around for years. In fact, Negranu got mad when they won because he thought they were trolls. But I don't think they're trolls. And I'm totally fine with that one being one of the nominees. But then the other three I have an issue with. Poker in the Ears, which is James Hardigan and Joe Stapleton. Now, this is a Poker Stars podcast. And okay, like, I guess because it's Poker Stars and it has a reach. So I guess I'm semi-okay with this one. But you don't hear much about Poker in the Ears. Have you heard about Poker in the Ears? Like, I hadn't even heard of it before. I had to look up what that was. And I go, oh, okay, it has to do with Poker Stars. All right. But I kind of think like it was just nominated because it's the Poker Stars 
related podcast and because Joe Stapleton's involved. So this is one of these things where it kind of looks like what it's associated with and who one of the two hosts is that it got nominated. Then we have Doug Polk, the Doug Polk podcast. Okay, now I will concede that Doug Polk has a very, very well-watched YouTube channel. He has a far bigger audience than I do, and he does a good job with his material. And I understand that he should be the nominee for some kind of award here related to what he does. I'm talking about from the standpoint of his shows, not any poker he plays. Okay? So nothing against Doug Polk or what he does. I think he should be nominated for something. He deserves that. But I don't think what he has is a podcast. He has a video show. Now, I argued with some people on the Poker Fraud Alert forum, and these were not people trying to troll me. These were people who were trying to have a legitimate discussion with me saying they just disagreed. And that's fine. Yeah, they can have a different opinion. But I was not of the belief, and I'm still not of the belief, that Doug Polk's YouTube show is a podcast. It just isn't. It is a YouTube show. To me, a podcast is radio, and a YouTube show is TV. In fact, a podcast is defined as audio. Here's an actual definition I found on the web of what a podcast is. A digital audio file made available on the internet for downloading to a computer or mobile device, typically available as a series, new installments of which can be received by subscribers automatically. A digital audio file, it says. So that means that someone does a show, as it says, typically it's in a series, like Poker Fraud Alert, we do it usually every week. So it's part of a series and that you subscribe to it and then it pushes to your device without you having to do anything. That's really what a podcast is. But notice it's an audio file. Now, Doug does make his show available in audio format, which you can subscribe to on your favorite podcast service and receive. So, I guess you could say it's a podcast that way, but it really isn't. You're just really getting the audio version of the video show he does. It's kind of like getting an audio version of a TV show. It's like take your favorite TV show and you're just listening to the audio of it. Even if you can download just the audio of it, does that make it a radio show? No, it makes it the audio of a TV show. And that's what I see happening here. So I think there should be a separate category for like best poker YouTuber, best poker YouTube show, and then Doug Polk's show should definitely be on there. In fact, it should probably win. Now, it is called the Doug Polk Podcast. If you go on YouTube, you can actually search out Doug Polk Podcast, and that's what his show is called these days. But I think that's branding. I think that's just so people can find it in various ways. Like if they're looking for poker podcasts, then it makes it easier to find. This is not a podcast. It is a YouTube show. In fact, Doug Polk has a big video element to his show. If it was just the microphone in front of Doug's mouth, but he's doing nothing but talking, then you could say, all right, yeah, technically you can watch him on YouTube, but it's really just audio content. It's just you're watching Doug talk. So if you don't need to look at Doug's pretty face with his faux hawk there sticking way up into the camera, if, if you don't need to look at that, you'll get the same thing out of listening as you would out of watching. That's not true. 
there's a lot of editing that goes on in video format where there's a lot of things to look at during all of Doug Polk's shows. So if you were to only listen to Doug Polk's show, well, you can get something out of it. You're missing a lot. It really is a video show. It is not an audio show, even if it's available in audio format. So it shouldn't be competing with audio shows. It's apples and oranges. It's a different product. It's a different type of product. And again, this is no criticism of Doug Polk. I'm not saying Doug Polk doesn't deserve an award or his show's not good. I'm not saying these things. His show is well done. It does deserve to at least be nominated and perhaps win an award. But it shouldn't be in this category. With all the podcasts out there, he shouldn't be hogging a spot. And this isn't his fault. They just don't have a category for best YouTube show. So I have a problem with that. Again, not a problem with Doug, but a problem with the way they did the category here. The last nominee is The Heart of Poker with Kara Scott. Have you heard of that? I bet you haven't. Have you ever listened to one episode of The Heart of Poker with Kara Scott? Have you heard, even, that it exists? I hadn't. Maybe you have if you're a big fan of poker podcasts, but I've never heard of it. So to me, this looks like they picked it because Kara Scott is a well-known name in poker. So it's a pretty girl in poker who's well-known, who has a podcast, and therefore she gets nominated. Not because it's nutworthy, not because it's influential. Like, at least with Doug Polk, you can say when something happens, a lot of times you go over and see what Doug Polk has to say about it, and he immediately covers it. And and there's a lot done by Doug Polk to cover what's going on in poker. I just don't feel it's a podcast. But Kara Scott, I haven't seen or heard anything of this show. So what's this doing here? Just because Kara Scott is well-known, just because she's pretty, doesn't mean that her podcast should be nominated, even if it's good. I haven't heard it. Maybe it's good. I don't know. But unless it's influential, unless people are listening to it in large numbers, this should not be one of the nominees. Now, I am willing to accept that Poker Fraud Alert doesn't get nominated because we don't have a huge audience. We don't have a tiny audience. We have a bigger audience than a lot of these poker podcasts out there, but we don't have a huge audience. We don't have the Doug Polk audience. We don't have the Chip Race audience. So, okay, if shows with a bigger audience are getting nominated ahead of us, that actually makes sense. However, we do things that some other shows don't. In fact, all of the shows don't. For example, do any of these shows have a weekly free roll where you get paid in cash? No, they do not. Do any of these shows have a co-host who actually falls asleep during the show? Not just one co-host, but several co-hosts, all of whom have fallen asleep during the show. I think the only one who hasn't fallen asleep during the show is Brandon. I believe all of our other co-hosts have fallen asleep while on the air at some point. I bet they don't have that either, huh? Do any of these shows go for eight hours? No, they don't. Some of them go like 25 minutes and they're done. So if you want to listen to a long show that covers things in detail, if you want co-hosts that fall asleep while they're on the air, if you want a main host who actually did 
the final two hours of a live show in 2021 with a fever over 102 degrees where he had the worst chills of his life and was actually hitting the mute button so people didn't hear his teeth chattering. Yes, I did that in May of 2021. Instead of shutting down the show, I finished it off for the final two hours with my teeth chattering and with a fever of over 102. I bet none of those did that. I don't think Kara Scott's doing a show with 102 degree fever and with the worst chills of her life. So it would be nice to be nominated. It was confirmed to me that we were at least considered for nomination. According to Eric Dennis at the the GPI, KevMath makes sure that PFA is on the list to consider every year. So thank you, KevMath, for at least making them consider us. But we just never quite get there. But you know what? We do one other thing, in all seriousness. We do one other thing. And that is we will cover all topics and we will dig in and get the truth, even if it requires investigation and even if it requires that we ruffle some feathers, even if it requires that we cover something in depth to where nobody else will to the extent we will. If you want the full true story, or at least what appears to be the true story from everything we can see, you come here. Because we have the goods. And I think you'll notice that the topics I cover, it's a very complete coverage. And it's a coverage that is not afraid to tell you the truth about what's going on. And that's why we have some very loyal listeners. That's why people will sometimes choose this show over the other shows that have a bigger audience or are run by bigger names or who get more big name guests than we do. I don't even try to get guests, but we have some guests, but we're not having like major name guests every week like some of these other ones are, and we never will. But some people listen here because they know they're going to get the truth. They know they're going to get these topics that are intelligently looked at and looked at in depth. And that it's often not just a rehash of stories that are reported in other outlets. We really try to bring you accurate and detailed coverage. So overall, how do I feel here that just about every year we get snubbed? I think it's possible one year we were nominated. I'm forgetting, but how do I feel that we get snubbed? As I said earlier, I don't really care that much. It may sound like I care, but I more care that the ones that got nominated probably, you know, like some of them shouldn't have been. That's, that's what kind of bothers me. If I saw four legitimate podcasts up there that just were bigger than we are, okay. I'm not delusional. I don't think that we're the most influential or biggest poker podcasts in the world. We're not. I don't feel like I'm just someone special that always deserves accolades. I don't think that. I just want to see four nominees up there that are popular and well-listened to and that are really podcasts. And that really describes only one or maybe two of the four from what I can see. Let me know if you've heard of these other two, this new one with Joe Stapleton or this Kara Scott podcast, because I haven't heard of either. But at least the Joe Stapleton one is associated with poker stars. So you can say, well, that right there is a guaranteed audience. But the Kara Scott thing, I don't know. Maybe it's huge and somehow I'm just missing it, but I don't think so. Nothing against Kara personally. I don't have anything against Kara Scott herself. Just 
I don't think if you're going to pick four podcasts to nominate that, I don't think that should be one of them. All right, so continue to scroll down here. Jamie Kerstetter appeared again. See, this is where she deserves a nomination. I don't think the Twitter personality, she deserves it. But best broadcaster, okay, I'll give her that. Jamie Kerstetter, Ali Najad, Jeff Platt, and just Joe Stapleton. All right. Best live reporter. They're talking about reporter of tournament hands, guys who walk around the tournament floor and then report what goes on. Mickey Doft, Timothy Duckworth, Chad Holloway, and Christian Zetsky. Then best media content. This is uh, for photo media, where you're picking the best poker photo, and then they're, you're basically picking who took the photo. So whoever took the photo that was most interesting of the year is going to win this. It's almost like a Pulitzer Prize. Then there's the best media content video. I won't bother to go through those. Fans choice best hand. Yeah, that's that's a dumb one. Best hand. <laughs> Fans choice best trophy. Alan Kessler objected to this. He didn't like the best trophy. This is actually the physical poker trophy they gave. Now, I said what they should have done is they should give a very, very elaborate trophy for the winners of the Global Poker Awards, the GPI Awards, and then nominate themselves for the best trophy in poker for 2023. (laughs) Best trophy. Come on. I agree with Kessler. It's a stupid category. Poker personality. Fans choice. Now, there was a push by Negranu to nominate Kessler. This is one of the few categories where the fans actually choose who gets nominated. And there was a big push to write in Kessler. And I thought he was going to get it, given that Negranu was promoting it. But no, Kessler is not there. I would like to see him there. So the four poker personalities that you can choose from are Jonathan Little, Masato Yokosawa, Johan Gilbert, and Greg Liao. Really? Like, I understand Jonathan Little, and by the way, he listens to this show, and I appreciate that. But these others I don't really know very well. And I have a feeling these other guys just, like, had a bunch of their buddies nominating them. In fact, uh, each of these guys is from a different country. All four of them are a different country. Jonathan Little's from the U.S. Masato Yokosawa is from... Japan. Johan Gilbert is from France. And Greg Liao, who's known as Greg Goes All In, is from Canada. So I think this is probably just popularity contest for these guys posted on their Facebook. Hey, nominate me. That's just my guess. I didn't see any of this. But why wasn't Kessler there? Kessler should have been there. Like Even as kind of a joke choice, though, truthfully, maybe he should win. Or maybe, you know, what? why wasn't Kessler best Twitter personality? Like, he should have been there instead of Kerstetter. Kerstetter already has a nomination. Let Kerstetter have her nomination for best broadcaster and replace her in the Twitter category with Alan Kessler. That's what they should do. Or at least put him in best poker personality. 
But I guess this is by strict voting. So whoever has the most dedicated fans voted them in. That's the problem with the fans' choice thing, is there can be lobbying. That's why we can't have nice things. And this is also why they don't do fans' choice for the other categories. And that's understandable. They have, I don't know who chooses it, but they have certain people involved with making these choices. Now, I want to talk about one other snub before we move on. I want to talk about the snub of Dat Poker Podcast. Notice they were not on the list. How did that happen? How did Dat Poker Podcast also not make best podcast? That's one with Adam Schwartz, Terrence Chan, and Daniel Negreanu. How did that not get on there? I would have been fine if that was on there, but it wasn't. I messaged Adam about it when neither of us got nominated, which, by the way, made me feel better. It was like Misery Loves Company. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, if Negranu's podcast with Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan as well, if, if they couldn't get nominated, then I feel better that I couldn't either. But he said that he doesn't feel bad that they just kind of get on there and riff and that the other podcasts put a lot of production effort. So he understands. But still, like, that wasn't there either, and it was also snubbed previously. They didn't have a 2021 awards because of COVID for the 20, the 2020 uh, categories. So they skipped a year. So this is the 2021 awards for 2020 in 2022. And they had a 2019 awards in 2020, but they did not have a 2020 awards in 2021. 775-4-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can text it, you can call it. I don't care. Whatever way you'd like to get a hold of me. It is time for something, though. It is time for Druffy Time Theater. Hello, can I not just fabish him here? You know, I had an opportunity to make a call. I used to always be picked to make the phone calls. I, I could have called this room in Texas and said, I don't believe you. I, I think you actually got this notice that your certificate has been revoked and you're not being honest with me. Whether I bring a burger in or not, it's not the ma- matter here. It's a, I believe you got one and that councilman said you got one. You're not being honest about it. But we had this dullard call in. This, this Dwight Thornwood, just because he's Southern, he gets to make the phone call. I've been reduced to this intro in this show for 42 seconds each week. Eh, well, on with it. You notice that Colonel Fabersham's getting more and more bitter each week? We may have to fire him. I hate to say it, we may have to fire him. Well, this is Druffy Time Theater. This is a new segment, relatively new segment, where I tell you some sort of story from my past, and sometimes it's about issues I had with companies... Sometimes it's stories just from my life. Usually it doesn't have to do with poker, and it just about never has any relevance to anything presently or anything in poker or gambling. It's just for a little break from our poker and gambling topics, and so you can get to know me a bit better, or at least the old me a bit better. This week on Druffy Time Theater, we're going to talk about American Express and how they attempted to scam me in the year 2004. But they did. So here's what happened. I was on a four-week road trip 
with my then-girlfriend, Miri. It was easy to take four-week road trips then because I did not have any kids, and neither did she. So we could just do what we wanted, and I was a professional poker player living in Las Vegas, and it was an easy thing to do. So we took a a four-week road trip, started from where she lived in the Los Angeles area, and it was to end where she lived in the Los Angeles area because that's where we rented the car. It was a car rental where I had to return the car to the same place from where I rented it because otherwise it's more expensive to do a one-way rental. That's why we didn't finish in Las Vegas where I lived. We just uh, did a round trip all the way back to L.A. So I rented the car from Hertz in L.A. And it was going to be a four-week rental. I got a pretty good deal on it. I forgot what I was going to be paying. But I rented it in a normal way through Hertz's website. And if you remember, the way it works with rental cars is that you don't prepay for rental cars You reserve the rental car. Sometimes you use a credit card. Often not. Often you just uh, do not even enter a credit card. Sometimes there's a place to enter the credit card to just make everything faster. But usually you don't need to enter one to reserve it or pay anything. And then once you get there, then you can... you, You pick up the car at that point, and that's when they either charge you then or they will charge you when you return it. Now, when you pick it up, for sure you have to give them a credit card. When it actually gets charged is typically at the end. And this is important. I'm not just telling you this to extend the story. This is very relevant for later in this whole mess. Now, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. You may already know this, but one of the worst deals in the world is the supplemental insurance you are offered through rental car companies where they will try to sell you some kind of insurance that makes it where you're not responsible for any damage to the car. They'll even sell you a more expensive package where not only are you not responsible for the damage to the car, but if you get in any accident, that they will cover that as well. They'll cover damage to the other side or damage to anyone you harm. And people will pay for this. And it seems like it's not a terrible deal. Because, you know, what is it? 30 bucks a day, 40 bucks a day, depending on what you select. But you think, hey, yeah, this is a little bit extra, but look at all the money I could be out if I get in an accident. So, all right. It's not trivial money, but it's not big money. It's worth it. It's not going to be that much. So, Why not have this coverage and peace of mind, you think? And that's what they count on. They count on you not doing basic mathematics and multiplying that number by 365. Why would you multiply it by 365? Well, because that creates a yearly rate. And if you were to do that, then you would realize what a horrendous deal you're getting. Because what you're really doing is you're buying an insurance policy. So let's say you're paying $30 a day. That is about $11,000 a year. Do you pay $11,000 a year for your auto insurance? Do you? Do you pay anywhere near $11,000 a year for your auto insurance? I bet you don't. So if you do not pay $11,000 a year for your auto insurance, then why would you pay $11,000 a year or more 
for auto insurance, but just pay a prorated version of it for whatever days you have the car? Why would you ever pay that rate? So you need to get out of your head what you're paying per day and get out of your get into your head what insurance should really cost, what auto insurance should really cost. So that's basically what you're doing is buying supplemental auto insurance. Because remember, you still have insurance. Your own insurance company will cover a lot of this. And even if it doesn't, you have to think about what a policy should cost versus what they're charging you. And this is a tremendous markup, obviously, by several times of what it really should cost. So that's why it's never a good deal. And in fact, they give incentives to rental car employees where they get bonuses for selling these because rental car companies make huge money on this. In fact, they especially make huge money because they often will not even fix the damage that happens to a car. So unless it's really big damage, you'll get rental cars with dents and stuff in them all the time. And that's because they don't bother to fix this stuff. And when they do, they can do it in-house very cheaply. So they are charging you a fortune, and often they don't even fix the damage that you do. Now it's up to them whether they want to fix it or not. But I'm saying here that they're charging you way more than an insurance policy really costs on the regular market. And for that reason, you should decline. But that's not the only reason you should decline. The other reason is because a lot of credit cards give you this coverage for free. And a lot of people don't know that. And all you have to do is call your credit card company and ask, do I have the coverage for rental cars for collision, which do you guys cover what my insurance company doesn't? And if the answer is yes, or sometimes they'll cover even without getting your insurance company involved. But either way, you'll get essentially the same coverage that you would have by purchasing one of those expensive plans just by using your existing credit card without any additional fee. And they, of course, don't tell you that. So you should always decline that stuff and don't let them talk you into it. Just say, nope, 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 nope. I don't want anything extra except the base cost to rent the car. Trust me, it's a a horrible deal. How bad is it? Over 20 years ago, they were charging $9 usually per day. Now it's like 30. It was like $9 20 years ago. Now, even with inflation, that shows you how much that's gone up, and even at $9 a day, it was a terrible deal. I remember arguing with someone I knew that worked at a rental car company about how the $9 a day is a horrible deal. And they didn't agree, but I was right. But can you imagine that's gone up by three times? (laughs) So you should always decline that. Well, I did. In 2004, Hertz offered that to me, and I declined it. But I did research beforehand, made sure that the card I was going to use did have that covered because it was going to be a four-week trip. So the chance that something would happen to the car in that four-week trip was a lot higher than if I rented a car for a day or two. So it's very important to know that I was using a card that had that coverage. And if it didn't, I was going to use one of my other cards because I have several cards, even back in 04. So on the American Express card, that I used, I did have that coverage. I verified it with customer service at American Express. I even found it on their website that they had this coverage. So I was 100% convinced that I had such coverage. I booked the car through the Hertz site. I don't believe I needed to give my credit card. I don't know if I entered it or not, but I did whatever I needed to do to reserve it. I showed up to pick it up in LA. I handed them my American Express card, which they ran and put some kind of hold on. And 
when I returned the car, they charged the rental to my card. So it should have been pretty straightforward, right? I should have had the coverage. On day 27 of the 28-day trip, which was in Las Vegas, I was driving around Las Vegas with my then-girlfriend, Miri, and boom, an accident. Not my fault. A guy just hit me. Forgot even how he hit me. I don't know if he sideswiped me or something. It was a minor accident. Nobody got hurt. No one either side got hurt. No car got damaged that badly. But there was some visible damage to the car. It was not damaged enough to where it hindered driving. It was only cosmetic damage. But it was noticeable. It wasn't like a little dent. So I knew that this was going to be the first time in my life that I would ever use that supplemental insurance that I get automatically through my credit card. This was going to be the time I use it. Remember, I declined it from Hertz. Now, the accident clearly wasn't my fault. And I thought, okay, I may not even have to use that because I'll get this guy's insurance to pay. Well, guess what? The guy who hit me was basically broke. He lived in North Las Vegas and he had no insurance. Uh-oh. So his insurance company was not going to pay. I got his info. I wrote down the stuff from his license. But I knew the truth. The truth was this guy was flat broke. He was driving a beater car. He lived in a crappy area of North Las Vegas. He had no insurance. So what was I going to do? I wasn't looking to get him in trouble. I wasn't worried for him, but it's not like I wanted to vengefully get him in trouble. And there was no way I was going to be able to collect anything from him. I could sue him, but why? I, I wasn't going to get anything from this guy. He was broke. So I'm like, you know what? Forget it. This guy, I'm not going to tell him I'm letting him off the hook. And I'll see if I can get him to pay. But I have a feeling he's not going to be able to pay. And sure enough, that's what he told me when I called him. Oh, sorry, man. I just don't have the money. I'm broke here. You know, I, I knew that's what he's going to tell me. And he was probably telling the truth. The guy really looked like he was broke. And from where he lived, just a lot of stuff together, it seemed like the dude was flat broke. So that's what the supplemental insurance is for. In a case where you're hit by somebody where they don't have insurance, or in case the accident is your fault, then supplemental insurance for the collision is supposed to cover any repair to your vehicle. Not the other person's vehicle, but your vehicle. Your rental vehicle, that is. So it was time for American Express to take over. So I returned the car and I told them that there is this damage right here and that someone with no insurance hit my car, but that I'm going to have American Express send them a check. So to get a hold of me with whatever the cost is and send me documentation and I will send it to American Express who will then cut them a check. Now, of course, had that happened, would I be telling you the story right now? No. So obviously that's not what happened from that point forward. So in not too long, I got an email from Hertz stating that they were owed $1,800, which was reasonable given the amount of damage. So I was responsible for $1,800, and I thought it would be something like that. And uh, I called them up and said, again, I'm going to have American Express cover this. I just needed this information from you. Now that you've given it to me, I'm going to start a claim with them and they'll either send you a check directly or they're going to pay me that amount and then I'll send it to you. 
And they said, okay, that's fine. So I called up American Express and I started this claim process. It turned out you don't just call the main American Express phone number. You have to call a separate 800 number for a separate department that handles this. But okay, they've farmed this out to some other department. It seemed like it was farmed out to an in-house department, though. It didn't look like this was farmed out to a third-party company, but it was farmed out to a totally separate department that does only this. I told them everything. In fact, I even gave them the full information of the other driver involved and told them why I couldn't get the money from him. I said, if you guys can get the money from him, great, but it seems like this guy's broke and he had no insurance, but here's all his info. And he's admitted fault. And I think he'll probably admit fault if you call him because when I called him last, he admitted fault. And, you know, so I I want either you guys to get him to pay, which you probably can't, or please send a check to me or to Hertz to cover the $1,800. And they said back, okay, well, thank you for all the information. We're going to process this claim. We'll get back to you shortly. Okay. I wait, I wait. I don't know. Maybe a month later, Hertz is already kind of hassling me. Where's the money? And I said, sorry, still waiting. But to Hertz's credit, they were patient. They said, okay, that's fine. Just let us know when American Express answers. I get a letter from American Express. Dear Todd would tell us, we have reviewed your case and we are denying your payment. Huh? What? Denying? What did I do wrong? I paid for the car with the American Express card. Every penny I paid was with the American Express card. So how could this have been denied? I see that the coverage is there. You guys verified on the phone. It's there. So I called them and I asked them, why was I denied? And they told me that I was denied because when I went to pick up the car, they asked me for a credit card to reserve for incidentals, not to pay for the car, but just in case I return it short on gas or whatever that I needed to give a card for incidentals, and I accidentally gave a different card. That card was never charged, never charged a penny, but they did run it and put a hold on it. So because that other card got involved, they said that this allowed them to have no responsibility and not pay for the damage. (sighs) I wonder, did I screw up that badly? Did I fuck myself on a technicality? At first, I thought maybe this was somewhere in their fine print, as crappy as it was. Because I did involve a second credit card, albeit one that was never charged. So did that invalidate my coverage, even though every penny for that rental was paid by my American Express card? So I acquired their terms. I went to their own website and dug through it and found the official terms of this program as of that date and all the coverages and exclusions. And I found it said that in order to be eligible for coverage of the damage, the collision damage to the car, that the rental must be reserved and paid for completely 
with your American Express card. Okay, it was. Every penny paid for that car was paid on my American Express card. When I reserved it, I forget whether I put no card or if I put the Amex in, but it doesn't matter. At that point, they wouldn't have charged it or put any hold on it anyway. But I met the terms. I met the terms that there was no other card involved with reserving or paying for the car. 100%. So I called them back. And I said, look at this. Look at this term in your own document. It says, reserved and paid for with American Express. I said, that's what I did. This other card was only there in case they needed to charge me for returning it without gas, which I didn't, and they never charged me. So that card was inconsequential, nor does any of your terms say that if you use any card for the incidentals, that that invalidates your American Express coverage. All it says is that reserve and pay for it with your American Express card, and that's what I did. And then their response was, well, can you send us this document? (laughs) I, I, I said, what? They said, can you send us this document? I said, what, your document? They said, yes. I said, you want me to send you your terms of service? They said, yes. <laughs> I said, why don't you get it? They said, well, we, we just want to see what you found. I said, well, okay, it's from your own website. And so I agreed to send it to them, but I quickly took screenshots of me on their website with the date and time and everything so they couldn't try to bullshit that it was old or something. I I thought it was really weird they wanted me to send them what I had found. I think they wanted to make sure that it was current and see if they could worm out of it that way, but it totally was current. So I said, okay, so provided you verify it's current and this is the actual term, will you change your minds and actually give me the coverage here and cut me the check for 1800 And they said, well, we're going to have to go over it, but uh, yes, we'll look at that. And if, if you do meet all the terms, then we will do it. I said, well, I do. I'm going to list you all the terms here and tell me which one that I violated. And I listed them all and they couldn't tell me which one I violated because they're, I hadn't. I had not violated any of them. Every single one of the terms I kept to. But they said they have to review this. So I said, all right. So they reviewed it, and no answer. No answer. I call back. We're still reviewing it. I get contacts from Hertz. What's going on? When are you going to pay us? I said, sorry, American Express is jerking me around here. I'm trying to get them to pay. They're like, well, you know, it's been a few months now. And I go, no, no, guys, I totally understand. They said, well, look, you're, you're going to have to pay. If, if American Express is jerking you around, we understand, but you're going to have to pay at some point here pretty soon and then get it back from them. So I was trying to stall Hertz as long as possible. I will give them credit that they were willing to let this drag for a while without absolutely trying to force me to pay. But I knew eventually that might be the result, that I just have to pay them and then fight it out with American Express. So nothing against Hertz here. But this kept dragging, and they just were not giving me an answer. Finally, I got an answer. I got an answer from the head of the department there, whose name was actually Karen. (laughs) That was before the pejorative term Karen to refer to uh, difficult uh, middle-aged women. But uh, 
she kind of fit the name in that way. <laughs> but anyway, she wrote me a letter saying that, again, they've gone over the terms, they found I was in violation, they will not be covering it. So I called back and asked for Karen. Got Karen on the phone. She sounded exactly what you would picture she would sound like. She sounded bitchy. She sounded unreasonable. She sounded like middle-aged and white. And she was telling me, no, you didn't keep to the terms. I said, which term didn't I keep to? She said, I to- we told you already about using that other card in the middle. I said, show me that term. She says, sir, I know the terms that we have better than you do, and you violated them. I said, okay, then show me. Um, we've already gone over this internally, and we're confident with our decision. I said, show me which term I violated. It says reserve and pay for the car entirely with the American Express card, and that's what I did. So show me where that other card makes this invalid. And she couldn't, but she kept doing double talk with me and was saying no. So I said, I'm not going to let this go. I'm just letting you know I'm not going to let this go. I'll sue you if I have to. But for sure, I didn't violate your own terms as listed on your own website at the time I rented the car. So you're going to need to pay here. I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why a huge company like American Express is doing this over a matter of $1,800. And it's not like this is a million-dollar payment and you're trying to find a way to worm out of it. This is 1800 bucks. This should be a drop in the bucket for you guys. Why are you not just paying this? So she said, okay, okay, we'll look into this one more time. We'll look into this once more and review this once more and let you know. I said, okay, but if you're going to let me know, I want you to give me a concrete reason why and point to a term I have violated. Otherwise, it's not going to mean anything to me. She says, that's fine. We will review it. More time passes, more time passes. I call her up. Uh, Sir, we're very busy here. We're still reviewing. It just dragged and dragged and dragged. So at this point, she wasn't completely saying no, but she also wasn't saying yes. And she was still basically saying, we still feel you were in violation, but we're still looking into it. I kept getting that story, and they just would not ever pay it. I was just being stalled to the end. So we got past four months, five months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, 10 months since the accident. We are now in 2005. Happy New Year, everybody. We're now in 2005. This happened in the summer of 2004. We're now in 2005. And the thing is not handled yet. We're well into 2005. And I get a call from Hertz. Hertz says, Mr. Wattellis, it's been 10 months. This accident occurred in July of 2004. It is now May of 2005. And we don't have our $1,800. So while we can understand and appreciate your situation, we can't wait any longer. You just need to pay us. And whatever your issue is with Amex, you can sue them. You do whatever and get it back. And I said, look, I'm really leaning on them. Can you just give me a little more time? And they said, sir, we can't give you any more time. We've given you 10 months. Uh, We're going to have to send you to collections. So I wasn't mad at them, but now this put an extra reason that I had to get this resolved. So they sent me to collections. 
Sure enough, within about a week, I got a call from a collection agent. This collection agent was different than any other collection agent I've spoken to. I I pay my bills, so I don't typically get collection calls, but I've gotten collection calls erroneously where I paid something and they think I haven't, and they're very obnoxious with me. And I've even had ones where I just forgot to pay a bill and somehow was never notified of it, and then it's in collection, something small like 60 bucks, and then the collection agent is very obnoxious and wants me to pay all these fees to them and all this other bullshit, and I refuse. And so usually I get some kind of trashy person who is working out of their home, usually long before people were working out of their home, and just uh, getting these debts on pennies on the dollar and trying to squeeze as much out of each deadbeat they're calling. And that's what they treat you like as a deadbeat. So that was the typical collection agent that I would speak to in my few dealings with them in my life. But this collection agent seemed nicer and she seemed more refined and she didn't seem trashy. She just seemed like a a normal middle-aged woman on the phone from what I could hear. And she either worked for Hertz or worked with Hertz. This wasn't just a separate collection agency that it was just sold off to. This was uh, someone who had a lot of knowledge of Hertz. She may, as I said, she may have even been a Hertz employee. I don't know. She she claimed she's from a collection agency, but whatever. So I said, okay, let me let me tell you what's really going on. And I told her, and I said, the only reason I'm not paying this is because Amex hasn't totally closed the matter, and I've been trying to lean on them but they're being very difficult. It's been 10 months. I'm going to step up my efforts even more. If I have to, I'll call them every day until I get them to give me an answer on this. And uh, if they finally give me a hard no and an outright refusal to pay, then, then I'll pay you. And then I'll go after them. So I'm not trying to dodge this bill. I really just am trying to get this Amex thing solved first before sending this money. I hope you understand. So I was bracing for the usual collection agent response of, this isn't our problem, send us the money now. In fact, usually collection agents want you to pay right now over the phone with a credit card. They don't even want you to commit to do it tomorrow or the next day or the next day. They want it now. They want it now from you immediately. That's what all collection agents tend to do. I was uh, expecting something like this. I want the works, I want the whole works Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises Of all shapes and sizes And now, don't care how I want it now Yeah, so that's what usually collection agents act like But not this one This collection agent said to me very calmly I think I understand what's happening here She said to me, this person at American Express you're dealing with Would her name happen to be Karen? And I said, how did you know that? And she said, because I've dealt with her before. American Express has a department where their goal is to deny everyone. That's what Karen does. That's her entire job is to not pay these claims where they should be responsible. Her job is to deny as many as they can and save as much money for the company as they can. And she says, I've dealt with Karen before. I've dealt with exactly this situation before. I've dealt with situations similar before, where just they won't pay Hertz, and they should pay Hertz. And 
I have a question for you, she asked. Would you mind giving me permission to call her on your behalf? And I said, oh, you think you could make some progress? She said, oh, yeah. Once Karen hears that I'm involved, she's going to back down and pay it. So do you give me permission to call on your behalf? And I said, yes, (laughs) by all means, yes. About a week later, I got a letter from American Express signed by Karen. We have decided to approve your claim of $1,800 and we'll be sending the check immediately to Hertz Rent-A-Car. Can you believe a collection agent solved this ugly situation? The hero in the story is a collection agent? But yes, the hero in the story was a collection agent who was so familiar with this scam at American Express, in fact, even familiar with the person perpetrating the scam, this Karen, who was the manager of that department, that she had already dealt with this in the past. She told me they fought it out many times in the past before and that Karen has given up trying to fight her because every time this agent would win. This agent knew the industry so well. They had already challenged American Express on this. I don't know if they sued them or if they threatened to sue them or if they they sent their attorneys after them. Whatever it was, American Express in that department became convinced that once that collection agency gets involved, that if they're in the wrong to give up. So when it was just Todd Wittellis credit card holder, they didn't give a crap. They figured that they had the power over me. When they went up against someone who had beaten them before and they knew they were legally in the wrong, they're like, okay, well, the jig is up. Time to just pay. They immediately paid because I got the check, not the check. I got the notification of the check. The check was a Hertz, but I got the notification of the check within a week of when I got off the phone with a collection agent. So the collection agent must have called up and said, hey, Karen, remember me? Remember me? Well, we've got another one. And Karen's like, no, 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 please don't hurt me. Please, 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 please. I'll pay. I'll pay. Just, just leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> so that collection agent definitely had Karen's number there, both literally and figuratively. But that shows you what a freaking scam it was, because if they knew they were in the right, they would have told this collection agent to eat shit. But they didn't. They backed down immediately. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew they were scamming me. But I'm guessing that Karen got some kind of bonus for every one of these that she denied. There must be some incredible incentive there for her to just keep denying these and for her to scratch out whatever kind of flimsy reason to not pay. And this collection agent told me that this is complete bullshit, that I was in the right, like I thought I was. And that for sure, that legally they owe me the money. So all it took was her calling and saying, look, if you don't pay it, we're going to use our resources to make you pay this. And she, having been through this before, Karen's like, nope, okay, I'm not going to fight this anymore. Don't want to fight with you again. So that was when I couldn't win. Maybe ultimately I would have, but I was struggling. I was struggling, and the collection agent took the ball and scored for me. I passed the ball to her, and she just kicked an immediate goal, a goal that I just couldn't score on. 
So thank you to that collection agent who worked with or for Hertz 18 years ago. I guess now it's 17 years ago because it, it dragged into 05. But boy, was I happy that nightmare was over. I mean, yeah, it was only $1,800, but I, I knew I was entitled to it. It was pissing me off. I couldn't believe a huge company like American Express would do this, but they did. They actually had a department that was there to scam people. I don't know if it's still like that, but I had always pictured something different. I pictured that if you have any kind of issue where you qualify, that they just pretty much cut you a check and that the only way they're going to really scrutinize it closely is if it's for like a ton of money, like if you total an expensive car. But for something like 1800 bucks, they're, they're, as long as it looks mostly legit, they're going to cut the check. And mine wasn't mostly legit. Mine was 100% legit. I wasn't trying to pull shenanigans here. I told them everything that had happened. I told them the truth the whole way. I never lied about anything. And by their own terms, I was right. Didn't matter. Tried to scam me. Now, here's a postscript. I had another claim with American Express about two years ago. And it was a very different experience, but it didn't involve a car. But here's a a piece of information that I think you should know. A lot of credit cards have something called a buyer protection program, where if you buy something and then something happens to it, which isn't directly your fault, meaning... uh, if you buy a piece of merchandise and uh, in a fit of rage slam it to the ground, they're not going to cover it. I don't even know about accidental damage. Like, I don't know if you, like, you buy a computer and spill something on it and it stops working. I don't know if it's covered there. But I'll, I'll tell you what happened to me is that we had some outdoor furniture and that rats came in and ate the cover of the uh, cushions. We, we bought a bunch of these covers of cushions and the rats ate them. So we had just bought these. Now, of course, this isn't the fault of the seller of these cushion covers. It's not like uh, it was a matter of, of a warranty. It's not like the covers just ripped on their own. The rats had eaten them. And while that sucks and there was nothing I could have done to prevent this, the rats just uh, showed up and ate the uh, the cushions. Uh There really wasn't anyone I could go after here. It's not like I could make the rats pay me. So I thought I was just screwed. It was very bad timing that the rats got to this new stuff so fast. But uh, I thought that was just the way the ball bounces. And then I was told by a neighbor that American Express and uh, some other cards as well have a buyer protection program where if within 90 days of purchase that something happens to an item you've bought that isn't your fault, that they will cover it. And I said, really? You think that American Express will pay for what these rats did? And the person said, I think so. Seemed too good to be true. So I submitted a claim through a website that was associated with this program, which actually was a third-party company managing it. And they had me send pictures of what the rats chewed up. And so I sent them all this stuff. And I was just waiting for something similar to occur. And no, I got a check in the mail for the full amount of what I had paid for. I couldn't believe it. So that was a benefit I didn't even know the card had. 
So it's something you should check into if uh, something happens to something you buy. Because I really thought there was no chance I could get anyone else to pay for this. I hadn't bought any insurance policy on them, obviously. Uh, This wasn't the fault of the manufacturer. This was just rats eating it. But no. American Express, or at the very least, the company they contracted with to do this, paid me in full. They didn't even pay me a partial thing. They paid me every penny that I paid for these covers. Pretty impressive. So that was the opposite experience. Like, had they said okay, we're not going to pay you for the full thing, but we'll pay you half. Like, I would have still been thrilled because I thought I was out the whole thing. And this wasn't anyone's fault. So that's my battle with American Express trying to scam me. In closing, should you be worried if you are using a credit card to cover you in this way? Maybe that means you should take the ripoff supplemental insurance so you don't have to go through these battles. No, maybe you shouldn't do it with an American Express card. I don't know if Karen is still in charge 18 years later, and I don't know if there's a similar person to Karen who is in charge 18 years later. Maybe they've changed the way they do things. Maybe there could have even been a lawsuit about this. I don't know. Maybe you should avoid American Express, but never take that terrible supplemental insurance. Never. Remember, your own insurance policy will cover it. The reason I didn't put this through my insurance is because it was $1,800. It wasn't worth it because that would put a point on my record for uh, damage. It wouldn't be a point on my license, but it'd be a point on my uh, insurance record. And it would raise my rates to where it wouldn't be worth having them pay because I have a deductible. So like, yeah, I have a $1,000 deductible and then they'll send me a check for 800 and then my rates will go up way more than 800 for the next few years total. So it wouldn't be worth claiming. So that's, that's why I didn't put it through my insurance. But it is important to know that your insurance will cover it. So let's say I totaled the car. Let's say it was my fault. And I get a bill for $30,000. Well, I'm not out $30,000 even without that coverage because my insurance will pay all but the deductible. I'd have to just pay the $1,000 and that'd be it. So your insurance policy will cover it. So all you're doing is you're paying a ridiculous rate per day to save yourself an insurance claim plus a deductible. It's totally not worth it. Not even close to worth it. I mean, it's an order of magnitude more than it should be per day. Maybe two orders of magnitude. So definitely never get that crap. But you should see, I watch people getting it all the time. I've been in line at rental car places and everyone's getting it before me. Then they get to me. Okay, sir, do you want it? No, 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 no. Like I'm just checking no, 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 no on everything. And everybody else is like, oh, yeah, I'll take that. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. I'm like, I can't believe it. But that's a good racket they have going on there. And I just tell them right away. I just say, I don't want any kind of additional charge. No prepaid gas tank. No additional equipment. No supplemental insurance. Nothing. Okay, so moving on to our next topic. I want to talk about the Adele situation. This has gotten coverage in the mainstream news because Adele is such a huge name. So this is not so much of a local Vegas story or a local gambler's story. But this is something that people all over the world have been reading about and hearing about. And usually I don't cover that much mainstream news on this site. 
that is outside of the worlds of poker and gambling, except for COVID. But this one happens to have an intersection, given that it has to do with Caesar's Palace and Las Vegas. And I think it's actually pretty interesting because it does not seem to be what they are claiming. So there does seem to be an element of dishonesty here, which I can't prove, but in my opinion, that what seems to be the case. Adele, obviously a very big name in music and has a lot of fans. She had a planned residency at Caesars in the first few months of 2022. And people were very excited about this because Adele is not someone who is in concert that often. And she has a lot of fans, especially back in the UK where she's from. And when this residency was announced, a lot of her fans wanted to come to Las Vegas, many of them all the way across the pond from England, to see her. This residency was to take place at Caesars Palace. It was a series of weekend shows. It would be two shows per week from January 21st through April 16th. Again, again, it would only be on weekends. So there's 24 shows total. There'd be 12 weekend engagements of two days each. And it was to begin on January 21st, which was now just uh, a day and a half ago. People paid a lot of money for these tickets. There were some people who paid over $5,000 per ticket to see Adele. Caesars, in their heavy promotion of Adele's residency, tried to put out the word that this would not be comped for anyone. They were insisting that this show is so hot that no casino comps were going to be issued. Everybody who would be there would be ones who paid for it. Well, that turned out to be a lie because various people posted to social media their emailed offers of free Adele tickets. But I have to imagine most of them didn't get the best seats or anywhere near the best seats. They probably did give out some really good seats to Adele to the whales. Now, it's possible that Caesars is paying the show for uh, these seats and maybe more of a premium than they usually do. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. I don't know why they would put out the word that they're not comping it only to comp it. I mean, even through offers. I'm not just talking about the big whales. Like, just regular gamblers were posting on Facebook, hey, look at this, free Adele tickets. But that's not really the point of this segment. That's just one dishonest element in this whole thing, but a small one. But the big one has to do with the show itself. So remember, it was supposed to begin... On January 21st, a lot of people were flying in internationally because they wanted to see the opening weekend. On January 20th, less than 24 hours before her first engagement was going to begin on the 21st, she put out notice that not only was that show canceled, but the entire 24-show residency was canceled. And rather than tell you why, I'll let Adele tell you why. I'm so sorry, but um, my show ain't ready. 
We've tried absolutely everything that we can to put it together in time and for it to be good enough for you, but we've been absolutely destroyed by delivery delays and COVID. Half my crew, half my team are down with COVID, they still are. And it's been impossible to finish the show. And I can't give you what I have right now. Um, and I'm gutted, I'm gutted, and I'm sorry it's so last minute. We've been awake for over 30 hours now trying to figure it out and we've run out of time and I'm so upset and I'm really embarrassed and I'm so sorry to everyone that's travelled again. I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, we're on it. We're going to reschedule all of the dates. We're on it right now. Um, and I'm going to finish my show. And I'm going to get it to where it's supposed to be now for you. I'm so, I'm so sorry. It's been impossible. We've been up against so much and it just ain't ready. Just ain't ready. She's gutted. I'm gutted. I'm gutted. Gutted. It's hard to say, actually. Shouldn't I say gutted, but with the British accent? Gutted. There we go. I got it. I got it. But okay, how truthful is this tearful apology? If it sounded like she was crying, you're right. She was crying during the apology. And keep in mind, this wasn't a live stream or a live interview. This was a prepared video she put out. So she could have easily put out a non-crying video, but... She put out this one, which may or may not have had sincere tears. She said at the beginning, I canceled it because my show ain't ready. And then she blamed it on COVID, that half the staff has been out with COVID, that deliveries were missed, and that they've been staying up for 30 hours straight before she posted this video, and that they're just simply out of time. This is the day before the first show was to begin, and that it's just not ready. But is this true? Or is it mostly true? Or is it partially true? Or is it a complete lie? Now let's go back to 2011, way before COVID, of course. She canceled some shows due to throat surgery. And people are like, oh, okay, well, that sucks. That sucks that Adele is getting throat surgery, but all right. If a singer gets throat surgery, it makes sense why they can't sing. So she canceled those dates, never made them up, which... Some people found strange, like, okay, if you need throat surgery and you need to cancel concerts, fine, but why not do makeup dates? She doesn't have to, but why not? Then, six years later, in 2017, again, some of her planned shows did not take place because of supposed throat issues again. And those were canceled, and those did not get rescheduled. So she already has a history dating back almost 11 years of canceling shows fairly abruptly. And people are starting to wonder if she really wants to perform. Maybe she gets stage fright. Maybe she just gets burnt out. Maybe she wants to perform, but when it comes closer, she kind of doesn't want to anymore and has remorse that she agreed in the first place. Maybe this throat surgery thing was BS or partial BS, especially the 2017 version where she just had throat issues. Maybe these are just excuses and Adele just doesn't really care for performing that much. This is not someone who's doing a constant stream of concerts. This is someone who only occasionally does concerts. In fact, that's why people were so excited to be able to see her in 2022. Now, 
some of the skeptics are saying even if half of her team was out, given the very big money behind this production, why couldn't they have hired a replacement team? Even if it's not ideal, but why couldn't they have quickly brought in people who could at least somewhat do the jobs of those who are out with COVID? Why couldn't they do that? Why does it have to be these people? Even temporarily, even just hire some temp employees who are currently not working that have experience in this field for whatever they need them. Why are they just throwing up their hands and saying, oh, well, it's these people or nobody? I'm not saying fire these people. I'm saying just hire some temps to take their place while they're sick. Second, people are perplexed that this announcement came with less than 24 hours notice. They're asking, given the fact that they were traveling from England, a lot of these fans, and she knew that. It's not like it's a shock to her that people are traveling from England to see her in Las Vegas. She was very aware of that. She was very aware that a lot of them spent a lot of money and time doing this. Given that she knows that, she even said that in her statement that people have come from a long way. Why would she cancel it the day before? Why not do it three days before? Because someone said, look, even three days before, we could have just not come. We could have canceled our flights, seen what refund we could have gotten, or at least some kind of credit with the airline or whatever, and cancel the hotel rooms. And while it wouldn't have been ideal, at least we wouldn't have left home. Why are you doing this the day before when everybody traveling internationally has already left? Because if she knew that the show was not going to happen on Thursday, then shouldn't she also have known on Tuesday, even if they were, quote, staying up 30 hours to make it happen? She had to have known three days before the planned show that it wasn't going to make it. So people were skeptical about that. But the biggest form of skepticism came from the fact that she canceled all 24 dates. Now, maybe if this was 24 consecutive days, you could understand. But it's not. Remember, it's a weekend show. So her residency was only on weekends from January 21st to April 16th. The typical length of an Omicron infection with symptoms is about seven days. So how is she claiming that they have to cancel these dates three months from now if people are experiencing Omicron symptoms in January? Everybody who's out right now will come back. There's even some belief that in February, Omicron will have already peaked and there will be many fewer cases. But she's not even waiting to see this. Why would she be canceling dates in April, in January, if it's just about COVID? If it's just about COVID affecting her employees' ability to show up for work? Shouldn't this be something that might resolve in a few weeks? Now, maybe Omicron will last a long time and she'll constantly be out half her staff, but maybe not. Why not wait and see? Why not say, okay, for right now, we are canceling five shows, four shows, three shows, whatever. Remember, it's only... Uh, two per week. So I guess they would do uh, multiples of two. But okay, we're canceling the next uh, three weeks worth of shows. The rest of them we'll see. We're not promising you, but we'll keep you updated. And if we have enough of a staff that isn't sick with COVID, then the show will go on. But she's just wiping the whole thing. Entire residency canceled. People are very, very skeptical about that. Three months out, she's canceling it. Whatever has happened here with Omicron, keep in mind, Omicron didn't really show up in England until December, until mid-December. 
So it's not like this has been going on for months. She's probably had about one month's worth of Omicron infections hitting her staff. So since this is something that only would have affected the past month at worst, then why is she canceling for three months later? In three months, this could be a very different picture. In three months, COVID could virtually be gone. We don't know. Now, maybe Omicron will last longer than we think. Maybe it'll be replaced by a new variant that's just as contagious and breaks through vaccines and gets people sick again, even if they had Omicron before. Who knows? This is all new territory. But it could just as easily go in the way of not being a problem anymore. It could burn itself out and that'll be that. We don't know. So why doesn't she wait? Why, why is she jumping the gun to cancel the whole thing? But why would she be doing this? She's getting a lot of money for this. She was, getting, she was going to be making a fortune from each show. And it's not like it was going to be a tremendous burden because she's only doing two shows a week. It's not even like she said, oh my God, I can't stand being there for three months doing a show every single night. It's going to get so tedious. This is doing 12 weekends where the weekdays she has off and can do whatever she wants. So what could be the reason for this? And if this was so awful to her, why did she agree in the first place? Well, let's go back to what happened in 2011 and 2017, where she seemed to be backing out of these shows under semi-suspicious circumstances. And people are starting to believe that Adele is just someone who does not enjoy performing live. And that she kind of reluctantly does it, or maybe in her mind she wants to, but in her heart she doesn't. So when it comes closer, she panics and finds a reason to cancel. So she can't just cancel and say, hey, what? you know what, guys? Um, I don't really like performing. It makes me uncomfortable. I hate it. So tough luck on you. Go get your refund. Tough luck on you and your plans. She'd lose a lot of fans that way. So she's got to come up with excuses. Her throat, COVID, whatever. I don't understand why the second half of the residency would have been canceled already if it were just COVID. Just doesn't make any sense. Now, how is Caesars handling this? This is supposed to have taken place at Caesars Palace and won't anymore. They were promoting this pretty heavily. This was going to be a big deal that Caesars was going to be getting Adele during the first quarter of 2022. And now they're not. <laughs> So this is what they tweeted on January 20th, the day that she announced that she's canceling her show. We understand the disappointment surrounding the postponement of Weekends with Adele. That's the name of the show. Adele is an incredible artist, supremely dedicated to her music and her fans. Creating a show of this magnitude is incredibly complex. We fully support Adele and are confident that the show she unveils at the Coliseum at Caesars Palace will be extraordinary. Then they did a little Q&A in the next tweet. Question. I have a future hotel reservation for my original event weekend. Can I get a refund? Answer. If you booked at Caesars Entertainment Destination through our website or call center, your reservation may be canceled with a full refund. May be canceled? Doesn't sound that good. Question. I flew here for this event. Can I get reimbursed for flight and hotel expenses? Answer. Please check with the airline for their cancellation policy. Yeah, that's real helpful. Guests holding a hotel reservation at a Caesars Entertainment Hotel in Las Vegas on January 21st or January 22nd may cancel for a full refund. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> is that a kick in the ass or what? Only the 21st and 22nd. No other dates. 23rd? Nope. 20th? Nope. I mean, how bad is it that on the freaking 20th you can't get a refund? If you're coming from England, are you going to stay the night on the 20th if you've got tickets for the 21st? Or are you going to hope you get there on time during the day on an international flight that takes like 10 hours? Are you going to hope that makes it on time so you don't miss your expensive Adele show? What do you think you're going to do? Come in the night before the day of. I think you know the answer. So anyone coming in the night before to see Adele on January 21st, tough luck. They don't get the 20th back. They only get the 21st. (laughs) Just because she's supposed to perform on the 21st and 22nd, those are the only dates you're getting back, according to this tweet. That's insane. Now, what would be a good policy here? Let's say they came to me and said, Todd, we know that we commit a lot of fails here at Caesar. We, we do a lot of dumb things, and we know you laugh at us on your show a lot. Can you guide us here? What should be our refund policy? Because we don't want a bunch of people who just don't want to come for other reasons to get refunds that are in violation of our usual refund policy, even if it has nothing to do with their, uh, the, the Adele concert. So I would say, okay. How about anybody who can show proof that they had tickets to Adele can get a refund to any reservation around that time? I don't care if it's January 21st, the 22nd, the 20th, the 23rd, the 24th, the 19th, anything in that time, they can cancel for a full refund. How about that? If they can show they have Adele tickets. And if they can't, then tough luck. Because if you're coming from England, you already have tickets. This show is selling out. It was super popular. So you either had tickets already, in which case you can't see the show, in which case you probably don't want to come to Caesars from England. And then you should get your entire refund for everything you paid to stay at Caesars. Not just the 21st and 22nd. And this covers everything. People who don't have Adele tickets, well, they have to adhere to the normal refund policy because this doesn't affect them. If they have Adele tickets, no matter where they're coming from, give them a full refund anytime like four days before or four days after or any period in between. Very simple, right? No. (laughs) No, they're not doing it that way. However, if you don't have a hotel reservation at a Caesars property, it may even be worse because people are complaining that non-Caesars properties are giving a huge middle finger and saying, tough luck, you do not get any refund. If you're not within the cancellation period, which these people weren't anymore, tough luck for that first weekend. You're just going to be out the money. That's what some people are complaining about on the internet about other properties. Because the other properties, they don't want to do anything because as far as they're concerned, this isn't their fault. The other properties are saying, look, we know you're coming here for Adele, but Adele's not our show. We don't gain from you going to Adele. That's Caesar's thing. That's our competition. So if you want to stay here, cool, but you're going to be subject to the same rules as everybody else. You're still welcome to come, but if you don't want to come, we're not canceling your reservation if the cancellation period is now too late. So... As you can imagine, some of Adele's fans are furious about this and feel that at the very least they should have been given a few days notice because, as I said, just three days notice could have prevented 
any of these people from flying in and at least wasting a flight all the way from England to Las Vegas to see a concert that's not happening. The Daily Mail, I'm a big fan of the Daily Mail. It's a UK website. Some say it's kind of tabloidish, but I like it because they just put out all the details. They don't give a crap. And they cover a lot of American news, too. I know this isn't American news only. It's also British news, obviously. But they cover a lot of solely American news, and they do it a lot better in many cases than the U.S. media does because they don't give a shit. They're not trying to cover it with any particular slant. They're not trying to omit details that makes uh, one of the parties look bad. They, they just cover everything. Now, admittedly, they have a little bit of a right-wing slight, but not that much. They are a good source to read if you want the full story on something. Anyway, this obviously is political, this story, and it is very UK-relevant. Let me read you some of the tweets that the Daily Mail posted from Adele fans that are very angry about this. These are people who I believe are all in England. This is from Sweet Dreams 83 on Twitter. She's too unreliable. I used to be a massive fan and saw her in Wembley, but since the release of 30, there's been something putting me off, uh, off her and I can't put my finger on it. I have tickets to Hyde Park, but if it's cancelled, I honestly wouldn't bat an eyelid. Meh. That was from Sweet Dreams underscore 83, a dude. Here's a G-Unit, who I believe is a girl because she's Heefchick, A-T-A-F-I-C-H-I-K. I I guess it's Heefechick. A few years ago, my daughter and I traveled to London for her final show at Wembley, canceled as we got to London as Adele had a bad throat. It never did reschedule. Enjoy Vegas anyway. It's amazing. That was one who's complaining about the throat issues in 2017. Slim Belushi, who's at Amazon Can, I think another female, wrote this. Adele seems she has a bad case of stage fright. I don't buy her excuse at all. Here's Carl Rayner. That's K-A-R-L underscore R-A-Y-N-O-R on Twitter. She's done this before. She's let down. She's canceled Blackpool England and never appeared again. Never rescheduled because she got too big for little old Blackpool. And he put a angry face. Queen Me, that's Queen M-E-1010. A day before, girl, just say your throat hurts. Then uh, we have someone named Christian Harstad. K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-H-A-R-S-T-A-D. Lies. Are you seriously telling us that the big companies behind these shows couldn't uh, pick up a phone and get extra staff to work with Adele? Look at her, pretending to cry, even left off her makeup to make it look real. Bet she won't refund tickets, hotels, flights, etc. Uh, he raises a good point. Marcos A3CFC said, Doesn't make sense, does it? 24 concerts cancelled in Las Vegas when perhaps only the first few weeks could have been postponed. More going on here than people are being told. Yeah, I agree, Marco. Tim Hill. A moment ago, I felt... A moment ago, I felt sorry for Adele, but I'm not buying into it now. Poor fans. Cancellations are written into her set list. Wembley, now Vegas. What about Hyde Park? Putting on a show like this in a pandemic without a plan B wasn't strategic. That's a good point, Tim. Tim and some others believe that this show should have gone on, even with the COVID issues that may or may not really be happening. Why? Because... 
this is not a show that requires amazing special effects or acrobatics or anything else that really requires a skilled staff to make happen. So if one of these shows in Vegas, like O, for example, had half the staff missing, you could say, okay, with everything that's going on in O, there would be no way to put this on without people very experienced with the show itself. And if half of them are out, it's kind of screwed. You still wouldn't cancel it for three months, but it would be understandable why to cancel it right away and why there really couldn't be much of a contingency plan. But this is just Adele singing. That's mainly what this show is. People are coming there to see her sing, not for a spectacular Vegas show, but to see one of their favorite musicians sing. Someone even said in one of the comments she could have just come out in sweats and just did a very minimalist show where she just sings and they all would have loved it, which is probably true. Because they're not coming to see amazing sets and stunts. They're, they're coming there to see a singer perform. And while I'm not familiar with what the content of this show is supposed to be, I believe it is mostly just singing. So she really doesn't need a very advanced staff there that is really, really knowledgeable about everything there. And what Tim Hill is saying here is that they could have easily had a plan B in case a bunch of people get sick from COVID because COVID has been around for two years. It's not like beginning of 2020 when this hit us all out of nowhere and they were like, what? We've never really dealt with this before in our lifetime. Not, not anymore. We've had two years experience. So how do they not have a plan B knowing that COVID has been around for the last two years and at any point we could have these uh, flare up from different variants? Andrea, that's Andrea Lola 1ST, like Andrea Lola first. This is what she said. Well, she's sorry. It's not good enough letting everyone down that old chestnut. <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> this is so British. COVID has come in handy this time. Think it was a sore throat at Blackpool? They keep focusing on Blackpool. I guess that was where she canceled in 2017. So they're not even believing the sore throat thing anymore. This is casting doubt on the sore throat thing. They think that 2011 may have been real, but the 2017 thing is real suspect about the th sore throat. She's like, oh, oh, yes, I had throat surgery. I guess I can use this excuse from now on. Oh, we've got COVID, too. I have excuses galore as to why I can cancel my show. This was where Adele promised a free meet and greet to a fan, actually talking to this fan on FaceTime, which is now not going to happen. Yeah, thank you. And, like, us... As long as you remember, Seth, I, I gave you the space so you can breathe. Like in my distance, so you'll be free. I hope you find the missing piece to bring you back to me. Like, I've been crying to that lyric this whole past six months. Like, seriously, you helped a lot, a lot. And that's why we forgave you anything. You have done a lot for us, and we're so thankful. Like, I, I really don't mind coming back from Mexico all the way back. Yeah, yeah, I will. I promise you I will. And thank you. For the record, it's the best thing you ever done, and I'm really thankful for for you releasing that and help us heal and help. And I hope it really helped you heal as well. Well, I'm thankful for you being so graceful to me. I really appreciate that and telling me your story. And I, I said to Rose, that's my manager right next to you. Yeah, yeah, I know she is. So I know she is. This weekend of shows where people have arrived, when you come back, whenever that is, we'll do a meet and greet for free. And and you can tell me. Hopefully, you'll be together or not. I don't. Okay, so that was her telling a fan that uh, they'll do a free meet and greet for those that came all the way from somewhere far away. This guy came from Mexico. 
and found that this wasn't happening. I don't know how he got her on FaceTime, but somehow he did. And that's what she promised. But who knows if that's going to be held up. So who knows what the real story is here. A lot really think that she just is going to keep doing this for as long as her career goes, and then she'll just stop having concerts entirely. She doesn't need concerts. She's big enough where she can just keep releasing albums, and that'll be that. I mean, she'll do just fine releasing albums with that concert. She can even say eventually that she just doesn't enjoy performing or performing makes her nervous or gives her anxiety, whatever it is. I mean, a lot of people can relate to it. There's a lot of people, just regular people who have uh, big-time stage fright that you put them in any kind of uh, public speaking environment and they freak out. And these are people who act normally and don't have any kind of social anxiety otherwise, but they have a very hard time performing. So a lot of people can relate to this. And even if you don't have performance anxiety, you can at least understand why others would. And just because you're a talented singer and just because you're famous doesn't mean that performing comes that naturally to you. So I think at this point in her career, given how big she's gotten, that she can just say, well, this is something I've always had a hard time doing. It makes me very nervous. And I just don't want to do it anymore, but I'm going to keep making albums. I'm sure her fans will understand. Big fans tend to be very understanding when their idols have issues. In fact, sometimes too understanding. Sometimes way too much understanding. But it's better than having these shows and canceling them. I, I would be surprised if this is exactly what it appears to be on the surface. I'd be surprised if they really had to cancel all three months because they just couldn't get it going because of all the COVID. Okay, maybe for this weekend, maybe for next weekend. Why for April? Like, let's say COVID has a massive downswing to where it pretty much disappears by mid-February. Probably won't happen, but let's say by mid-February, it's pretty much not a thing. It's pretty much gone. And her whole staff gets healthy and nobody's sick. Do you think she's going to say, okay, it's back on? No. Why why would she cancel this so far in advance? It makes no sense to me. Something's up here. I agree with the skeptics. Next segment. This is something we haven't done in a while, but it's something that several people have requested especially Desert Runner. Desert Runner loves this segment. This is his favorite segment, I think. And uh, even though I'm not doing the exact topic he was hoping I would do, I'm still going to do a topic, and I think that'll be good enough. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History You like my audio production skills there? Did I do a good job? I had to sacrificed about 10,000 crickets to make this thing. I had to go to a pet store and buy 10,000 crickets and release them in my backyard and record this at just the right time. But the problem was there wasn't enough food for them and they died off and it was a mess. But I I got this 11-second intro out of it, so I hope you can forgive me for the murder of 10,000 crickets. Anyway... This week's Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history episode is about the Flamingo. And this is something we had to do, because how could you have a Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history segment on your show 
without covering the hotel in Vegas that arguably has the most history of any hotel in Vegas. You may think you know the story of the Flamingo because you watched that movie Bugsy about Bugsy Siegel. But let me tell you, you don't know because there were a number of things in that movie that were inaccurate. And there was a lot it just didn't say because it was not meant to be a historical piece or a documentary. It was entertainment. So they took some dramatic license as often happens in Hollywood. The Flamingo is the oldest hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. In fact, it has been the oldest hotel on the Las Vegas Strip for the past 15 years. In 2007, when the frontier was demolished, it got that title. It is also the last remaining casino on the Strip that is still in operation that was operating in 1949. So every hotel that was operating on December 31st, 1949 on the Las Vegas Strip is now gone, except for the Flamingo. The Flamingo has a lot of history of ownership changes, obviously with organized crime involvement and uh, some other interesting things about it that I'm going to tell you that you may not be aware of. The Flamingo site was actually bought in uh, very early, the early 1900s, by one of the first settlers of Las Vegas named Charles Squires. Not sure exactly when he got it, but Las Vegas has existed since 1905, so maybe somewhere around there. In 1944, A woman named Margaret Folsom bought it from Charles Squires for $7,500. Now, we're going to have to keep inflation in mind during this segment several times because I'm going to keep giving you amounts that obviously wouldn't correspond to today's dollars. So $7,500 in 1944 would be about $119,000 right now. So while that's a lot more than 7500 that's not a massive sum of money. You hear someone buys a plot of land for 119 k you don't go, ooh, wow, Mr. Moneybag there. You go, okay, 119 k In fact, it's probably not that valuable for something that uh, the land sells for only 119 k But that's what she paid. But keep in mind, this was 1944 Las Vegas, not the Las Vegas trip of today by any means. So that was... Uh, the second owner, but of course there was nothing there yet. It was just the land. Then it was sold to Billy Wilkerson. Billy Wilkerson was the owner of the Hollywood Reporter. He also owned nightclubs on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, such as uh, Cafe Trocadero, Ciro's, and LaRue's. So he was the next owner. And then he also bought uh, 33 more acres. And he decided to build a hotel there. It was actually Wilkerson who decided to call it the Flamingo. He did not, or he he wanted the Flamingo to be a luxurious hotel. 
He called the hotels that were on Fremont Street, which is downtown, of course, quote, sawdust joints. He found those hotels to be kind of small and trashy. He wanted a big, luxurious hotel. He wanted a spa, a health club, a showroom, a golf course, a nightclub, a high-end restaurant, and a casino. However, he had a little problem. What was going on in 1944? In 1945 is when he bought the additional acreage. What was going on in 44 and 45 in the U.S.? Hmm. Now, I was not around to remember this. In fact, I was quite some time from being born. But my parents were around, just barely. My parents were around. Yes, World War II. And because of World War II, it was difficult to acquire a lot of the building material because a lot of that had to be used for the war. So Wilkerson all of a sudden noticed that everything was very, very expensive. It's kind of like buying anything under the administration of Joe Biden, but much worse. And he was about $400,000 short of what he needed to build everything he wanted to build. So this is a big problem. What was $400,000 in 1944? Well, that was a pretty penny. It was $6.3 million. Again, as far as building a hotel, that's not a tremendous sum of money. But again, we're not talking about modern Las Vegas. We're talking about 1944 Las Vegas. So Wilkerson just did not have that 400 k that he needed to be able to build all this, according to the estimates. And it's not that he needed $6.3 million in today's money or four hundred k in those days' money. That was what he was short. So where does Bugsy Siegel come in? Well, Bugsy Siegel was in Las Vegas in late 1945. And he thought, hey, I'd like to have a casino. And he bought one. Was it the Flamingo? No. He bought the El Cortez, which is still standing today, for $600,000. However, he was trying to expand the El Cortez to be a very big resort. And guess what happened? Las Vegas city officials were very aware that Bugsy Siegel was a criminal. And they knew all about his antics back home. And they said, you know what? We don't want Bugsy Siegel operating a major hotel in this city. So Las Vegas city officials said, no, you can't expand. This is all you can have. You can have the El Cortez, but you're not expanding the El Cortez. So Siegel said, hmm, you know, not all of the Las Vegas area is the city of Las Vegas. Did you guys know that? That was true then, that's true now. When you go to the Las Vegas Strip, you're not in Las Vegas. No, 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 no. You're in a town called Paradise. I kid you not. It's a town called Paradise. Look it up. It is not Las Vegas city limits. Las Vegas Metro PD has an agreement with Clark County to patrol there, but it is not the city of Las Vegas. And Las Vegas city ordinances do not apply to the town of Paradise. The town of Paradise is not a city. It doesn't have a mayor. It's just Clark County. 
Paradise is just describing where it is. There is no paradise government. There's a Las Vegas government. There's no paradise government. So that was the case also back in 1945. And Siegel knew that Las Vegas city officials were hostile to him. But if he could just buy a casino that's outside of Las Vegas, then there's nothing they can do. So he started hearing about Wilkerson's financial problems. And Bugsy said, hmm, why don't we buy a stake in this project? So Siegel went to Wilkerson, didn't really say who he was, just said he was a businessman. And he directly bought a two-third stake into the Flamingo. So he became the majority owner. And then he took over the final phases of construction. And he got other mobsters like Meyer Lansky involved. The costs of building the Flamingo kept skyrocketing and Siegel wasn't happy about it. In fact, he once mentioned to the builder that he had doing it, uh, Del Webb, who was well-known at the time, that he personally killed 16 men in his lifetime. And then Webb was very, very scared and thought that Bugsy was threatening to kill him. And uh, in order to calm him down, Bugsy said, don't worry, we only kill each other, referring to mobsters. Bugsy had Webb build a secret ladder in the presidential suite on the property where he would frequently stay. The secret ladder led all the way down to an underground garage that was not known to be there. And he actually paid a chauffeur to be there 24-7, waiting with a limo to drive him away. That was that guy's entire job, was to sit there with a limo just in case Bugsy needs to escape. So this would be either if uh, someone was coming after him or if the law was coming after him, he had an escape plan where they think they have him cornered in his room, but in his hotel room is a secret ladder that he could climb all the way down to the underground garage and a chauffeur's waiting right there with a limo to speed out of there. Must have led to the surface in some way. And no one would know what happened. They would just think Bugsy's quiet. He's hiding quietly in the room, not opening the door. And then they finally bust it open and there's no Bugsy. That never happened. But just in case it happened, he had it ready. He didn't end up living too much longer anyway because he was murdered, just not in his uh, room like that. When did the Flamingo open? It opened on December 26, 1946. It was advertised as the West's greatest resort hotel. It had 105 rooms, and it was the first luxury hotel on the Strip. It was four miles from downtown Las Vegas, and still is. And that was the first place on the Strip that was a big resort. Before that, nothing like it. Now, Bugsy Siegel didn't got he didn't get to see the Flamingo very long. He got to see it until June twentieth, nineteen forty seven, less than six months after he'd opened it, and then he was murdered. So he never got to see what it really became after that. The dangers of being a mobster, I guess. He did change the name of the Flamingo 
shortly before his death on March 1st, 1947, to the fabulous Flamingo. Now, what happened once he was dead? Well, Moe Sedway and Gus Greenbaum of the uh, El Cortez took position of the hotel. And they changed a few things. See, Bugsy wanted it to be a luxury hotel. He didn't want to cater to the average man. But they changed the Flamingo after Bugsy's death to become more of a regular resort that both had nice suites and amenities for rich people and just regular rooms and regular services for the average person. They provided accommodations that were very, very nice for the late 40s. All of the rooms were air-conditioned, which wasn't very common. Can you imagine how brutal it was staying in Vegas in 1947 in a non-air-conditioned property in the summer? (laughs) But that's the way it was in most of the hotels then. Uh, They built gardens around it. They built nice swimming pools. In fact... The swimming pool of the Flamingo, you may have noticed, seems nicer than the hotel itself. And that's because the hotel got run down over the years just by getting old. And pools don't get run down the same way. So it's not a super lavish pool scene compared to what was built at some other places later on, much later on. But uh, it's still a pretty nice pool scene. And in fact, uh, my grandmother who lived through the late 90s. That was her favorite thing to do when she would travel to Las Vegas with our family. She would go to the Flamingo and hang out by the pool. And back in those days, they they weren't checking keys or anything. So even though she wasn't staying there, uh, we would drop her off at the Flamingo and she would go to the pool. That was her favorite thing to do there. She wasn't a gambler. So when she did go, she just wanted to hang out at the Flamingo pool. And this was all the way until she was very old she still enjoyed the flamingo pool i don't believe she went there when it opened in those days i i can't be sure and i obviously can't ask her anymore but uh she lived on the other side of the country so probably not but maybe she had maybe she took a trip there at some point uh in those days but the flamingo was the first vegas hotel to focus on other elements for travelers besides gambling because before the flamingo everything in vegas was about gambling and they really did not have anything else going on if you weren't gambling there's no point to go to vegas but then the flamingo changed everything they had major headliners performing ones who didn't come down with a mysterious sore throat or covid and not perform they had uh, Sammy Davis Jr., they had uh, Lena Horne, the Mills Brothers, Alan King, Pearl Bailey, Spike Jones, Sophie Tucker, a lot of big names from those days. There was an entertainer named Rose Marie, who was one of the first entertainers there, actually uh, hired by Bugsy Siegel. And she remained a performer at the Flamingo for a very long time. Rose Marie actually lived all the way to the end of 2017. She lived to quite an old age. She died at the age of 94. So when she began 
performing there in 46. She was only 23 years old, but she lived all the way to 94, and she performed uh, many times at the Flamingo, even as she got much older. I don't know when she stopped performing there. In 1953, they decided that they're going to do renovations already, even though it had only been six years. They did renovations and remodels. And uh, they built a new entrance with a pink neon sign and a neon-bubbled champagne tower sign with pink flamingos on the top was installed in front of the hotel. In 1960... It was sold for $10.5 million to a group. This group was uh, led by Morris Landsberg and Daniel Liffer. I don't really know either of them. However, these two were also known to be mobsters. It remained roughly the same for a while after that. They didn't really change anything after buying it in uh, 1960. By the way, $10.5 million in 1960. What do you think that was? That was $99 million. That is what $10.5 million in 1960 was. The big change occurred in 1972. It had sold five years prior to that to Kirk Kikorian in 67. But uh, Hilton bought it from Kikorian five years later. And... Two years later, in 1974, he renamed it the Flamingo Hilton. Now, I bet that you know the Flamingo best as the Flamingo Hilton. Unless you are much older than I am or much younger than I am. Because it was the Flamingo Hilton between 1974 and 2000. So I remember when my parents would bring me to Las Vegas in the 70s and the 80s that we would drive by the Flamingo Hilton. In fact, this was notable to me because we often stayed at the Las Vegas Hilton. So I said, oh, this is another Hilton here, except this is the Flamingo one. I even asked my parents, what is the difference? Why is this the Flamingo Hilton? What is Flamingo? And they said, oh, it's just a different theme, and it's in a different location, but they're both Hiltons. They told me the Las Vegas Hilton was a nicer property, and that's why they chose to stay there. They, They weren't like Hilton loyalists, but they just were staying at the Las Vegas Hilton a lot of times when they would go in the 70s and 80s. So I always saw the Flamingo Hilton, and I bet that's kind of how you got to know it. Because if you think about it, those 26 years from 1974 through 2000 probably encompassed a lot of your childhood or young adulthood when you got familiar with Las Vegas. So for me... I don't even remember 1974. I was alive, but I don't remember it. So starting from about two years later when I started to remember things, uh, when I was in Vegas with my parents as a kid, I would notice the Flamingo Hilton. And until I was uh, 28 years old, that's the way it was. But you probably noticed in late 2000 that the the Flamingo Hilton changed to be called Flamingo Las Vegas. In fact, I still talk to people who call it the Flamingo Hilton. And when I tell them it's not the Flamingo Hilton, they're surprised. That's how ingrained it is in people's minds that even more than 20 years later, people still think it's the Flamingo Hilton when it hasn't been since late 2000. 
So in uh, 1998, what happened was that Hilton decided to spin off its uh, gaming properties to something called Park Place Entertainment. And Park Place Entertainment had a licensing deal to still use the Hilton name in Flamingo Hilton. But then two years later, they said, you know what, F it. We don't need that licensing deal. We're just going to call it the Flamingo. So that's when the change occurred. Park Place Entertainment, by the way, later became Caesars Entertainment. And you may say, oh, so that's Caesars. And I shall say, no. Park Place Entertainment has been defunct since 2005. Why? Because Harris Entertainment purchased Caesars Entertainment in 2005. And then the property officially became part of Harris Entertainment. You say, well, wait a minute. There's no Harris Entertainment now. And I'll say, yes, you're right. Because they went back to being called Caesars Entertainment Corporation, noticing that Caesars was their flagship property, so they didn't really want to be called Harris anymore. So that was that weirdness with a merger between Harris and Caesars that took place in 05. Uh, Harris was actually the one that bought the World Series from Binion's in 2004. And the reason it moved over to the Rio in 2005 was because of this merger. So it remains a Caesars property to this day, as you probably know. It's still just called the Flamingo. In 2018, they did a major renovation because, let's face it, the Flamingo was pretty much a dump by that point. It was very old. Obviously, it was more than 70 years old in 2018. And while there were some renovations along the way, most of it was still pretty damn old. So they did a $90 million makeover and uh, upgraded 3,500 rooms there. I believe all of them. And they upgraded the rooms kind of in a retro way to give a nod to the original resort. They still have a uh, little garden courtyard, which is in front of the Flamingo. You can go there. I once walked it with Benjamin. He thought it was moderately interesting. They have uh, koi, turtles, ducks, other birds. They once had penguins, but they don't anymore. And it has like a tropical theme to it. That's why they uh, opened that uh, Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville on property. And uh, that courtyard also has, or at least had, I last time I was there, it was still there. It has a, a little tribute to Bugsy Siegel, despite his criminal background and his murderous behavior. They actually have a bust of Bugsy Siegel there memorializing him, which I always find to be kind of funny. It was supposed to be like a family resort and they are uh, memorializing a murderer just because... He was the one who originally opened it. They have a theater called Bugsy's Cabaret, which, of course, is named after Bugsy Siegel. They also have a flamingo habitat on the flamingo property, which actually does feature real flamingos. I showed Benjamin that as well. Now, let's talk about the 
movie Bugsy, which came out in 1991, where uh, Warren Beatty played Bugsy Siegel. And uh, a lot of the movie was about the construction of the Flamingo. But since that topic isn't particularly exciting, they needed to play up the uh, the mob aspect and all of that. And in the movie, Bugsy is killed after that first opening. In fact, I remember when I saw it, I, I noticed that. I go, wow, he got killed uh, right after the thing opened. But that turned out not to be true. He actually lived for six months after it was opened, unlike what was depicted in the movie. And uh, there were other details that were changed around in the movie that were not uh, correct. I don't have them in front of me now, but you know, it was dramatized. It wasn't exactly what had occurred, especially the murder, which uh, I guess they wanted it to be more dramatic that right after he bought it, that uh, right after he opened it, that he got killed. Oh, another thing that, that was uh, inaccurate was that he originated the flamingo idea and that has gone around over the years that Bugsy was the one who came up with it because he liked flamingos but that wasn't why (laughs) he didn't come up with the idea it was actually uh, Wilkerson the previous owner who came up with the flamingo name so it was also something inaccurate in the film the television series Vegas has I'm talking about the one from uh, late 70s with Robert Urich. The Flamingo Hilton is in the opening montage of Vegas. So that's something very prominent there that you probably remember from that theme song. What is going to be the future of the Flamingo? Well, it has a very good location. Right now it is uh, directly connected to the Link outdoor shopping area kind of shopping and restaurant area so if you walk through that link area that uh, there is an entry into the Flamingo there and it's right there on the corner of Flamingo and Las Vegas Boulevard which is why it's called the Flamingo though actually on the corner is the former Barbary Coast which is uh, now called the Cromwell of course so it's not right there, but it's it's very close to that corner. And that's it's a very big corner. And Caesars owns that entire block. They didn't originally, but they bought up what was there so they could own that block. So it's going to be something that Caesars runs. But uh, will they eventually wreck it and build something else in its place? Very possible. In fact, those plans were there in the 2000s. And the plans were wrecked by the 2008 crash. So if you remember, as I, as I talked about, the Cromwell was once the Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast existed through 2007. It had nothing to do with Caesars. But Caesars essentially traded it for... Uh, other properties and acquired the Barbary Coast in 2007 because what they wanted to do was wreck everything on that block on that side of the street and build a mega resort that would become their new flagship property. So they bought the Barbary Coast 
And then they bought some other small casinos in the area, like O'Shea's. So they really would have access to everything. At the moment, they changed the name to Bill's Gambling Hall and Saloon. But Bill's was not expected to be a long-term property. It was expected to just be there until they wreck it and the other properties nearby. But they were, And they also got the Imperial Palace. That was another important uh, acquisition to have that block. And what was planned was to wreck Bill's, formerly Barbary Coast, O'Shea's, Imperial Palace, Harris, and Flamingo to wreck that entire area and build a mega resort. That was the plan. But then came the 2008 financial crash, and Las Vegas was struggling big time. Las Vegas was hit harder than most cities in the U.S. So that put all that on hold, and by the time Vegas recovered a few years later, they decided not to do this. They decided just to continue operating everything as they had it, with the exception of Bill's, which was then changed to the Cromwell. They closed it, they did a massive renovation and changed it to a boutique-type hotel called the Cromwell. I know we're getting away from the Flamingo, but I was going to say that the Flamingo, they were going to wreck it. You may say, oh, they're never going to wreck it because it's historical. No, they they were going to. In 08, it was supposed to be wrecked, and it didn't happen. And most people don't know this. This has been kind of lost to recent history because it didn't happen, and it never got that close in that they had not actually started the project yet. But they bought these properties in 07 specifically for this reason. Just people didn't really know about it. People just noticed Caesars took over these properties, but okay, whatever. You know, Casinos get bought and sold all the time, so that wasn't that significant. But I was living right there in Vegas, so I, I was watching Vegas news very closely, and this was going to be a big thing that they were going to wreck all those hotels, including the Flamingo, and build a mega resort there that was supposed to be nicer and more prominent than Caesars Palace across the street. They were not going to touch Caesars that was across the street, but they were going to, instead of having all these different uh, small resorts, they were going to have two really big resorts in Caesars Palace and this new one. And then they'd also have Paris and Bally's and Planet Hollywood and the Rio. That, That was the plan. But it got abandoned. But might they wreck the Flamingo in the future and build something there? Might they do something similar to what they were talking about back then? Yeah, they easily could. Depends what the market is and how much they feel that is justified. History doesn't matter that much in Vegas as far as properties, and that's why Flamingo is the oldest property on the Strip. If they didn't wreck old historical hotels there, then there would be a lot more around that were there in the first half of the 1900s. There are no hotels left that were there in the first half of the 1900s, except for the Flamingo on the Strip. So it is the oldest Strip hotel, and has been for 15 years. The Flamingo is typically the cheapest, or one of the cheapest, of the Caesars properties in Vegas. Usually when you look at the Caesars website, the prices are cheapest at the Rio, which soon is not going to be managed by them at all, and Flamingo, and Harris. Those are usually the three cheap properties. 
Caesar's Palace tends to be the most expensive. Sometimes the Cromwell, but usually Caesar's Palace. So if you want a fairly cheap room in a good location, which is a Caesar's Rewards property, then you usually want either the Flamingo or Harris. However, having stayed at both, I stayed at uh, Flamingo in late 2018, and I've stayed at Harris a bunch of times. I will tell you Harris is superior. Harris renovated as well. And the difference is that Harris does not have small rooms and Flamingo does. There's a lot of small rooms in Flamingo. So when I stayed in the Flamingo, it felt a little bit claustrophobic. The room just felt very small for modern standards, especially modern standards in Vegas. It's not like in New York where all the rooms are small. In Vegas, rooms tend to be fairly large. So it was kind of surprising to walk into one of these Flamingo rooms and it was it, it was small. And so renovations can't fix that unless they knock down walls. And they didn't knock down walls. So you can tell it's an old hotel. Even with the renovations, you can tell. It was funny because I, I talked to someone who is not in poker or gambling, but I talked to someone, I'd, I'd say like around 2015, someone I just know outside of these communities, who went to Vegas for the first time in a long time, and they said, oh, I stayed at the Flamingo. You would not believe how nice it was. I couldn't believe it. I expected it to be trashy, but, you know, it was nice. It was renovated. It was a very, very nice room. They couldn't stop raving about the Flamingo and what a great deal they got and how nice the room was, which they didn't expect. So I believe this person, and I went there. I'm like, no. (laughs) Like, I can see it's renovated, but no. The rooms are small. Got Got a weird layout. I just... Didn't really like it. They also don't treat you particularly well there. From what I've seen, even though Harris and Flamingo are both considered on the lower end of the Caesars property rungs, it seems like at Harris they do treat you somewhat better. In Flamingo, they kind of always have an attitude like you're poor and they don't have to treat you well. I've talked about this happens downtown too, but at Flamingo, I got that vibe too. And it's funny because at Harris, I don't. Harris, it kind of just feels normal. But at Flamingo, I definitely got the vibe that they were very dismissive and treating me like just some guy who they're not making much money off and they don't give a crap if I stay or go. So the Flamingo could go at any time, but there's no imminent plans to destroy it. And they did just put money into renovating it. So that's another reason that they probably would not wreck it anytime soon. Though with Caesars, you never know. I mean, they they do so many stupid things, you never know. But they did spend $90 million in 2018 to renovate it, so it'd be kind of stupid in 2022 to wreck it. But there are no plans to wreck it. Is it possible the Flamingo will sell this year? Remember, Caesars said they're going to sell a strip property in 2022. They already have sold the Rio, though they're technically still operating it. But they're not talking about that. There is one property that is going to sell in their portfolio in Vegas, and it's not clear which one yet. We can pretty much rule out Caesar's Palace, of course, and I don't think Paris or Bally's are going to be selling, especially given that the World Series is going to be there for the foreseeable future. I still didn't think they were going to sell one or the other because they're connected. They just seem like they're associated with one another. They wouldn't want to cut that in half. So I was guessing Planet Hollywood, and I still think Planet Hollywood is a possibility. The real possibilities here are Planet Hollywood, Harris, and Flamingo. And the link, I guess, is another one. 
So I guess it's a, one of those four is probably going to be sold. But I think Planet Hollywood, because Planet Hollywood is all the way at the end on the south side of their whole block of properties. So they could cut that one off and it wouldn't be that noticeable. And it kind of just doesn't fit in with everything else. It's kind of just on the side there. You kind of forget sometimes it's a Caesar's property. All the other ones would kind of disrupt something. Like if they sold the link or the flamingo, well, then one of these properties directly bordering that link open shopping area would not be owned by them. So that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Now, Harris, yeah, that's kind of on the other side, on the north side. So they could let that go, too. So if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably going to be either Harris or Planet Hollywood. I hope it's Planet Hollywood. I don't really care that much for Planet Hollywood. But we'll see. It's even possible they won't sell it, but they seemed pretty certain they're going to sell one of them in 2022. I think Flamingo is going to get a pass here just because of its location. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Las Vegas and Mojave Desert history. I guess it's reversed. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. I'll do these occasionally. It won't be a weekly feature, but I'll do these occasionally and talk about stuff from one of those two things, Las Vegas or the Mojave Desert. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. We got a text from the 860 saying, good to hear that you got your money back. And he's referring to that situation with the rental car, but disappointed you didn't end up in the sack with a collections agent. You know what? I had a girlfriend at the time, but even if I didn't, the collection agent sounded a good deal older than I was then. In 05, I was 33. She sounded well over 40. And I just wasn't into that. Just was uh, too old for me at the time. Not anymore. My girlfriend at the time was basically my age. We were born the same year. I was slightly older, but we're basically the same age. And uh, the girl I'm with now is close to my age. But I didn't want to go like the 10 plus years older. Just was never into that. Okay, so there was a death this week, and I'm not talking about meatloaf, though that was a death this week as well. Talking about Louis Anderson. The reason we're covering Louis Anderson rather than meatloaf is because Louis Anderson had an association with both poker and poker fraud alert. Now, I will tell you right up front just so you don't get a false promise out of this segment. I didn't have any kind of direct contact with Louis Anderson. He didn't have an account on Poker Fraud Alert, from what I know. I don't know if he ever listened to this show, but I had no evidence he did. But there was an indirect connection. That's what I'll say, and I'll get to that. Louis Anderson is a comedian. He died this week at the age of 68, And a lot of people were surprised he lived even as long as he did because this was someone who never had a healthy look to him. He was overweight. He just kind of looked like someone that was always older than his age and looked like someone who was going to die early. And I guess he did. 68 is a good deal less than the average age for males in the U.S. I think that's probably around, I think life expectancy is around. 77 or something for a male in the U.S. It's not super early to die, but if you die at 68 in the U.S., then you haven't run very well. 
He did not die of COVID, in case you're wondering about that. He had large B-cell lymphoma and died of complications from that. To show you that his overall health was not very good, he had heart problems in 2003, and he was only 50 then. That's my age. So I hope I'm not having heart surgery this year. That would suck. I'm not ready to have that going on. It's possible, but I haven't had any heart problems yet, thankfully. Louis Anderson did. So he did live another uh, 18 to 19 years after that heart surgery, but he had it twice in 2003. And as I mentioned, he was always uh, overweight and just had the appearance of someone who wasn't going to live a really long time. He originally was known to the public as a frequent guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And then he also was uh, originally cast to be on the show Perfect Strangers. But the reason you don't remember him is because uh, he ended up being replaced by Mark Lynn Baker. So I don't know exactly why, but they decided not to go forward with him. So he was going to be one of the two stars along with uh, Bronch and Pinchot and that uh, show Perfect Strangers, which did quite well. So uh, they did actually, uh, he also was in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was in the singing telegram scene there. In the 90s, he made an animated series called uh, Life with Louie, and it was based on his childhood. And uh, it actually did well. And in fact, won two daytime Emmy Awards. And he was the host of Family Feud in 1999. The funny thing was he asked uh, Richard Dawson, the longtime host, to appear and give him his blessing to basically uh, take the baton from him and do the show. And Dawson said, no. <laughs> I don't know too much about that whole situation, but I'm guessing they probably replaced Dawson and Dawson wasn't happy. He was also known during the uh, era of the 9-11 attacks for putting on a week of family feud between the Fire Department New York and NYPD and actually put up $75,000 of his own money toward uh, both organizations for recovery from those that uh, were injured on September 11th. Of course, uh, a lot of people who worked for both of those departments died on 9-11 when the buildings collapsed. But others who didn't die had health problems from the the toxic air that came from the collapse. He was fired in uh, 2002. So that was the end of his time on uh, Family Feud. And he uh, made various appearances in things since then, but uh, nothing too notable. He was on a reality show in 2013, and he did get a part on an FX show called Baskets in 2016 that he had for three years. And he actually appeared as a contestant on Family Feud, which was uh, hosted... On uh, which was hosted by Steve Harvey 
This was the first celebrity family feud. He had a uh, he had a comedy style that was uh, not very raunchy. It was more of a clean comedy style. Dennis Miller said that he was very nimble and that he wouldn't hammer points home, but he would do a weave back approach to his comedy. Now, here's a weird thing that happened in uh, 1997. Louis Anderson was being blackmailed by a man named Richard John Gordon. And uh, Richard John Gordon said that he wanted money because he claimed that Anderson had uh, repeatedly sexually propositioned him in a casino in 1993. Well, Anderson was trying to get starring roles in uh, two different family-oriented series at the time. not sure which ones. So he was afraid if this story came out that he would not have gotten the roles. So he actually paid $100,000 to this Richard John Gordon to keep him quiet. Well, what always happens when you pay hush money is the person who got the hush money realizes that they've got their hooks into you, and then Gordon started demanding more money. So Gordon said, okay, thanks for the 100K. Now I want 250K, only three years later. So finally, Anderson realized he made a mistake that uh, this is never going to end. So he went to his lawyer and said, we got to bring this to the authorities. So Louis Anderson's lawyer went to the federal authorities, assuming the FBI, told them about the uh, about the blackmail and the 250K demand. And they, I, I don't know exactly how they ended up uh, catching him, but whatever it was, uh, Gordon realized the jig was up and he fled the FBI, and there was actually a high-speed chase in Santa Monica where they were chasing Louis Anderson's blackmailer. Anyway, they caught him, and uh, believe it or not, he only got 21 months in prison, which I would think should be more, given he was blackmailing and he led the FBI on a uh, high-speed chase. But what about poker? Well, in 2006, Louis Anderson played the main event I don't know if he played any other year, but I know for sure he played in 06 at the WSOP main event. And Louis Anderson always talked about liking poker, about playing poker. And the poker community liked him and knew better for this reason. He even had a PokerStars.net hat on in this uh, photo taken of him in 06. Nolan Dalla wrote in a blog post that they signed Anderson to represent poker stars, which is why he was in that gear, and that uh, he attended poker events, signed autographs, told jokes, but uh, really wanted to be a regular guy at the table, according to Nolan Dalla, which I can kind of see because like, James Woods is the same way. I've talked about that before on the show here, but James Woods wants to be a regular guy at the table, and apparently Louis Anderson was that type as well. He said that was next to impossible. Everyone instantly recognized him. Nolan wrote that despite the constant interruptions and frequently being stopped in the hallways to pose for pictures, he was always overly gracious, even when people made fun of his weight. 
He said he wasn't just a great ambassador for an internet gambling company. He was an inspiration for living a good life. This is what uh, Nolan wrote. So apparently Nolan was very gracious about signing autographs and didn't even get mad when people made jokes about him being fat. He went to a charity tournament that Jennifer, Jennifer Harmon put on in 2010 for the ASPCA. So he, you know, he played poker on and off. He wasn't someone who's constantly uh, playing, but he was someone who was uh, sometimes playing poker. There are people who are celebrities or other people well known in other areas of life that just really, really get into poker. James Woods, uh, Jerry Buss, when he was alive, he pretty much forgot about the Lakers that he still owned and just became obsessed with poker. So there are guys who have gotten really, really into poker as the main thing they do. That was not Louis Anderson, but he was into poker. But I have another story about Louis Anderson that has a connection to PFA, as I mentioned. And I think you probably want to know that. We once had a scammer in our community. He was gone by the time Poker Fraud Alert started, but he was around in uh, 2010, named Peter Falcone, also known as Peter D.C., Peter Falcone is, or at least was, I'm guessing still is, a career scammer who has a gambling addiction. And he has targeted many people in casinos and in the poker community, including Nolan Dalla himself. If you want to read a long story about uh, Peter Falcone's antics, you can go to Nolan Dalla's blog or just Google it. You can also find one on Poker Fraud Alert, where I talk about Peter Falcone and his time in our community. The way I got to know Peter Falcone was coincidental. Remember Ken's friend Stephanie, who we had on the show sometimes, the psycho woman he knew? Well, Stephanie liked to go to Las Vegas but she didn't like to drive there. She didn't like the long drive by herself. So she actually wanted a companion on her drive, just so she's not alone in the car. She didn't so much need to be in Vegas with that person who came with her, because she had a friend that lived in Vegas, so she would hang out with a friend. But between L.A. and Vegas, she didn't like the lonely five-hour drive. So she would actually put out ads on Craigslist. And Stephanie was kind of reckless, so like dudes would respond, and she'd sometimes say yes, which isn't the smartest thing to do, to get in a car with a stranger when you're a girl and drive through the desert with them. Well, she got a response to her ad from a guy named Peter, who seemed very nice on the phone and said that he likes to go to Vegas too and that he would like to ride with her. I believe she was the one driving, but uh, he basically volunteered to be her riding companion. So she went with him, and uh, Stephanie noticed that Peter did not hit on her. Now, Stephanie wasn't that attractive, but still, uh, he made no overtures to her whatsoever. And he just seemed like a nice, friendly guy. He also talked about how much money he had. He talked about how he lives in an expensive house in Malibu. She kind of doubted it at first, but as they got to be friends, he actually took her to this expensive house in Malibu, and they went in, and he clearly lived there. 
So she thought, wow, I can't believe this. This nice, rich guy like rides with me to Vegas and is friends with me. Cool. So uh, she was enjoying the friendship with Peter, who, again, wasn't making any kind of uh, romantic or sexual overtures towards her. She mentioned to him that she knew a professional gambler in Las Vegas. And she said, may you have heard of him? And she said to Peter, who pretended at the time he was a professional gambler himself, she said, have you heard of a poker player named Todd Wittellis, who sometimes goes by Dan Druff? And Peter said, I'm not sure. I might have, but I'm not totally sure. I kind of heard the name before, but I don't really know who it is. So she said, well, would you like to talk to him? I I can call him up. And uh, if you'd like to talk to him, well, Peter was so excited to speak to professional poker player Todd Wittellis, a.k.a. Dan Druff. So Stephanie calls me up and tells me that there's a guy on the phone who just would like to talk to me that's in their car. He's a very nice guy named Peter. And and we talked. And he seemed like he was nice. And he just he wanted to hear everything. He'd ask me, oh, you know, so you want to brace this. So how did it feel? What was the last hand like? What were you thinking? Like, he's asking me all these questions. And this wasn't a guy who just asked me about a bracelet and I started just going off talking about it while he's waiting for me to stop and shut up. He couldn't get enough of it. He kept asking more and more things of wanting to hear about my bracelet win and how I was feeling and about uh, other stuff in poker. He just asking, asking, asking. It seemed like like a huge fanboy. So I thought, okay, (laughs) whatever. So I, I talked to him. Then he said to me, you know, I have comp tickets for really, really good seats in the front center for the upcoming Garth Brooks concert series at the Wynn. Because Garth Brooks was coming to play the Wynn. He hadn't gotten there yet. But he claimed for opening night, which was super, super hard to get and super expensive, that he had comp tickets like front center and asked if I wanted to come. And I'm like, oh, man, that sucks because, like, I I was going on a cruise. I had a cruise planned. Otherwise, I totally would have taken him up on it. But he said, okay, well, don't worry about it. Uh, next time something like this comes up, I'll keep you in mind. So I thought, okay, this is sweet. I have some, like, fanboy here. I don't know why he's focusing on me because I wasn't a huge name or anything, but I guess because I was the one Stephanie knew. that Just some guy who, who to me, seemed like just some high-stakes gambler who just wanted to know poker pros, and he, he wanted to, like, give me things just because I was a poker pro. I thought, okay, sweet. You know, so I said, okay, next time something like this comes up, let me know. So that was in uh, late 09, actually. It wasn't 2010. It was late 09. And then uh, I would talk to Peter occasionally. I, I gave him my number, and we would talk. And he uh, he would... I never got to go on any concerts on him, but I did have a fantasy baseball draft coming up in Vegas, and I was the one who was putting it together. I was trying to find a room for all of us to be in because we it, it was 12 people in the league. We needed a big room where 12 people could sit. You know, my apartment then wasn't going to do it, so I needed to I needed something big enough and I was searching around for something that wasn't like outrageously expensive and I found like a room, a separate room in the back of a bar that seemed to fit the requirements not in the tourist area of Vegas, but like a local bar. So I was on the way to that bar to talk to them about renting the room for that morning. Not that morning, but for the morning coming up, like in about two weeks. 
And on the way there, Peter called me, and I told him what I was doing. And he's like, what? You're going to have your draft in a bar? I go, well, not really a bar. It's going to be at like 9.30 in the morning. It's going to be in a back room with a door that closes. It's a, the bar noise won't bother us because it's going to be a closed room. He's like, come on, don't do that. Come on, you, you don't want to have your draft at a bar. Come on. All these people are going to come to Vegas, and you're going to bring them to a bar? What the fuck? And I'm like, well, you know, that's... I can't go rent a conference room in one of these hotels. It's too expensive. So he's, no, 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 no. Here, I've got a really big suite at the Bellagio. And I will give that to you for the draft. So I'll check you in. And you'll see that it's yours. And I'll put your name on it. And I will buy lunch for everybody. So I said, oh, sweet. So I took him up on it, and sure enough, I checked in with him. We went to a quick dinner. We went up to his suite. We he helped me rearrange the furniture so we could uh, configure it in a way that would accommodate the twelve people. And then he told me he'll come back the next day and uh, he'll eat lunch with us and, and pay for it. So I was very grateful. However, I couldn't reach him the next day. He was just gone. And every attempt I made to get a hold of him, I couldn't. So finally, I was about to tell everybody that, look, you know, we're going to have to pay for our lunch, but at least we got our got to do this in a beautiful suite in the Bellagio. And everybody was okay with that. I was kind of a little embarrassed because they told them we're probably going to get a free lunch, and then I was going to have to say, sorry, guys, we've got to split this 12 ways. But then I got a call from Peter saying, sorry, sorry, I, I had to leave Vegas abruptly. He claimed he didn't feel well or some BS like that. But he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, take care of the bill there. So don't worry. When you check out, you'll see the bill will be zero. So I said, okay. So after he said he'd be doing that right away. So before everybody left, I, I called down and checked to the Bellagio. And sure enough, they said that the meal we just had was paid for. I go, okay, nice. Peter came through. Came through. Now, Peter told me what he was going to be doing to pay for it was he was going to be using his comps, that he has so many comps there, Bellagio, for being such a high roller, that he's just going to comp this off. But when I checked out, they said, okay, so, sir, uh, what would you like us to do with this uh, $200 balance? And I said, uh, what? They said, the $200 balance. I said, well, put it back on the credit card that reserved it. Well, what, what are you talking about? They said, no, no, we have a $200 cash balance in here. I go, what do you mean by a cash balance? He said, they said, somebody came down and put cash into this account. So the cash paid for your meal but there's about $200 left. So what do you want to do with it? We have to do something with it. And I said, um, well, uh, can you mail it back to the address on file? They said, yeah, we can do that. So I talked to Peter afterwards and I asked him about this cash balance. He's like, oh, no, no, you should have just kept it. I said, what, you should have, I should have gotten it and given it to you in cash? He said, no, 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 you should have just kept the 200 I said, I don't want your 200 Peter. I mean, like, you, you did so many nice things for me here. You gave me this suite. You gave me uh, this free meal for the 12 people, the, the, the room service. I don't, I'm not going to keep your 200 He said, no, 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 no. I, I don't need the 200 but whatever. It's coming. I'll take it. But you, know, you, you should have just kept the 200 What I thought was weird was why would he lie and tell me he's paying for it with comp points when in reality he just dropped a bunch of cash figuring it would cover the whole thing and kind of overpaid because he didn't want to fall short. Like That was weird. At first, it seemed like the guy was just giving me his comps, but to actually be paying hard money for me, I'm going, this is a little bit odd. So at the time, 
I dismissed this as just a really rich guy who wanted to look like a winning high roller and who gets all these great things lavished upon him by the casino when in reality he's paying for a lot of it. So I did not want to burst his bubble. I didn't want to say, hey, Peter, I figured out that uh, you're not really getting big comps from the casino and that you're paying for a lot of this out of your pocket and you're not really a winning sports better. Like, I felt like saying all this to him that I knew he was just a rich guy shooting off his money and trying to feel like a winner and a VIP. But why would I do that? I mean, he was being so nice to me. Was it really my business to bring this up? Of course it wasn't. So I wasn't going to say anything to him or anybody. But I quietly was a little bit concerned that he hadn't been telling me the truth. Well, guess what? In December of 2010, after knowing Peter for about a year, I got a phone call from Brian Mikon, who was a partner with me on Donk Down, our website at the time. And he said, we've got a problem here. Because Peter was running some contests at the time with some kind of prize. I think DJ Chaps ended up winning it and getting screwed. But there's some kind of prize. And, of course, we trusted Peter was going to pay it. But uh, he said, I just got a contact from a guy from 2 Plus 2 who claims that Peter scammed him out of 75K. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This guy is probably a scammer. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked to the guy. The guy said, I don't want you to make this public because I'm not ready to go public about what Peter's doing yet. I'm just trying to warn you guys. And I'm like, okay, but what can we do with this info? Because I want to warn the other members of the site, but then you're telling me not to, and it puts me in a very bad spot. I don't want to betray you because you didn't have to tell us this. But at the same time, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to screw over our users. So what I started doing is going individually to people I knew were dealing with Peter and telling them to watch out, but not making a public post yet. But uh, soon enough, the word started to get out anyway that Peter was a scammer through 2 plus 2. So at that point, we put out the whole thing. Did Peter ever call me and explain? No. As soon as he saw I posted about this on Donkdown, he never called or texted me ever again. But what does this have to do with Louis Anderson? Why am I telling you this story? Well, we put out a lot of posts about Peter Falcone and his antics, and a lot of people started showing up to tell their stories about Peter Falcone because he had scammed a lot of people, including Nolan Dalla, as I mentioned, but also including comedian Louis Anderson. But we didn't really have the story. We just knew he had scammed Louis Anderson. We, we didn't know what he had done. So this is a post that was from someone named uh, Lurker1998 that they made on Donkdown, which is now gone. But someone copied and pasted it over to Poker Fraud Alert in 2012. And uh, this was the account from this Lurker1998 of Peter Falcone and Louis Anderson from what occurred in uh, the summer of 2002. So even then it was an old story. He said, over the course of time, he would comp me all meals outside of the MGM Grand and I would comp him all meals inside the MGM Grand. I guess this person uh, 
Lurker 90, 1998 had a lot of MGM Grand comps. While I comped him more meals than he comped me, the meals he comped me were way more expensive than the meals I comped him. No question he comped me significantly more than I comped him. Not even close. While in Vegas, he invited me and three friends to go meet Louis Anderson, go backstage, and see the Louis Anderson show. We accepted his invite. We are ushered into Louis Anderson's dressing room. Louis and Peter hug. Louis is super nice to us. Peter comps us the best seats in the house for the show. It's the first time I ever saw a show other than a rock concert in Vegas. I told him repeatedly I wasn't interested in show tickets that he offered, but he was quite persistent. Talking about Peter. During the show, during one of the breaks on stage, Louis shouts out to us, hello. He says something to the effect of, I want to say hello to Peter Falcone's friends that I met backstage before the show. Any friend of Peter is a friend of mine. Come find me at any of my shows to say hello. Peter introduces me to friends of his, and I introduce him to friends of mine. This is Lurker 98 98 talking. So what happened with Louie? Later on in the post, Lurker 1998 wrote, I tell the cops to warn Louie Anderson. It turned out Peter skipped out on a debt to Louie as well as a debt to Louie's charity. He had also just scammed a cocktail waitress in Reno. Oh, come on. <laughs> he's, he's even scamming cocktail waitresses. <laughs> Louis Anderson, who announced on stage that Peter Falcone was a friend of his. In fact, any friend of Peter's was a friend of his, said Louis on stage in 02, according to Lurker, the Lurker 1998. Ended up scamming Louis. And Louis' charity. I doubt Louis ever got the money back. What Peter did to Nolan was he kept having Nolan place bets for him and gave him a big commission every time it won, like a ridiculously big commission. And Nolan's like, okay, sweet, free money. And then Peter started having Nolan front the money, claiming he had issues getting cash to him at the moment and that uh, problems with the bank, you know the story. So then Nolan was afraid to say no because Peter had been so generous to him up till then and ended up fronting a lot of money, which turned out that Peter was just free-rolling him. So it was a premeditated scam to first overpay him for his runner services to place bets for him and then to say, hey, uh, you know, I just couldn't get the money over to you in time. Can you front this? I promise I'll pay you tomorrow. Okay, yeah, sure. Hey, can you front me again? Hey, can you front me again? And then by the time Nolan realizes that he's out like a lot of money because Peter's bet's lost. Peter did this type of thing to a lot of people. A lot of his scams involved sports betting in that fashion. I don't know how he scammed Louis specifically, but this is from Lurker 1998, and I have to imagine it's true because he's saying the police told him this. So, Peter Falcone the scammer in our community from 09 and 2010, also nailed Louis Anderson. One interesting thing about Peter Falcone, remember I said he didn't make any moves on Stephanie? He actually had a number of female victims come forward that got scammed by him. He would meet them in casinos and befriend them and then scam them. Every one of these women reported that Peter never made a move on them. And some of these women were attractive And some of them actually liked him and said that he seemed so charming and nice, they would have actually had sex with him if he wanted to. So it's not even like 
they weren't into him. They were into him, and he just made no moves. And they found it kind of odd. They'd spend a lot of time alone together, and they would kind of give him signals that they were interested, and he wouldn't act. So then the question came, is Peter gay, or is he asexual? And Stephanie said that Peter told her that he doesn't like sex, he just never enjoyed it, and he has no interest in it. So I think he really was just asexual. I think his thrills came from scamming and from gambling and not from sex. I guess it's possible he was gay and in the closet, but we also saw nothing to indicate he was gay. There were no guys that came forward that Peter ever hit on or showed interest in. So it really looked like he just never showed any sexual interest in anybody. So it's very weird. It's like an asexual scammer. <laughs> he, he got Louis Anderson. All right. Let's talk about the latest civil forfeiture abuse by the government. This story is going around a lot. In fact, my girlfriend even brought it to me. A legal marijuana business had its money stolen by the government through civil forfeiture. And this was reported on Reason.com, which is a libertarian site, which, of course, is very against civil forfeiture. This was an article posted on January 18th and has been going around the Internet. Five times between May 2021 and the presence and the present. Sheriff's deputies in Kansas and California have stopped armored cars that were operated by a company called Imperial Logistics, which is a company based out of Pennsylvania that serves marijuana businesses and financial institutions that work with them. And in three of these stops, seized a total of... One million dollars. Yeah. Actually, 1.2 million. There were no criminal charges filed, not even any citations. This was done through civil forfeiture, where basically the police can pull you over and search your car and take whatever's in there and claim you're suspected of a crime and then just leave with it. And then you have to use the legal process to try to get it back, which can be expensive and difficult. You do not have to be arrested. In many cases, there is no requirement that they present any sort of proof or even reasonable suspicion that you are committing a crime. They can just take something uh, very flimsy and claim that you are suspected of it. This money is not kept by the individual police officers. In fact, these police officers are commanded from above to do this. This money is kept by the police department itself to give them more of a budget to use and sometimes end up in city or county coffers. And when the federal government gets involved to help with these in something called equitable sharing, then there's often a split of something like 50-50 where the federal government keeps half and the local government keeps half. Equitable sharing is done in states which have tougher laws against civil forfeiture, making it very difficult or impossible to do these sort of stops. But if it's done under, quote, federal jurisdiction, then that supersedes the state law and allows them to still do it. Imperial 
says that the seizure of its client's money violated state law, federal law, and the U.S. Constitution in a complaint it filed last week in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. And they said that they're entitled to protection from highway robberies, regardless of whether they're conducted by criminals or by the sheriff and federal law enforcement agencies acting under the color of law. So to start on May 17th, Deputy Kalen Robinson pulled over one of Imperial's vans on I-70. And this was in Kansas. They claimed that the tag number was being blocked by the license plate frame. Now, this is a very, very common ticky-tack violation where your license plate has a frame on it and then you have a registration sticker and sometimes it has a number on the sticker depending on what state it's on. And if the sticker can't be fully seen, if even the slightest bit of the sticker is being blocked by the license plate frame, then it's technically a violation. It is not considered a moving violation. At worst, you'll get a fix-it ticket. But that was the fake reason to pull them over. Deputy Robinson then questioned the driver, who said that she planned to pick up cash from uh, licensed medical marijuana dispensaries in Missouri the next day and then take it back to Colorado. So there was no money in the car. There's no money in the armored car because she had not picked anything up yet. So Deputy Robinson said, all right, go ahead. Didn't even give a fix-it ticket. And that seemed to be that. However, they got ready. They got all ready. So the DEA watched the van, and then after it went to the dispensaries, it got back on I-70 with $165,000, and it was pulled over, and all of that was taken. All of it was taken by the Dickinson County Sheriff's Department. In this case, 80% will go to the Sheriff's Department, and 20% will go to the federal government as part of this equitable sharing agreement. In September 2021, the Justice Department filed a civil forfeiture complaint seeking to keep the money. In that affidavit, DEA agent Bryson Wheeler said marijuana is a controlled substance and illegal under both federal and Kansas state law. However, Imperial responded that the DEA should not have been participating in this entire thing that there is an amendment called the Rohrbacher-Blumenauer Amendment that bars the DEA and FBI from using any of its funds to interfere with the implementation of state laws authorizing the medical use of marijuana. So basically, even though some states don't allow the medicinal use of marijuana, and some states do, that if it's a state matter, that it is not allowed by this amendment that was passed, the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment, it is not allowed for the DEA or FBI to get involved with enforcing this, that this has to be done at the state level. So that's interesting. Now keep in mind, no marijuana was seized, only money. The driver admitted this was money from sales of legalized marijuana in Missouri, but they were not selling or using marijuana in Kansas. She was just 
bringing the money through Kansas, and it was seized. On November 16th, 2021, this was in uh, California, one of the vehicles of Imperial was pulled over, supposedly because it was following another one too closely. There were no citations issued, but after the driver admitted that he was carrying cash, the deputy named Jonathan Franco asked a lot of questions about the business that Imperial was in. And even though they were not violating any state laws, $700,000 was seized. And the sheriff's office said that the money was transferred to the FBI for civil forfeiture. Then on December 9th, just a few weeks later, the same deputies pulled over the same vehicle driven by the same employee, claiming that he signaled too early. Not he didn't signal, but he, he signaled too early and that he was slightly speeding. So that's a good reason to pull him over, of course. <laughs> you better not signal too much. You over-signaler, you. And they did not cite him, didn't write him a ticket, but they seized $350,000. According to an audio recording that was in the van security system. Remember, it's an armored car, so they have a security system that records everything. One of the deputies said, that's it, and laughed. And then said, you set the bar too high. Another deputy remarked that he thought they'd get a million or two, and the first deputy responded, at least we got over a million, referring to the two stops together of 700K plus 350K. So this was obviously premeditated, especially the second one. And these stops were BS. Also, under California law, money earned by state legal marijuana businesses are not subject to forfeiture under California law. And even if it were, then the law enforcement agencies seizing it could only keep 65% of the proceeds, not 80% like they are attempting to do. Also, California is one of those states that requires more evidence to commit civil forfeiture. The standard of clear and convincing evidence is required, which is much higher than the federal standard, which is called a preponderance of the evidence, meaning anything slightly above 50% certainty. Clear and convincing evidence is exactly as it sounds, and clearly they didn't have that to make these seizures. They'd have to have clear and convincing evidence that the crime was, had, had uh, taken place. So... Imperial says that uh, three of the four businesses whose money it was transporting on November 16th had medical marijuana licenses, and all of the money seized on December 9th came from businesses with such licenses. So they are claiming that the federal government had no right to do this, and this wasn't violating state law either. So regardless of what you think of civil forfeiture or what you think of medical marijuana or legalization of marijuana. The bottom line is this is stealing. The bottom line is that just about all of the money being carried was from medical marijuana dispensaries with a license with the state to operate. There was the one in Missouri, and then there's also this uh, these various uh, dispensaries in California. All Imperial was doing was carrying this money between locations to be deposited. That's all they were doing. They weren't even making any marijuana sales. 
in Kansas, there was nothing involving marijuana. They were just driving the money through the state. So Kansas can say all they want. Well, we don't allow any kind of marijuana sales here. Well, there weren't any. California, it is allowed. In Missouri, it is allowed. Imperial is the one making the suit because they actually reimbursed the companies where they got the money for the money that was stolen by the government. So Imperial is down $1.2 million in the whole thing, plus legal fees. What they are doing is they're now driving routes that don't go through Kansas or through San Bernardino County in California. Imperial said that they uh, have already uh, invested over $100,000 in a project that they're going to have to abandon because of having to avoid driving through those areas. They're building a facility that uh, they can't have anymore because it would require going through uh, these locations that they are avoiding. The Institute for Justice, which can be found at ij.org, they've been aggressively fighting civil forfeiture, even for those that can't afford to pay for the representation. They said, what is happening to Imperial potently illustrates why we call civil forfeiture policing for profit. Law enforcement is trying to take more than a million dollars without charging anyone with a crime. This is absurd and deeply unconstitutional. It is yet another reason why lawmakers need to eliminate civil forfeiture altogether. So this isn't about marijuana. This isn't about trying to stop the transport of proceeds of medical marijuana in states that have not legalized it. This isn't about the federal government refusing to recognize legal marijuana yet. It's it's not about that. This is about local governments that are attempting to steal. And that's all it is. Now, something that's a little bit uh, concerning is that San Bernardino County is involved here. Now, why is that concerning? San Bernardino County is the county you will be in in the majority of the drive between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. San Bernardino County is a very geographically large county. Most of it is empty with just about no people, but is very geographically large. In fact, I think it is the biggest county in the country as far as land area. Only the last 40 miles of the drive to Vegas is in Clark County. So once you exit L.A. County from Los Angeles, then you get into San Bernardino County and you are there the rest of the time, except for the final 40 miles, which starts at Prim, Nevada. Now, I have said for a long time, I've never heard of any civil forfeiture taking place in San Bernardino County. And I had theorized that they're not doing it because they will start getting flack from Las Vegas, that people are going there to gamble and they don't want their gambling money taken. Otherwise, they're going to stop going to Las Vegas. And you may say, well, why would San Bernardino County care about this? Well, it would anger the state of Nevada, who would then put pressure on the state of California to put a stop to this. So it just would ruffle too many feathers if they're pulling over gamblers going between LA and Vegas. It could could really choke a lot of the Vegas economy, and it would create a big problem between the two states. Now, California has passed laws attempting to stop this, 
with the clearing convincing evidence requirement. But still, California does have some influence over county governments like San Bernardino County. And I had assumed the San Bernardino County wants to have at least a good working relationship with Clark County, and they won't if they're doing this. So what might be happening here is they might only be targeting things like armored transport vehicles, which is not going to piss off any tourists going to Vegas if they target businesses, but not travelers, then the travelers are left alone and nobody complains. So that might be what's going on. I don't know. But if they start pulling cars over, they're going to or from Vegas with cash in there. That'll really be a disaster because there'll be a lot of cars they can hit this way because most people driving on I-15 between Las Vegas and uh, Los Angeles are ones who are taking trips to or from Vegas. I'm talking about passenger cars, not trucks. So that is something that could be a big problem if that becomes a civil forfeiture matter. So I'll be watching this to see if San Bernardino County starts pulling over passenger vehicles and and seizing money. If they do, then we're going to really have to watch out as far as what we have in our cars when we're driving between LA and Vegas. I think it's probably not going to happen for the time being, for the reasons I stated, but who knows? This is the first time I've heard about the San Bernardino County Sheriff doing this. I also don't know where in San Bernardino County that this took place. So it is possible this is somewhere in the county that does not typically match the route that people would drive between L.A. and Vegas. However, it is worth noting that because San Bernardino County is so desolate that there really aren't that many highways that could be involved here. If you look at a map of San Bernardino County, you'll see it encompasses a lot of uh, southeastern California. The southern end is at the city of San Bernardino and a little bit southwest of that. And then it remains pretty much in a straight line all the way to, to about the border where Parker, Arizona is and slightly north of Joshua Tree National Park. The northern end is the part of the state that uh, leads to the border about equivalent to like where Gene, Nevada is as far as how north it is. And and the western border is a little bit west of uh, Victorville. In that whole stretch there, you have I-15, which people use to travel between LA and Vegas. You have I-40, which is used to travel between LA and Laughlin. Then you have US-395, which goes towards uh, Mammoth. And then you have some state routes, which probably don't have that many out-of-state travelers on them. So I would think this is probably happening on I-40 or 15. I can't imagine anything else. Now, maybe they hit them on I-40. But still, I-40, if you're going to Laughlin, that's what you're going to be on. So that's not good either. (laughs) So either one of these could potentially nail gamblers. I really can't picture what else it would be. I mean, technically, US-95, the part that goes through California, is also in uh, San Bernardino County for the most part. But 
really, it looks like the 15 and the 40 are the two culprits here. Well, we'll be watching this, but civil forfeiture just needs to end. Or, and I've said this many times, if they want to keep civil forfeiture, but keep it to where the original intention is preserved, which is only going after criminal enterprises carrying large sums of money, here's what they can do. Number one, make a requirement for clear and convincing evidence. Number two, make it to where it has to be $200,000 or more. Now, this would not have stopped these seizures, but at least against individuals, you're not going to see it happen very often. But it would have to be the two things together, 200000 or more, plus clear and convincing evidence, and none of this equitable sharing with the, gov- with the federal government. And that too. So this would, and, and then also uh, there should be some requirement to analyze whatever evidence is provided at the time and take that into consideration. So for example, if you're driving back from a casino and have all the documentation where the money came from that you're carrying because you just won in a poker tournament, that they have to let you go. Something like that. Any kind of evidence on the spot that someone can present that makes it clear they didn't obtain the money illegally or bank withdrawal receipts, anything like this that they have to let you go and that they have to have clear and convincing evidence to take it in the first place or just get rid of the whole thing. It was initially done so if they pull over a drug dealer who's got $3 million in the car but no drugs, they can take it and say, you're a known drug dealer. We know that's where you got it. You can't show where you got it that was legitimate, so we're taking it, and you can fight with the courts to get it back if you can prove where you really got it. That was why they enacted this in the first place in the 80s. And the one who created civil forfeiture, by the way, would be our current president, Joe Biden. I kid you not, 1983, Joe Biden was the father of civil forfeiture, which is especially bad because he can undo it now. I don't even blame him for doing this in 83 when they were trying to fight the drug war, but he's president now. Undo it. (laughs) He can immediately end this from the federal government side, and then they can pass federal law just doing away with it or, or very much restricting how much it can be done and under what circumstances. I don't know why Joe Biden doesn't take a moment out of his busy schedule to do this instead of passing stupid laws when he enters office about uh, requiring that transgender athletes can always enter in female competitions in college which he did in his first week of office somehow that was important but stopping civil forfeiture which he created was not Now, Trump was not innocent either because they had ended the equitable sharing and then it was put back under the Trump administration. So that was frustrating. It just needs to go away. It's been perverted to be something it wasn't meant to be. Okay, we're going to do our final topic aside from the coronavirus one. 
I see in our chat room we have uh, Blissy6969. Say hello to him. He's listening from Australia. We're going to do NFT fraud alert. And we knew this was coming. We knew that a big NFT scandal was coming eventually. Because it's a space which isn't brand new, but really only got a lot of attention and a lot of participation starting in 2021. And a lot of the people into that just aren't used to dealing with scams like we are in poker. So that makes people a lot more vulnerable. It's also kind of complicated and difficult for many to understand, even for those who participate in it. So there's also ways that scammers can trick people just by having more knowledge. There's also the issue that the crypto space takes anonymity very seriously. So while a poker player accused of scamming who plays under a screen name, there's not a lot of hesitancy in outing someone's screen name. If if someone on uh, ACR rips you off, then you're not really afraid to go out on a forum or on Twitter and say, such and such person who plays as whatever on ACR, whose real name is this, scammed me. Like, that's not seen as a big violation in poker. Oh my God, you revealed who he is on ACR. Like, people aren't that uptight about that in poker, about anonymity. But in the crypto space, of which NFTs are part, there's a big focus on people being able to do this at least somewhat anonymously. So revealing the identity of people's screen names in the NFT space is not trivial. And this also allows scammers to get away with more because not as much is known about them and people are hesitate to out them and be criticized for, quote, doxing. So that kind of played into this whole thing I'm about to tell you about. So there is a guy named Beanie. Beanie, of course, was the screen name. His real name was revealed when this whole shitstorm started. Beanie was always controversial, and there was always something about him that rubbed people the wrong way and the way he behaved. But he was someone who was influential in the NFT space. So there were a lot who disliked him, but there were also a lot who respected him. And word started to get around that Beanie was actually a scammer. So it's one thing not to like the guy's personality. It's another thing that he's been scamming people. So there was some hand-wringing regarding uh, calling this out, identifying him, things like that. But finally, a Twitter account named NFT Ethics, exactly as it sounds, NFT Ethics, did a really long thread talking about Beanie's alleged scams. But first, they had to start the thread justifying why they are disclosing his identity, which, as I said, is not trivial in that space. They wrote, In this thread, we will disclose the identity of one of the currently most infamous NFT influencers. But before we do that, we first explain our justifications and provide some important disclaimers. In real life, in real life certain identifying data can be compared to blockchain addresses. Based on that, data 
everyone is able to trace our historical actions and it allows scrutiny over our personal and professional lives. Decentralization has various advantages, but also specific disadvantages for which the NFT space currently does not have a solution. Anonymous, anonymous people have much less of an incentive, or even no incentive at all, to act morally or ethically or to take accountability for their actions. Therefore, it's no surprise that some of the biggest anonymous influencers in the space have behaved in ways that they never would have if they would not be anonymous. In Web 2, the big influencers benefit from everything they do know about us. In Web 3, the big anonymous influencers benefit from everything we do not know about them. But they both try to influence our behavior for profit and capitalize, it, capitalize on it for their own benefit. Okay, let me stop here and explain what they're trying to say. They're trying to say here that the anonymity kind of tempts people more to act scammy, to act unethically, where if their identities were known, they wouldn't do a lot of the things they do. Even if they kind of want to, they'd be afraid to. And that they're saying that big influencers on the regular web benefit from what they know about uh, their audience, that they get money by knowing their audience and trying to financially profit that way. But in the crypto space, they benefit from everything that you don't know about them. They benefit from their anonymity. They went on to say, we want to emphasize we don't want to cast a shadow over the NFT space itself, which provides a much-needed pillar in the battle against further centralization and will be instrumental in c continuing to gradually evolve into the future, future metaverse. This space consists of many compassionate communities, creator, creative creators, creative creators, <laughs> committed contributors, compulsive collectors, combined with colossal quantities of crypto capital, and is as such and remains a force to be reckoned with. We don't want any project that the person in question has been investing in to be negatively infected, affected. So we urge those projects to distance themselves from this individual, referring to Beanie, and to clarify their relationship with him. Some of them have already done that in the past weeks. Indicating possible criminal acts and or fraud prevention constitute a legitimate interest or should be regarded as legitimate interest to dock someone, and we believe that's the case for this particular individual. In this thread, we will make a connection between the digital and physical reality and allow anyone to make a judgment themselves regarding this individual. Actions always speak louder than words, whether they are digital or physical. Okay, let's stop again here. So this is the whole justification thing. This is a very, very long series of tweets. These tweets can only be 288 characters each. So we're already through 10 tweets here. But they're basically saying that we feel justified to put all this out because we see a lot of evidence he's scamming and... This is in the public's interest. But at the same time, don't hate NFTs and don't hate the projects the guy has invested in because they have nothing to do with this. The person in question is Beanie, who is Beanie Maxi, B-E-A-N-I-E-M-A-X-I on Twitter. And we have confirmed his identity via di different independent sources. Any evidence provided is from publicly available data and can be verified for those that only believe things when they hear it, we will provide a short part of a video where you can hear his voice. He's not visible because we cut it out so where nobody's recognizable. So see, see, they're already trying to, to 
do as much as they can to still keep anonymity of everybody in the video. I'm not going to bother playing it. They're just kind of showing that you can you can hear his voice. It's the same person that you've heard talk before where you couldn't see him and whatever. I, I believe they got the right guy. Beanie describes himself in one of his online profiles attached to his real name as, quote, absent of a strong work ethic and as someone who, quote, takes pride in the fact that he's never had a real job in his life. So how was he able to become so successful? And they showed a screenshot, and you see his real name. It says Charles Mosco, M-O-S-C-O-E, Charles Mosco. Before answering that question, we first explain how we were able to discover his identity. We have to go back to a project called Monkey Bet DAO by Invariant Labs that Beanie said he invested a very small amount in. This couldn't be further from the truth. People in the Monkey Bet DAO Discord already noticed that the name RGT, Royal, Gambling Te- Royal Gaming Technology, was mentioned in the terms and conditions of various Monkey Bet websites and that the company registration number and slot designs were identical to the ones from Royal Gaming Technology. Many original holders asking critical questions about the project were banned from the Discord, and when Beanie was asked whether he knew Royal Gaming, he denied ever having heard of it. See the screenshots above, but in actual fact, it turns out he's the owner of Royal Gaming. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The so-called big lie is a tactic that Beanie frequently uses, a lie so colossal that no one would believe that someone could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Anyone who doubted his words were actively banned by him and his team. When ChimpBet was launched, the publicly announced director of ChimpBet was directly identified as sales director of RGT, meaning uh, Royal Gaming, and people also noticed a resemblance with another Royal Gaming project called CryptoBet.com. There is a CryptoBet video on YouTube that features a person that has exactly the same voice as the Monkey Bet project lead, who went by Owlman. And during one of the Monkey Bet Twitter spaces, Beanie mentioned his first name, which indeed matched. Oops, this, this is the problem, by the way. I'm gonna, I'll explain this. If this seems really confusing, I'll explain this so you get it. But the problem is, when you tell enough lies, eventually you start contradicting yourself. And that's why somebody who is a very prolific liar eventually gets caught by observant people. It's very, very hard to keep up so many different fronts at the same time that sometimes can contradict one another to where it all fits together. And even one slip-up can make the whole thing fall down like a house of cards. So this can be the problem when there's so many different things that you're bullshitting about. And that is what happened here. So these different projects they're talking about, like uh, Monkey Bet and Crypt- Chimp Bet and uh, Royal Gaming, these, these are uh, different either NFT projects or companies involved in the NFT space. And this Charles Mosco, a.k.a. Beanie, is involved with all of them and is accused of claiming he's not and then using his status as an influencer to promote them while claiming that uh, he either doesn't have an interest in them or has a tiny interest in them, when in reality he is the majority owner or has a major interest in all of these things. 
According to his LinkedIn pro- profile, Owlman is the general manager of Royal Gaming, even though Beanie has mentioned multiple times that he is a dev, he is not. When typing the real name of Owlman into OpenSea, which is a uh, NFT trading site, an ENS domain showed up attached to an account with an interesting history. It was the deployer of Cbet, a scam token associated with a variety of scam projects, including token pay. So there, there are a lot of these scams that are through OpenSea, and they're saying that this is one of them. Token pay was transferred to Royal Gaming, and it was easy to find out that the same pe- person behind Cbet, the scam token, and token pay was the same person behind uh, Royal Gaming. In fact, before he used the name Beanie, he used the name EC on Discord, which corresponds to one of his many token pay Twitter handles. And they're showing all these different screenshots to back this up. On different forums, Trustpilot and Reddit, there are many complaints about CryptoBet. In particular, it's frequently mentioned that once you win a jackpot in their casinos, they flag your account as high risk and you're not able to withdraw anything. So they're running a uh, scam gambling site is being alleged here. When we check the status of the corporation registered number associated with Royal Gaming, it shows the registration was discontinued on April 15, 2020, even though the casinos have been operational after that and still are to this date. It was probably meant to create the illusion that CryptoBet or ChimpBet have a proper gambling license, because when we check the status, it seems to be a sub-license of another company of which there's no trace. The company Royal Gaming itself is registered in Panama with an officer of an offshore entity, which is also mentioned in the Panama Papers. That will become a recurrent pattern. BD generally always hides behind someone else or a proxy. It is ironic that Beanie often mentions his dislike for low-effort low copy pastas when we have to conclude that Monkey Bet and Baboon Bet was nothing more than just that, a copy pasta of Royal Gaming's earlier products. Even though Beanie always mentions, quote, community first, none of the 70.5% OpenSea royalties on MonkeyBet, BaboonBet, or PitBoss went to the members or was invested in any way in the project at all. It is now clear why all the mint money went to Owlman and, and Beanie and why they didn't, why all the time they tried to push for an affiliate casino system. They didn't only make money on the mint and the royalties, but also on the casinos themselves. They recently had a giveaway, but the wallets they mentioned as being the winners of the giveaway were made-up wallet addresses. They didn't really exist on the blockchain. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> they couldn't even post real wallet addresses and just send it to themselves, like make post wallets they own. That's lazy. And it's showing a screenshot of Monkey Bet saying, Congratulations to the winners of our first community tournament with five different wallet addresses that are just fake. They're just fake wallet addresses that you can't access anywhere. They just bang the keyboard to make up numbers. There was a Facebook group and website by unsatisfied customers of Royal Gaming. When Beanie understood that his identity was linked to Royal Gaming and that his name was mentioned on these websites, they paid these people off to take these websites down. Huh. My, 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 my. See, that can be the problem where... Even scam victims can be selfish. So when websites are created to call out scammers, if the scammer is making enough money, he can go to those calling him out and say, hey, how would you like some money to go away? 
And this is alleging that they did. Mm, pretty bad. So this was an isolated incident that Beanie was involved in. When diving into his past, this was only the tip of the iceberg, and there's a pattern of his very dubious, quote, professional career. We briefly provide a chronological overview. The first traces of Beanie online were when he was active in the TV pirating business more than 20 years ago. As the owner of DimeDealer.com, he was selling devices designed for the surreptitious interception of satellite communications. And it's showing that DimeDealer.com was created in 2000. Even then, he received so many complaints for, for scamming on forums that people were warning for him. We show a screenshot of a forum thread with 14 pages of complaints and one from another forum with a specific warning about him personally. After many complaints and suspected DOS attacks against competitor websites, Beanie apparently came under investigation by Canadian U.S. enforcement authorities and DimeDealer.com was discontinued. This is back in the early 2000s. Beanie would go on with his dubious practices as owner of DecoderNews.com and co-owner of SatSmart.tv and started to move their hosting servers from his native country, Canada, to Central America, where he still currently resides. Both websites, however, were sued by DirecTV, and the legal court case documents can still be found online. The case, however, was dismissed because Beanie allegedly made a deal and sold out all of his thousands of paid customers, including admins and mods of his forum, by handing over their personal data to authorities. They faced criminal charges and were fined. Hmm. That would be interesting if true, that people who were... Uh, receiving uh, satellite transmissions illegally that they went after the customers and the mods of the forum rather than the ringleader. That, that is not typical. Usually it's the other way around, but that's what this is claiming. This was not unexpected as it was not uncommon for him to threaten unsatisfied customers that complained to release their personal details, knowing they would get into trouble. Even though Beanie has often mentioned that he has never had any social online presence. This was certainly not true. He used to have a Twitter account with over 12,000 followers, a Facebook account, and a LinkedIn account. He became active on Twitter trying to provide his analysis on mid-cap stocks. His Twitter bio had the slogan, buy grief, sell hype. What he is doing with NFTs now, he more or less used to do with stocks. Under his own name, attached with his company Equitable Research, he also wrote for financial media such as The Street, Seeking Alpha, and then realized money could be made with cryptos and ICOs. One of the largest and most prominent crypto scams has ever been involved in this case of TokenPay, where he pretended again to be an investor, but was really suspected to be acting as the CEO behind the, the screens. With an illegal ICO, they raised around 2,000 Bitcoin, estimated to be worth between $22 million and $34 million. That was back on January 17th. Unfortunately, it's worth a lot less now because of the crash. The, the TPay coin value shows a similar curve as uh, the value dropped from $10.88 to $0.05. Cents. Wow. Internal pump and dump schemes and very shady business deals and partnerships were suspected to have enabled a large percentage of funds to be siphoned off for personal gain while reducing the Bitcoin value of TPay for its coin holders. A token pay entity in Switzerland was created, as usual behind a proxy, and stakes were bought into a real estate bank that didn't make any profits. They also acquired 7% of a public company stock called Naked Brands, which has not been sold yet. 
Also, a token pay entity in Hong Kong was created, again, behind a proxy that was used to dump 2.5 million T-Pay coins on the market in exchange for hundreds of valuable domain names that went to personal accounts. The value of the T-Pay coin would never recover after that. The coins they used to buy these domains that were refunded after being illegal sold to investors, and they showed that. Beanie admitted to being a domain name investor, which is confirmed by doing a reverse who is check on his real name. It's obvious that it was the person in possession with those valuable domain names are or were in case they have been resold. The domains were listed on tokendomains.com. And they show screenshots of a lot of things, uh, a lot of different domain names that he has there. Over 50, uh, over partnerships, other partnerships and ventures were created to make it look as if there was substance behind the venture, such as tokenswiss.com, esports.io, tokengaming.com, privacycoins.com. These are just some of the domains. Beanie was already known to be using many different aliases in order to influence, deceive, and manipulate people during his TV piracy business, and that pattern seems to have continued during his time with TokenPay, but certain apps show the name based on your phone number. This should not come as a surprise, as he recently admitted to using 16 Twitter handles and provided proof of that. The investment vehicle that he used for TokenPay was Huntington Investment Corp., registered on the British Virgin Isles, on the same address as Token Pay, the address is also included in the Panama Papers. The domain name for Huntington Investment was only registered just before the ICO launch, so it only seems to be used to provide credibility to the claim that Beanie was only an investor instead of the mastermind behind it. According to the website of Huntington, he was an investor in InvestFeed, a website that is currently not accessible anymore, as it was investigated by the FTC. TPay and TokenPay were transferred to Royal Gaming, and many people involved in the, in the TokenPay scam were already aware of that. The latest Medium post by TokenPay is that new updates can be followed versus via Royal Gaming, so we've come full circle. When Beanie recently started using an old Twitter account for his new fund at GM Capital, he clearly did not seem to have been aware that the fact that his account was suggesting followers to follow the accounts of all his other previous scams. One common trait of a successful scammer is to call out other scams aggressively and as frequently as possible as it builds and increases a lot of trust. This is a tactic Beanie is well aware of and frequently uses. Uh-oh. You think I'm doing that, guys? You think that's the whole point of this website, Poker Fraud Alert, is to call out other scams so you will trust me? Better watch out. But it is true. I've seen that many times. I've seen this with people who have come to Poker Fraud Alert and wanted to help us call out some scam, and then we learn that these guys are scammers themselves. And then I say, oh, crap, I I wish I hadn't involved myself with this person's help, because at first it seemed like just a helpful individual. Then it turns out it's a scammer himself who is calling out other scams for credibility. And then I feel like a chump. But a lot of times there's no way to know this until you learn the truth about the person later. It is ironic that Beanie promotes Web3, but his behavior shows all the signs of the Web2 world by censoring, banning, and blocking people who voice legitimate concerns over any of his projects. This Web3 versus Web2 thing, it's it's the uh, decentralized internet versus the centralized internet. The centralized being where there's always some entity in control of content on Web2. Things like forums, like Poker Fraud Alert. There's me, who's 
in control of it. It's not something that's collectively controlled by everybody. This is something that is mine, and I can put whatever content on it I want, and I can delete what I want. So they're saying that uh, he's claiming to be so such a pro... He's claiming to be such an advocate of the decentralized Web3 while doing a lot of censoring and banning and blocking whenever people called him out through things he had control of. He proclaims to like transparency, but tries to remain as non-transparent as possible by using large numbers of different aliases, Twitter accounts, anonymous wallets, offshore proxies, and front men. In general, it is ironic that many of these big influencers argue against those malicious, big centralized corporations, but they have become themselves the centralized entities that they purport to replace. It's a good point. He also revealed to have run the largest hacker IRC that he moved out of Canada more than 22 years ago for tax reasons, and that he has 30 years of professional trolling. <laughs> he also mentioned that the Canadian Revenue Agency are, quote, retards and, quote, much too dumb for crypto. The reason why he still has his Canadian citizenship is because they would otherwise audit him. We still have far and far more information that we have not yet disclosed, but we think we have presented enough evidence to allow people to make up their own judgment as to the kind of person that Beanie really is. We have tried to keep this threat civilized and neutral as possible, just objectively reporting our observations and presenting the evidence in a responsible way by purposely not including any photos or other sensitive data as address details. Now, people posted his photo later anyway, so so much for that. We urge people with large influence in the NFT space, particularly those who do this anonymously, to behave ethically and remind them if they don't, they'll be found. Beanie surely agrees, given that he ran an online reputation management company. That's interesting. Now, online reputation management, by the way, it's a service, and there's a number of these companies that try to make it to where people don't find bad stuff about you on Google. Now, usually what they do is they just create a lot of junk articles about you to push stuff way down in Google to where the bad stuff about you will show up on page 10. And so only someone really dedicated with paging through Google will find it instead of like on page one or two. But sometimes these online reputation companies also find creative ways to get content taken down, such as they'll make legal threats to websites that have this information. They, they cost a lot of money, but they attempt in some way to suppress information found on Google about people. So they're saying it's kind of ironic that he ran one of these and now is actually trying to suppress info about himself. We urge all relevant authorities and jurisdictions to investigate this individual and his accomplices and in their involvement in a large number of very dubious and potentially fraudulent projects and, if applicable, to hold them accountable to the full extent of the law. Yeah, good luck with that. Instead of competing with each other, we hope the NFT space is able to come up with new and innovative self-regulating mechanisms to create an ethical blockchain, an ecosystem that doesn't reward perverse incentives. Yeah, good luck again. If there is one community able to come up with a way to defy the traditional economic system and its laws and to find a solution for the natural tendency of resources to behave according to the Pareto principle, it is the NFT community. Again, no. <laughs> you guys are always going to have scammers in your community. That's something that's going to happen. If there's money to be made and people can be tricked, then there will be scammers. And there's there's no real solution to that other than aggressively looking for it and calling it out and not being obsessed with protecting anonymity. 
Now, of course, this story blew up and people quickly found pictures of him. They also found that he was pretending to be a girl on one of his accounts. So people were laughing at that and posting like a really bad picture of him and saying, wow, that girl's pretty ugly. (laughs) Someone also found uh, from, they found a a set of tweets. This one from uh, GM Capital. It said, today we accept a letter of resignation from Beanie. We're happy to have King Jesse as our new marketing lead. This is King Jesse, someone on Twitter. Furthermore, we have decided to postpone the launch of our regulated fund while we reach out to the founders to assure them that we are still the best strategic funding option. Now, this was posted on January 18th, like right after this whole thing blew up on the 17th. So that was GM Capital claiming the disassociating from Beanie that he actually resigned and that they've promoted King Jesse to be their new marketing lead. Sounds good, right? They're doing what this NFT ethics thing is asking is to disassociate with Beanie and move on. However, they noticed that King Jesse has a picture of one of those Bored Ape NFTs. And this Bored Ape uh, has a crown on and like a straw in its mouth. So they circled that picture. And then if you look who actually owns that Bored Ape, guess who it is? Yep, that would be Beanie. (laughs) Oops. Oops. So so King Jesse is using a picture of the bored ape that Beanie owns as his profile pic. Supposed to be a completely different person. He couldn't He couldn't even use a different ape or just something different. Just why did it have to be a bored ape? It could have been anything. Maybe King Jesse was created before uh he was worried about having to do I don't know how he made this dumb mistake, but Somehow it happened. So someone was laughing about that on Twitter. So King Jesse is apparently him too. Either it's him or someone with a big fan of Beanie's Bored Ape. I think it's probably the former. Drake on our site is very big into NFTs. In fact, he's made a lot of money on NFTs and at pretty high stakes too. This is what Drake said. I've been following him for the last eight months. I think his background is offshore gambling. He's had a ton of influence in the NFT space up until now. I made a lot of money by getting in early in some of the projects he was shilling. Not exactly sure what the outright scams were, but there's plenty of other influencers in the space and others who do shady tactics to make big bags. My biggest turnoff to Beanie was due to this Wolf Game project where he said he was an investor in. He seems to have inside knowledge of the mechanics of the game while also holding a lot of the NFTs. I sold those and never touched his projects again. So he's saying that what really turned him off is that uh, this is some kind of game it's called Wolf Game. I don't know much about it, but one of these game NFTs where he claims that uh, Beanie knew too much and then also participated in it, and it seemed pretty unethical. So that turned him off, and he sold it and then decided he's not going to invest in any of projects that Beanie is pushing because there's something shady about the whole thing. But he did notice that a lot of people in the NFT space do this sort of thing where they push something as supposedly an NFT that's going to be valuable in the future and push people to buy it. And they claim just to say, hey, this looks good. I'm interested in this. I think this is cool. And in reality, they own all or most of it. 
And I've had people come to me who kind of steer me towards some other NFTs. The only one I have, aside from Top Shot, is Ed Run. And I've talked about that a lot. But I've had people come to me and say, hey, this one's kind of similar to Zed Run. Maybe you should get into it. And these are people who are well-meaning and are not scammers and don't own any piece of these. They're really saying, hey, maybe you want to try one of these. Maybe you won't have as much fail as Zed Run. But I could easily see where it can happen that people who are not being ethical are trying to push NFTs that they own and they have a big following. They're not just telling their friends, but they have a big following. And they do it along the same lines. Hey, this looks like something good. Hey, I bet this is going to go way up. And they'll push it, and then people invest in it, and then the creator makes a ton of money. And not disclosing that you own any part of it is very, very unethical. And what Drake is saying here is that a lot of these, quote, influencers in the NFT space are doing just that. So it's not just Beanie who's lying about what interest they have in these projects. But it does seem from reading all of this that Beanie is much worse than some of these others, if everything being reported is true. And I, I have to say this NFT ethics person was pretty thorough with a lot of screenshots backing up what they're claiming. So I didn't bother to stop and look each one of these screenshots and describe it to you or it would take forever. And besides, this isn't a video show, so it would be hard to describe. But the person did a lot of detailed work here and gave you screenshots backing up what they were claiming. So unless unless these screenshots were doctored or fabricated, which I doubt they were, then this all looks pretty bad. So this pretty much kills Beanie's viability as an influencer. (coughs) The NFT space is small enough to where once your name is mud like that, you're not going to recover from it. So it's not like we can wait for this to blow over and in three months Beanie will be sharing which NFTs he thinks that you should be investing in and you'll trust him. You kind of can't put that genie back into the bottle. However, because it seems like he's so big with fake accounts, who knows if we'll find him again under another phony name. And he seems to have a very good feel for how to get noticed and how to quickly pump up the followers of these fake accounts. So in general, if you're in the NFT space, and you probably already know this, but just in case you don't, just don't trust these influencers unless you really know who they are, or at least you know people who you trust that trust them, and still be cautious. Sometimes what happens and there's, there's been a lot of people who've lost money on NFTs because of this, because a lot of NFTs originally have some kind of pop and a lot of times it's manipulated to happen in a way such as this. And then the whole thing crashes down because the whole thing's phony. All the interest that was driven was phony. And then in reality, there's not a lot of people who want it and the whole thing falls apart and then the bottom falls out of the price. And the ones who walk away with a lot of money were the creators and the very early adopters and everybody else left holding the bag. This is what's referred to in the NFT space and in the shitcoin space as, quote, being rugged. 
and being rugged means a rug is pulled from under you. There's been a lot of ruggings in the NFT space in the last several months. And this is before the big crypto crashes that have just been happening. It's unrelated to all that. There's just been a lot of these trash NFTs that are shilled or pumped in some way. And then it turns out it's all phony and the value goes to close to zero. So you got to be careful with this. A lot of people have learned, okay, well, I just get in early on one of these things and maybe I'll have the next uh, bored ape or I'll have the next uh, punks because people got in on those early have made a fortune. I wasn't one of them, but people who did made a fortune. So you think, okay, I just got to wait for the next one. And you, you see someone who's influential, who seems to be pushing something new. You go, okay, well, there it is. And then if you see a bunch of people are buying it, then it becomes even more enticing to get in, even if you're not super early. And then comes the rugging and you're screwed. There's a lot of risk in this. You think Bitcoin has a lot of risk. The NFTs and the shit coins, these tiny cryptocurrencies, there's way more risk in those. There's a small chance of a huge upside but there's a high chance of either failure, scams or both that's why a lot of people just steer clear of it but this beanie guy looks like he has decades of experience doing stuff like this but it's funny how while he was somewhat controversial for the most part he was respected by a lot of people until now But I also find it interesting that there is still such reluctance to expose him, despite everything they tweeted there. There are 70 tweets I read you there. I read you 70 tweets with all that info, all those screenshots. I mean, whoever ran this account, this NFT ethics, was very sure. Despite all that, they still didn't want to post the guy's picture, which is incredible. Why, Why are they hiding his picture? We see it now because other people found his picture. But... Can you imagine? They have all that and they don't show the guy's picture? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. But that's how uptight everybody is in the crypto and NFT communities about exposing people. They're just so big on the concept of anonymity. They're like, okay, well, we're going to say his name, but we're not going to show you his picture, okay? We're going we're gonna to keep his face out of the videos. No, don't. If, if you're so convinced the guy's a scammer, show everything. Don't hide anything. People who are verified scammers, I don't mean just suspected, but verified scammers to where you're 100% sure that scams have taken place, they don't deserve privacy. And when I say scammers, I mean real scammers, not someone you're having a financial dispute with or someone you think acted a little bit unethically, someone who is clearly a major scammer or even just someone who's just clearly an outright thief. You don't have to worry about their privacy. They don't deserve it. In fact, the more that's known, the better. So people can watch out. And so the scammer can feel the consequences that maybe not the consequences they deserve, like prison, but they can feel the consequences that they're not going to be able to hide behind anonymous names anymore. And they're not going to be able to keep their face off the internet if they are victimizing people like this. But as I said, the NFT space isn't 
totally ready to deal with things like this. Like in poker, this guy's info would be everywhere. <laughs> they wouldn't be saying, well, we're not going to post this picture. Here, here's 70 tweets calling him a scammer, but we're not going to post this picture. This NFT ethics thread has been retweeted almost 2,500 times in just five days, has been quote tweeted another 1,560 times, and has been liked over 7,200 times. So to say the least, there is a lot of response and a lot of attention to this. So Beanie is definitely not uh, going to have the same level of respect ever again. You may wonder, is he still tweeting? Well, yes, he actually did tweet a little bit. (laughs) I guess he thought maybe he could get past this because on January 18th, remember a day after this whole thread was posted, he posted probably nothing, he wrote, and then showed a screenshot of the headline that Microsoft is going to buy Activision Blizzard. And that was the last tweet he wrote. He he still thought at least a, a day later that he could uh, get past this. He also wrote a few follow-up uh, replies. Someone wrote to him, take care, Beanie. Threats and photos against you was completely uncalled for. Anyone supporting that is trash. And he wrote back, I'll DM you one so you can see I'm not lying. Well, okay, but, you know, if if you're a big scammer and people are threatening you at that point, you only have yourself to blame. And then uh, a guy named Charles One said, uh, LOL Charles. And he says back, Beanie, a bit of a double-edged sword as my strategic involvement is a blessing but can be a curse for me when it doesn't pan out. Yeah, you think? It doesn't pan out. (laughs) And he actually uh, did respond to some people. I'm seeing here as I scroll down, all on January 18th, but he's gone silent since then. It's been about five days now. Someone named OK Hotshot said, I invite you to my space and we'll talk about your history, the thread posted by NFT Ethics and why you created the Beanie Maxi account. We'll aim to keep it factual, on point, and civil. So Beanie says, I can agree to that, but we'll revert back on dates. Why did I create Beanie? Well, I did a deal with Pranksy last January and he asked for my Twitter, so I made one. Sort of snowballed from there, but I've been doing internet VC my whole life. Then uh, someone named Cyber Clay said, I don't know, either way, I've been following you for a while, but they provided quite a bit of evidence while you're asking us to take you for your word. Much easier to defend yourself if you provide tangible evidence that discredits these accusations that paint you as a notorious scammer. Very good point, Cyber Clay. Beanie said back, I'm talking to a couple lawyers today regarding libel. Probably best I don't comment on it until then anyhow. This is a FUD attack, nothing more. And then he did say... uh, the day before, I will respond to each of the allegations against me in detail very soon. I'm proud of my accomplishments in this space and appreciate all that have stood up for me. Well, I don't think it's going to happen. Remember, this is the day of, the day after when he thought that maybe he could get control of this, but it's blown up so huge. He may be delusional enough to think that he can stop this, but I think it's spread too much. Remember, it's been retweeted like 2,500 times, so good luck. It's possible he is going to have lawyers contact people about libel and try to scare him, but I don't think this NFT ethics person is going to take it down. And if they do, that cat's out of the bag anyway. And besides, there's a lot of evidence that was posted. So 
the best defense to libel or slander is the truth. If you can prove that you were telling the truth, then you're in good shape. And I think NFT Ethics believes they can prove they're telling the truth. Also, Beanie is not presently in the U.S. That also may make it tougher to sue anybody. And there's a reason he's not in the U.S. And if he has to come back to the U.S., he may face certain problems. So it's a, a lot of this could be just posturing. And the fact that we haven't heard from him in five days is kind of telling. He claims he's consulting with his lawyers, but I, I don't think that's what's really happening. I think he was trying to spray some water on that fire. And then the fire got out of control and he's like, nope, better run off. I mean, we'll see, but I have a feeling like a week from today, there's going to be no further tweets. I have a feeling a month from today, there'll be no further tweets. Because the point is, this is probably ruined. Anything he tries to shill is going to have a bunch of people in the thread saying he's a scammer, don't trust him. Like, even if he's not involved with the projects, he'll be considered poison for any project. If you had an NFT, would you want Beanie shilling it for you at this point? No, everyone would assume that he owns part of it and no one's going to want to invest in it. So he's of negative value now to be shilling for people. He has 174,000 followers, but he's of negative value. He knows that. He's obviously a smart guy. So I think he's going to trash this whole beanie thing. And whether he comes back or as someone else or whether he just kind of disappears, I don't know. Okay, finally, we're going to do our COVID topic. And that is, very simply, the good and bad news about Omicron. Because there's both. And it's important that you understand both. And you don't listen to biased coverage, which makes you think inaccurately about it on one side or the other. So here's the good news. I'll give you the good news first. And where did this good news come from? Is it from a right-wing site that always wants to report that COVID is no big deal or that it's over? No. This actually came from CNN. I mean, that should tell you a lot that CNN is reporting good news about COVID, even though they're trying to spin it to not sound like that good a news. But their own words pretty much tell you everything. So here's, here's what CNN said. This is an article that they wrote called Don't Underestimate Omicron. So I thought when I was going to read it that I was going to see a bunch of stuff about how dangerous Omicron is, blah, blah, blah. But actually, sort of, but they said things in there that surprised me. And when I saw these things in the CNN article, I'm like, okay, well, even they're having to concede that it's very different than it used to be. Here are some quotes, direct quotes from this article called Don't Underestimate Omicron on CNN, just published a few days ago. Although this was not accurate a year ago, earlier coronavirus variants were more lethal than any influenza strain of the past hundred years, Omicron is comparable in severity to the flu. Oh, my. So they're saying, yeah, well, a year ago when people were saying, oh, it's just the flu, it really wasn't. It was much worse. But, but, but 
yeah, Omicron is the flu. It isn't the actual flu, but it's about equivalent in how dangerous it is. That's huge. We've been dealing with the flu as long as we've all been alive. The flu's been around forever. The flu has not disrupted life. It has killed people, but it has not disrupted life for everyday Americans, even during very bad flu seasons, like the one we had from 2018 to 19. So we had a recent very bad flu season just three years ago, and it did not disrupt life at all. And here they're admitting right on CNN, Omicron is comparable in severity to flu. It says it right there in the same article. It says, for Omicron, the risk of death is estimated to be 90% lower than for Delta. 90% lower is being conceded on CNN. CNN, which has tried its hardest to create a lot of fear around COVID, and even in this article is trying. I'm pulling these quotes, which are not out of context. But I'm pulling these quotes, conceding certain things about Omicron to be true. And then they try to spin it. Well, but the risk of death for unvaccinated people is 10 times higher than the risk of death for vaccinated people, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, probably true, but they're doing a spin job. The main takeaways are the two things I read you. And this is not just CNN theorizing. They got this from government sources. That's why they are finally having to concede this. That Omicron is basically as severe as the flu. And that the risk of death has just gone down by 90% from the previous dominant variant that we just had in December. So in early December, when it was all Delta, in that time, we have gone down 90% the risk of death. (laughs) That's pretty big, wouldn't you say? It's a huge development. The risk of death just went down 90% from one variant to the next. We'd be happy with 20%. We got 90? We got 90% reduction in death per uh, per infection? Wow. That doesn't mean it's over, but boy, that's progress. And it's comparable in severity to flu? Okay, that's big progress too. Not that we want another flu-like thing out there, but that's not the same thing as what we were dealing with before by any means. So that's the good news. The good news is that what has been reported from the beginning, but kind of dismissed or you were told to take it with a grain of salt or told certain reasons why that doesn't matter that much, the bottom line is, now that we've seen it for some time, Omicron is far less severe than the original COVID and far less severe than Delta. So we need to treat it differently. If it is like another flu, then it should be treated like another flu. And that might be a tough adjustment for some people, but that really is the way it should be approached. And I understand their point that if you're unvaccinated, it's likely to be much worse for you. That there is a a big difference in severity between vaccinated and unvaccinated, and even between boosted and vaccinated. I understand. 
And I don't disagree with their advice that you should get vaccinated, even though it is breaking through the vaccines, just to give yourself a higher chance of uh, a lesser version of Omicron when you get it. Now, there's a few issues with that advice, though. So you have to determine what's right for you. So that's the good news. I'll get to the bad news shortly. But the good news is it's far less severe. They seem to not be talking much about the possibility that it merged with a cold. But I still think it merged with a cold. But we're not going to talk about that part of it in this segment. But with CNN admitting that it's far less severe than Delta, that's all you need to know. Because when CNN has to own up to something, when they have to concede something that they don't want to concede, you know it has to be true. It's kind of like if a mom who loves her kid has to admit that her kid messed up, then her kid really messed up because her mom, the mom's going to be the last one to admit it. So this, CNN is admitting that it's 90% fewer deaths and similar to the flu than it is. At the very least, it is. That's the good news. But there is some bad news. Piece of bad news number one is it is far more transmissible than the flu. I got a flu shot once in my life in 2010. That was it. Didn't get one before, didn't go one after. When was the last time I had the flu? 2005. I have not had the flu at any other point since 05. Even though I've only had flu shots once, only once, in 2010. The last 11 and a half years, I had no flu shot and never got the flu. Omicron is not like that. Omicron will get you if you are unvaccinated. Unless you just aren't putting yourself out there and then it burns itself out and disappears. That's the only way it won't. But if you're putting yourself out there at all, it's going to get you if you're unvaccinated and probably if you are vaccinated but not boosted. And the flu's not like that. You can't say, well, if you don't get the flu shot, then it's going to get you. No, look, I've gone 11 and a half years. It hasn't gotten me. So that shows you. And I've had a lot of colds in that time. I've had a ton of colds in that 11 and a half years, but no flu. So this is far, far, far more contagious than the flu. Far, far more contagious than the other variants that have been dominant of COVID. So that is where it's different in that the likelihood of you getting it is much higher. Severity may be similar, but the likelihood of getting it way higher. And that can cause a lot of inconvenience for you, even if you're unlikely to die from it. So people still are dying of Omicron. But similar to the flu, the people who are dying of Omicron tend to be ones who already have other problems and or are old. And again, it's reduced by 90%. But there are still people dying from it, just like people die of the flu. 80,000 people died of the flu in the 1819 season. You can't forget that. Almost all of them were old, so... That's why you didn't hear that much. You don't tend to hear that much when a bunch of old people are dying because you expect old people to die. The reason COVID was a lot more scary was, number one, it was new. And number two, it was getting people who were not old. 
getting a number of middle-aged people. And that starts to be a lot more worrisome because middle-aged people are not supposed to catch viruses and die in the U.S. or in other first-world countries. And they were. So while it was getting old people a lot more, there were plenty of people who were not old that were dying, especially ones who were middle-aged. That was the real scary part about COVID. And then even some outliers who were young who were dying, though not that many. Anyway, with Omicron being that contagious, if you haven't had it yet, it starts to become an issue if you're going to leave your area to do things, such as travel, whether it's for business or for pleasure, that the chance that you're going to catch Omicron while you're traveling is getting pretty high. And that can suck in a lot of ways. You can be stuck in quarantine, either at your destination or when you come back. You could have your trip ruined just from not being able to go out and do things because you're too sick. And I don't mean dangerously sick. I don't mean sick like you're going to die. I just mean sick where you feel miserable and you just want to spend all day in bed. It's one thing to have that happen at home when you're on a trip. That's really crappy. So it starts to create a lot of possible inconvenience for you if you're away from home and haven't had Omicron yet. I thought about this before going to Lake Tahoe for New Year's, which I ultimately decided not to do for that reason, because I didn't want to be that many miles away from home and have Omicron. And it was spreading so quickly, I didn't want to do it. Whereas I wasn't that scared of it at home. And here I had my son with it for a week until he got better. And I wasn't that worried. I kept away from him about the same amount I would keep away from him if he had a cold. Someone derisively asked me, how much mask wearing are you doing in your house? Someone who was mocking me, they thought I would be so scared of Omicron, I'd be walking around my house with an N95 mask on all the time. And I said, none, we don't wear masks in the house. And then I said, well, what are you locking Benjamin in his room? I said, no, I'm keeping distance from him the same way I would as if he had a cold. And now I'm not anymore because I don't believe he's contagious anymore. But I sat at the dinner table with him. I was in the same room with him sometimes. And I said, okay, I may get it. It may break through my booster, but if it does, it does. I was treating it very differently than I would have treated the original COVID. So while I'm not that afraid of getting it at home, I really don't want to get it if I'm out on the road somewhere. And I kind of feel like I might. I kind of, that's why I haven't been back to Vegas recently. I was in Vegas just as Omicron was getting going in the U.S. in mid-December. And in fact, it was more going than I thought it was. But after that, I haven't been there. I know it's only been a month, but I probably am not coming back for a little time until I see what happens with this because I don't want to be there and get it. But it could be much worse somewhere else that's much farther away. That's one piece of bad news. Piece of bad news number two is if you are unvaccinated or unboosted and you want to get a shot in order to make it to where you will be better protected, it may be too late because Omicron is so contagious and the booster takes a few weeks to work. The course of vaccination takes about five weeks to work if you do the two-shot one. So by the time 
you get the efficacy that you're supposed to have, it's probably going to be too late. You'll probably have caught Omicron in between, at which point uh, maybe you'll get a little bit of a less severe case, but it will not have been what you were attempting to do. So that's bad news. It's bad news now that it is spreading at such a fast rate that even though they advise you to get vaccinated or boosted, it may be too late. It may not do you much good, just be, uh, the rapidness that it is infecting people. Unless you have the luxury of being able to spend minimal time in public spaces. If you're working from home and if you just aren't going to go anywhere for any length of time that's going to infect you, then you have a chance of avoiding it. Otherwise, there's a good chance you're going to get it before the vaccine can really take effect. So that's some bad news. Then let's get to the next piece of bad news. The next piece of bad news is that this might be here forever. Not Omicron. Omicron will probably burn out, but something will replace it. And it may be a variant that is less severe. Hopefully it is. But it could be one that's about equivalent. It could even be one that's a little bit worse. We could start going back the other direction. We don't know. But what might remain or even get worse is the hypercontagiousness. Now, what that might mean for you is that we could have rapid fire COVID variants that keep replacing each other and getting people sick over and over and over again. So let's say the next variant, we'll call it pi because that's the next letter in the Greek alphabet. Let's say the pi variant is similar in severity to Omicron, but if you have had Omicron before, you can still get pi. That pi has mutated enough from Omicron to where it's basically a different virus and you can get it even if you've previously had Omicron or other variants of COVID. And then let's say another variant after Pi does the same thing. And then the next one after that does the same thing. But instead of changing every year or so, which the flu does, let's say this changes every three months or four months. Well, you might just keep repeatedly getting this super contagious version of COVID that keeps mutating. And there might be a reality for a while that we're going to just keep getting sick every few months, and it's going to be very, very difficult to avoid if it is this contagious. Now, this is not a sure thing by any means, but it's something to be aware of, that we might have this hyper-contagious disease that, even if it just acts like the flu, can be very inconvenient if it keeps mutating and you can keep getting reinfected by it. And if vaccines are not very good at preventing symptomatic infection or transmission. Which leads me to my next point. Transmission does not seem to be prevented by the vaccine. At least not with Omicron. And that's a disappointment because at first the belief was, while they had no proof of it yet, the belief was that you're probably not transmitting if you've been vaccinated. And while I'm not sure how true that was or wasn't with previous variants, with Omicron, it is now conceded that the vaccine really isn't helping you not transmit. So that whole thing's out the window of get vaccinated so you don't get other people sick. That's pretty much out the window. And what's also out the window is get vaccinated so we can have herd immunity because it's busting through. 
So those public health reasons to get vaccinated are now gone. And while I guess that's good in fighting against vaccine mandates, which I don't believe in, it's bad news as far as the transmission of COVID, that we may just have a situation that vaccinated or unvaccinated, everyone can be transmitting and you don't know. And this can just be something that just keeps spreading over and over and over in the population every time it mutates. So those are the bad things that have been found about Omicron and some possible bad futures about Omicron. Think of the World Series of Poker, which is coming up in four months. Do I really want to play the World Series of Poker under the circumstances where there's thousands of us in the room and it's something super transmissible? Remember, when I played the main event, there was no Omicron. But the next time there might be, or there might be another variant which is similar to it, to where there's a lot of the disease going around and where the vaccines are not that good at stopping symptomatic infection. So not only might I get sick while there, but it could stop me from playing the tournament. What do I do if I come down with it on day three of a tournament? Do I not show up? Let myself blind off? I mean, that's terrible. (laughs) Imagine if I have to do that. It would be terrible. But I'd probably have to do that. I probably could not just go down there and say, hey, guys, I have COVID. I'm going to play out my day three. Like, I, I don't think even if I wanted to do that, I could do it. I think probably if you come down with COVID, you probably have to sit out in the middle of the tournament. And with something far more transmissible than we dealt with at the 2021 World Series, this could be a big issue. We have a lot of people deep in the tournament. They're going to have to sit out. We had some people who chose not to show up to day twos where they had Delta towards the end of the World Series. But not showing up to a day three when you have COVID, hmm, that is tough, especially at a three-day event or a four-day event. When you're that deep, you have to not show up. And it'll be very tempting to some people to pretend they don't have it. Try to hide any sign they have it. And then what if people suspected? Oh, I saw that person sniffle. I saw that person cough. You can't pin them down and make them take a COVID test. They'll say, oh, no, 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 it's just allergies. And and the person sitting next to you probably has COVID and <laughs> it's going to be a mess. Like, do I even do I even want to involve myself in this? Now, this is four months from now, so maybe uh, this won't be an issue. Maybe COVID will have just fallen apart by then. Maybe it'll be a non-factor in June, but it also might be a factor. It might be very similar to right now. And if the World Series was tomorrow, I don't know how I'd feel about playing there because of that reason. Not just putting myself in the room with thousands of people, but also knowing that I might catch it and then two days later show symptoms, which is very common to show symptoms two days after being exposed. So I play day one, I catch it, I show symptoms on day three, I'm running deep. I say, okay, maybe this will be my second bracelet. Nope, COVID time, I got to blind out. Very, 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 very frustrating if that were to happen. So do I want to even put myself in that position? And if I say no, does that mean I'm never going to play the World Series again? Because if this is endemic and it's always here, 
then that'll be the same situation a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. So what do I do? What about cruising? Cruising has become a big problem because something this contagious, the last thing you want is to get it on a cruise ship and have it ruin your cruise. Because you know how viruses spread on cruise ships. That's notorious for that even before COVID. So you can have it where Omicron rips through the cruise ship, which we've already seen happen. And then so many people get sick and they abort the cruise. Or even if they don't abort the cruise, you're just stuck in your room. It'd be miserable. So do you want to even sign up for that? Or do you say, screw it, I'll just stay home? Because right now my attitude is, screw it, I'll just stay home. So there's good and bad here. As far as the deadliness, very good. As far as the severe disease that doesn't kill you, very good. As far as the future of COVID, it looks pretty good in that we probably are not going to get much worse than we are right now. Maybe better. Maybe it'll disappear. But on the bad side, this is extremely contagious and can be very, very bothersome and inconvenient. And it may hit you a lot more often than you think. Will we start having situations where people are getting COVID three or four times a year? Maybe. And at that point, how do we treat it? Is it something we're going to eventually have to live with and maybe even uh, not have people stay home for very long because then everything stops functioning? You can see they're already starting to change the guidelines on this about how long you're supposed to stay home because they want the country to function. Oh, one other piece of bad news I forgot to talk about is masking. They finally admitted that cloth masks aren't useful and that even surgical masks are only moderately useful against Omicron. So while you may say that's great, I hated all this masking crap. I never believed it worked. So now they're finally admitting it. And I say, well, they're also saying, and probably accurately, that if you really want protection, you have to wear a KN95 or N95. So imagine if that becomes a requirement. Imagine if you have to wear these uncomfortable KN95 or N95 masks everywhere instead of just these cloth ones. The cloth ones may have been useless, but at least they weren't as uncomfortable as those KN95 and N95 masks are. Imagine if we have an N95 mandate. Would you enjoy that? That might be coming too. So don't don't say that COVID is over. It's just changing. And be aware of what it is and what it isn't. By the way, remember the whole thing about the hospitals are going to be overflowing? Are we seeing that? Do we see reports everywhere of hospitals being swamped to where they have to turn people away and not treat them? People are dying of COVID on the street because there's no hospital beds for them. They concede that Omicron is not as severe, but with so many cases, with so many new cases that we're getting, it's going to overwhelm the hospitals. Have we seen that? No. I don't think we're going to see it. It seems like the only place places that are having big capacity issues with hospitals are ones where the staff is short because people have COVID. But not because there's not enough space. It's because there's not enough staffing. And some idiot jurisdictions 
forced healthcare workers who wouldn't get vaccinated to be fired. Now they're sorry because they need them. But if hospitals are open to normal capacity, there shouldn't be a problem, at least not yet. Just the hospitalization is so much less with Omicron than Delta that even with the much higher case rate, it's not as bad. That's all I got. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Looks like our day has been Saturday for a while. We may just stick to Saturday. I don't know. Every time I think of bringing it back to Friday, I go, ah, it just feels too soon. The problem is, the show is so long that it bleeds into the next day, and then it takes a while to edit it and put it in the archives, so that bleeds into the next day. So then by the time Friday comes around, it feels like I just finished everything with the other radio. <laughs> so I go, no, I need one more day. Also, this week I was hoping some more big stories would come down that we could talk about, but nothing really came. Nothing really happened on uh, Saturday or late Friday. So I I had to do segments like Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History and Druffy Time Theater, and what do you know, the show ended up not being short after all. Check out VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is the sister site to Poker Fraud Alert, run by me as well. It has more of a casino advantage play angle to it. But it's also a mostly free speech site run in a similar fashion with mostly different people. There's a few crossover posters who post them both. MMLK seems happy that I acknowledged him. He made a thread on Poker Fraud Alert saying that he appreciates the shout-out. He said he wants a Master Scaler call. Hey, I tried. Master Scaler didn't call me back. Alright, we'll be back next week. Probably on Saturday the 29th. That is all. Good morning. And... Shalom.